Phil Collins, life is a rat race. You may wonder why you never heard that song. Even if you're a big Phil Collins fan, I bet you never found it on any albums. I bet you never heard it in concert. I bet you never found it anywhere. That's because it was never released. This was, and the reason it was so repetitive, the reason it was pretty much the same thing over and over and over again, was because that was all that was written and recorded. This was a, a brief little song that they repeated a few times in the end credits of a Miami Vice episode that Phil Collins starred in. And uh, it actually was also played in the background. He was playing a game show host. He was like a scammer doing a number of things. One of the things was a, a, a rigged game show. And they played that in the background in a game show that was called Rat Race. And then they played it as the end credits song as well. So uh, I actually thought it would have been a good song if they made a full song out of it. Uh, it, it was based a little bit on his song, uh, The Man with a Horn. But if you play it, you'll notice they aren't too similar. It's a little bit similar. Anyway, welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Tellus. This is being broadcast live and recorded on June 21st, 2019. Right now the time is 8.41 p.m. Pacific time. We have a free roll, and unlike usual, unlike usually... When I start the show late and I tell you guys, oh, well, the free roll started five minutes ago, but you can still get in. I'm not going to give that speech this time because it has not started yet. You've got 19 minutes until it starts. It starts at 9 o'clock p.m. Pacific time, and it's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, as always, located near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. And you need a separate account there that needs to be verified before the show. Otherwise, you will not be able to get in to... Understand the rules. In addition to getting verified, you need to know the rules to win the free money. Go to pokerfraudalert.com slash freeroll, all lowercase, exactly as it sounds. Pokerfraudalert.com slash freeroll to read the rules, know them, understand them. Otherwise, if you win the money and I don't pay you, I will point to the rules and say, look at that. I'm not paying you because you did not follow the rules. Of course, I'm not going to confiscate the money. I'll just go back into the pool for the next week. Speaking of confiscated money... The free roll this week is partially funded by confiscated money, but not because someone didn't follow the rules, because someone didn't collect their prize. If you remember, I don't know, about, about a year and a half ago, there were uh, there was some concern expressed by a few listeners that uh, what happens to the money that just never gets claimed, never gets collected? Some people even suspected that maybe this was my secret way to fund the site, that I was getting rich off of uh, you know, $8 prizes that people weren't collecting. I, I'm serious. There, was actually, there were actually people who believed this, that this is some big conspiracy, that I pretended the site loses money, and in reality I was just keeping the, the small prizes that were never collected. Because we didn't have like $100 prizes that weren't collected. People always collect on that. It's like, you know, someone wins 8 bucks, they, they sometimes don't knock themselves out to get a hold of me to, to collect it. They just forget about it. So some people really believed that this was a secret, insidious plot I had to, to steal money and to fund this site. And I was actually making wild profits on Poker Fraud Alert uh, instead of losing money. I guarantee you guys, I, I am losing money on the site. Not big money, I'll be honest there too. I'm not digging way into the Jew wallet to fund this place. But I, I do overall take a loss on this site every year. And yes... Uh, it, upon looking into it, yeah, it turned out there were uh, small prizes that people had won over time that uh, they didn't collect, and it was impossible to identify them all going back years. So I just, uh, I said, okay, I'll, I'll throw in four hundred dollars of my own money, 
Hopefully that covers it. Uh, and going forward, starting last year, I started posting every prize and whether it was collected or not. Uh, this way, everybody could see. It was very transparent starting from uh, April of last year. It became very transparent of every prize that was won and whether it was collected. And then prizes that were not collected, I promised to put back into the pool after approximately six months. Not six months of the day, but uh, every so often I take a look. If it's been six months and the people haven't come forward, then I will kick the money back into the pool. So this way, it's clear to everybody what's going on here. Because I, I don't want such suspicion hanging over me because I'm, I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to make a penny off this free roll. So anyway, uh, with that whole speech, $23 was won on August 8th by a guy named Drone Racer. And maybe he's winning enough drone races for money that he doesn't need the free roll money because he never collected on it. So it's too late for Drone Racer. His $23 won on August 8th, 2018 has been confiscated. Been way more than six months. Six months passed in, in February. Here we are in June. So I gave him four more months. I don't know who that is, but he never came forward to collect it. So the $23 from Drone Racer is going to be in this week's pool. Also, uh, $59.63 was donated this week by MDJ1980. MDJ1980 played the 1500-08 tournament and cashed. I believe he came in 33rd, and he very generously donated... uh, I, it's, what was some percentage, some percentage of his win? That's why we came to this funny number. I don't remember now, but he he pledged to donate some uh, percentage. He said either he and I will meet for a meal and he'll buy me the meal, or he'll donate some percentage of whatever he cashes to the free roll. So we, we met briefly at the event, but we didn't get to have our meal. So he said, "Okay, well here you go." He cashed in the event. I think he finished thirty third. I did not cash in that event, but. Uh, I think he was actually the only Poker Fraud Alert radio listener to cash. We had a number of people who played in that event. From yeah, you know, I played, a number of people who listened to the show played. I believe he was the only one to cash, and he ran pretty deep. But uh, anyway, he donated $59.63 this week. $9.63 is a bounty on him, MDJ1980. Now, I'm not sure if he's playing because this show got delayed by a day. I just didn't feel up to it last night. I, I could have forced myself to do it. I wasn't sick. I just didn't feel that good. I just felt tired. I felt like a lack of energy. My stomach kind of hurt. And I was like, oh, I don't feel like doing this show. I really didn't feel like doing this show. If if I was being paid to show up on the day I say I will, then I would have forced myself to do it and probably would have sucked. But uh, I would have forced myself. But since this is something I do voluntarily, since this is something that the only person to answer to is me. And because I want you guys to have a good show to listen to, not a crappy forced show, I said, I'll just wait another day. And it, it's that was the right decision because I feel better today. Not perfect, but I feel better today. Today I feel like doing the show. Yesterday I really dreaded doing the show. And finally I said, you know, I'm just not going to do it. I'm, just, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to skip this week. I'm just going to delay it one day. MDJ was ready to play last night. I don't know if he's here tonight. So if he's not here tonight, the 973 will be uh, rolled over either into the next free roll prize or until he can come back and uh, have the bounty on him. I'll let, have him let me know this. But thank you to him, and thank you uh, to Drone Racer for not collecting your money <laughs> so he could put it back in the pool. So the prizes this week are as follows. Uh, $36 for first, 22 for second, 15 for third, and 
$9.73 is the bounty on MDJ1980, which I think is his name on the site. If it's not, it's some form of MDJ. It's, uh, I'm just about sure that you'll be able to identify him if he plays. Starts at 9 o'clock. You can get all the way till 9.25 as far as registering and start with a full stack. But after that, you'll sh- you will be shut out. Well, I'm going to give you guys the remainder of the intro here. Then we'll get into the agenda. This is a light news week. I'll be honest with you. But we still have some interesting things to talk about. I do want to let you guys know we're not going to do that Eric Benzamokin topic this week. Remember I teased last week that he's going to come on and talk about a lawsuit involving poker that nobody knows about? Uh, unfortunately, that has to be delayed another week. You guys will understand when we do the topic why we had to delay it twice. There is a good reason. We're not just being lazy or uh, not ready. There's a specific reason why it's being delayed, and uh, that will be stated when it comes. Didn't mean to tease this and not come through, but it, it'll come through. It will be discussed. Uh, probably next week will be the time we do that, or the next show, provided there's one next week, which brings me to my next point. When is the show next week, is the question. I'm returning to the World Series of Poker to play a lot of events starting June 25th. So on the night of the 24th, I'm going to get back to Vegas, and I'm going to start playing... Uh, Events in rapid-fire fashion. Not, not quite uh, crazy bust from one register another fashion, as some people do. I, that's, I don't have the energy to do that. I, I just don't. I don't know how people do it. Like Ryan LaPlante, I think of him when I say that. But there's many like him who do this. He's 20 years younger than me. That helps, too. But uh, there's people my age who do this. I don't get it. I can't do it. I feel drained. Like, yeah, if I bust one on level two, I can re-register if, if, if necessary. But I, I could not, like, play a whole day or play part of a day or play a final table and then go on register to a new event the same day. I, I just couldn't do it. That's just not me. I can play super long cash sessions. I can't do that in tournaments. Anyway, by my standards, I'm playing a lot of events starting June 25th. I don't have an event on June 26th or 28th. But I hope I do, because that will mean I made day two on the event on the 25th or the 27th. So if I uh, continue to brick in ugly fashion, as I had in every event this year besides the Big 50, then I will have plenty of time to do radio, either on the 26th or the 28th. The 26th is getting a bit soon. The 26th is on, uh, you know, it's just five days from now, so I, I don't know if we'll have enough to talk about. The 28th would be a better day. But maybe I won't be available. So I'll decide it at the time. The next radio will either be on the 26th, the 28th, or a while from then. We'll just have to skip that week. Because I, I have a pretty busy schedule in the World Series. And in fact, why don't I talk about that now, too, as part of this uh, long intro. For those of you that are wondering, those of you that follow my World Series play, those who root for me and those that root against me, there are people who listen to the show who root against me. I'm not even kidding. There are, there are actually people who listen to this show that hope I lose, that get pleasure out of me losing. I mean, I guess that's fine if you do. What you want to root for is your business. But uh, regardless of what success you want me to have, here is what I have coming up. Some of this is on the 
most of this is on the package. One of the two packages I've sold. Uh, some of it is not. On the 25th, I'm playing the 1500 PLO8, and I'll fire two bullets in that. Hopefully, I won't need to, but I will fire two bullets if necessary. I will decide if a, a second bullet is warranted. That Just because I can fire a second bullet doesn't mean I will. If I think it's too late in the event to be worth it, I won't do it. If I don't fire a second bullet for whatever reason, people will get their money back. Who, you know, everyone who bought a piece of me paid for two bullets, so if, if I don't fire one, if I don't file, fire a second one, you'll get that money back plus markup. June twenty seventh, fifteen hundred mixed Omaha. I like that event. It's a mixture of O eight, PLO eight, and Big O. Again, I'll fire two bullets if necessary. June twenty ninth, fifteen hundred limit hold'em. I like that event too. Honestly, if someone asked me to name the event where I think I have the biggest edge on the field, I think it is the 1500 Limit Hold'em. It used to be the 1500 Limit Hold'em shootout, but that's gone. Now it's just the 1500 Limit Hold'em. I think that's uh, where I have the biggest edge. I once even had a troll texting me telling me how much I sucked and what a fish I was. And even the troll conceded that I had an edge in that event. (laughs) The the troll told me in in text that uh, I'm a big fish, I'm a dog in every event, but... The 1500 limit Hold'em, he'll agree that I, I have an edge in that one. <laughs> they, even someone trying to troll me and make me feel bad has to admit I have an edge in the 1500 limit Hold'em. Okay, uh, June 30th, if I don't make day two of the 1500 limit Hold'em, then I will be playing the Crazy Eights event, the 88 event. That is not part of my package. That one I have 100% of myself, as I did in the Big 50. July 1st, the next day, provided I don't make day two of the Crazy Eights event, I will be playing a satellite to the uh, Limit Hold'em. Well, provided I don't make late day two, because this is at night. But at night on July 1st, I'll be playing a Limit Hold'em satellite to the 10K Limit Hold'em event. That is part of the package. On June 2nd, sorry, July 2nd. Did I say July 1st? I meant, let me start again. July 1st, I'm playing that satellite. July 2nd, I'm playing the 10K Limit Hold'em event itself, whether I win the satellite or not. July 4th, I am playing the main event, 4th of July, also the 14-year anniversary of when I won my bracelet. And then July 8th, if I'm not still on the main event, the 3K Limit Hold'em 6 Max, and that's it for my World Series. So a lot of stuff coming up, and I hope I can do a bit better than I did in my first round of events. Anyway, as you see from the schedule... If I make day twos on the the 26th and the 28th, there's absolutely no time to do radio until July 3rd. So I guess the next one will be July 3rd if I can't if if I can't do it on June 26th or 28th. In fact, I guess July 3rd will be the next radio uh, either way probably. And July 3rd, I think I'll probably make. Well, no, you know what? I can miss July 3rd too if I make uh, day two of the 10K limit hold'em, which I hope I do. So we'll see. You know, you know how this goes. I have to squeeze radio in between uh, events. So I, I, I like doing radio during the World Series. Now, I don't feel like I've been at the World Series for the past almost two weeks because I haven't. And it's weird. It almost feels like it's not going on because I'm not there. I, I now kind of understand the desire some of you have who don't go to the World Series to hear me talking about it because I feel so removed from it. You're going to hear from tonight's show. You're going to hear in the way I talk about things tonight. I just don't have that much to talk about for the World Series because I'm just not there. And when you're not actually there, when you're not actually present for it, 
and you're not hearing the chatter, you're not watching things as they happen, and you're not discussing it with other players, and you're not you know, meeting up with people and talking to them about the World Series, and you really have much less to talk about. You have to count on the poker media and, and poker social media to tell you what's going on. When I'm there, when I'm physically there at the World Series, I have a hell of a lot more to talk about. So this is not going to be a very World Series of Poker-heavy show, number one, because there is really no big incident to my knowledge in the, since the last show, which was six days ago. And the other problem is that, uh, or maybe it's a week now. Has it been a week? I think it's been, it's been a week. Never mind. It's been a week, but it's just it's just been kind of a slow week as far as interesting stories from the World Series. And also, I'm not there. So some of these smaller stories, some of these kind of niche stories or stories that nobody talks about that I pick off myself because I'm there, people bring things to me too. I'll have people come up to me and tell me they have a story for me to cover, and sometimes it's, it's a good story. But none of that happens because I'm, I wasn't there. I haven't been there. I, I left town on June 10th, and I have not back, been back in Vegas yet. In three days, I'll be back in Vegas. But it's funny when you're when you're 300 miles removed from it it's it's a totally different feeling. It's a totally different effect. And you know when I had a, a media pass, which yeah, I can do without, but uh, people would kind of laugh and go, "Why why poker fraudler have a media pass?" And I go, "Well, we're media." And when I'm there, I actually do cover the World Series. And I do talk to people about stuff going on. And I do cover World Series stories. A lot of them. Some very well-known, some not very well-known at all. And we actually have become kind of credible poker media, though, because we, we actually get quoted by Poker News and other publications now. So this is, it's, it's not a, a news site, but it's, it's, a, it's a site. It, it is a site that discusses stories in poker and stories in gambling seriously. And uh, over over time, we've gotten some respect that way. We really have. Not everybody respects us, but we, we have more respect than we used to. Okay, enough with that rant. Let's let's move on. If you want to call into the show, the phone number, as always, is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. Of course, there's the Mount Charleston line. That phone number is... 702-430-1808 That's the Mount Charleston line There's an old 70s rotary phone Sitting in a cabin on top of Mount Charleston It forwards to me wherever I go Somebody uh, Texted me And gave me a hard time about the Mount Charleston line Recently they said, Druff, I think you're lying about it. I think you're making it up. I don't think there's a an old 70s rotary phone on top of Mount Charleston. I don't think you even have an old 70s rotary phone. They think that this is all uh, phony. They think it's a phony phone. And they, they challenged me to post a picture of myself on the old 70s rotary phone in Mount Charleston, in the Mount Charleston cabin. So I said, okay. Now, I, I can't do it right now because I'm not anywhere near Mount Charleston. But I told them... Uh, soon I'm going to go there and I will produce a picture of myself on the old 70s rotary phone 
And you'll be able to tell from the, when you look at the phone, it's an old phone. I mean, not only is it a rotary phone, you'll, you can tell. It's an old phone with wear. You'll, you'll see. And you'll see a picture of me on that phone in a cabin. I don't know how to prove it to Mount Charleston, but you'll, you'll see a picture of that phone. I'm going to post a picture of me on that actual phone very soon. So I'll, I'll, I'll sign a bit. Not sign. I'll reveal a bit more. I don't know why I said sign. Okay. The call to listen line, the ever mysterious call to listen line, which is located in uh, a shack in in various places around the country. We have a few call to listen lines. Kind of, uh, they've been having trouble, so I just want to make sure that they're all working properly. Uh, th- there's the original call to listen line, which is seven one two seven seven five eight one three six. But to be honest, that one is not that reliable anymore. That's the one in Carroll, Iowa. The one you should really call is our South Dakota call to listen line. That's a six zero five three one three zero seven three six. Six zero five three one three zero seven three six. We also have another one in Iowa, which is at six four one seven four one one zero nine five. You can go to the radio tab, by the way, on PokerFraudAlert.com. Just near the top of the screen, it says radio. Click on that, and you can see those phone numbers in case you forget them. 605-313-0736. If you call that, you can just listen to the show. It's very easy. It does not require any kind of computer, internet, smartphone, data plan, app, none of that stuff. You just call up on any phone that can dial, and you listen. Never buffers, never slows down, never freezes, occasionally crashes and goes down. I'll concede that. But other than that, it's very reliable. It just plays. It just works. It's so easy to use to listen. You can use it to listen to the live show. You can use it to listen to reruns that appear on it when we're not live. Random reruns that stream. You can also listen using Amazon Alexa. Say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio, and it'll play the live show. If you want to hear... The last show in the archives, say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast. If you add the word podcast at the end, it'll play the last episode. And if you want to hear the second to last episode, you just say next after that, after it starts playing, and it'll go to the previous episode. It's backwards, I know, but that's uh, that's the way it works. So we're now on Amazon Alexa, as I've told you guys a number of times before. You can use the TuneIn app to listen live or in the archives. Just search for Poker Fraud Alert, all one word. You can use the Stitcher app, another app you can download. You can use an app called Bullhorn, which sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. That's another one that supports Poker Fraud Alert. And uh, you can play the MP3 directly from our server. Just go to the radio forum, and all the shows will be listed there. You can just click on the MP3, and most smartphones and computers can just play it without any kind of special player. A lot of different ways to listen to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Oh, we've got iTunes and Google Play. Can't forget those. We have had a problem with iTunes downloading the show twice for some people. I'm trying to investigate as to why this is happening. I cannot figure it out, but that's that's been that's been what's been occurring for some people, not everybody. I the hardest part is the fact that it doesn't happen for everybody. So I'm trying to figure it out. It's always difficult to f- figure out these issues because it involves a third-party company, Apple, that is involved here. So. It could be on their end. I can't see anything right now that I'm doing wrong on my side, but I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out. I know it's something annoying some people here, but uh, 
I'm working on it. It's possible I'll never solve it. And if I don't, just use something else if, if it bothers you that much. Use TuneIn. Use Stitcher. Those don't download twice, to my knowledge. Okay. You can chat in the chat room if you're listening live. You need a flash-enabled device. meaning mean, no iPhones or iPads. And, and that's it. You can text me, by the way. 775-372-8355 is our main number. You can text that, that number and call that number. You can text me anytime, and I will probably respond. If you're at the World Series and you'd like to find me and say hello, text me, 775-372-8355 during the World Series of Poker, and uh, I will see if I can come say hello to you. I'm not going to – I'll admit if I don't know you very well, I'm not going to knock myself out to meet you. But if, if we're both there at the Rio and I have some time or if I'm, yeah, if I'm playing, you want to say hello and ask me where I am, and I'll let you know to where I – someone said, oh, I was trying to look for you. I couldn't find you during an event. I said, just just text me on that radio number. I'll tell you where I am. Uh, I've, I've met some more people this year. I, I meet new people every year at the World Series who listen to this show. Uh, I've I've enjoyed meeting all of you. I, I, one of these times I'm going to have a bad experience where I meet some weirdo who makes me feel uncomfortable, but it hasn't happened yet. If you're listening and you met me, then know that I'm happy I met you and that I enjoyed the experience, whether it was a, a very brief meetup or if it was uh, someone I spent some time with. But I'll be coming back on the night of the 24th. Uh Okay, so here, here's the agenda. We're going to get Trader Ruski on some point tonight. He's at a dinner right now, but he said he'll be done with dinner soon. Then we'll get him on. Poker Fraud Alert Radio exclusive will be our top story. Something that has not been covered anywhere, but is happening. According to both someone who posted on my forum and several Advantage players who have contacted me. I haven't seen evidence of this myself, but I believe the people who are reporting this. Agua Caliente Casino in Palm Springs, which is an Indian casino in Palm Springs, California, has been accused of stealing money from players who win there. That basically people win jackpots, and not only don't they get paid their jackpots, but some of them don't even get paid the money they had in the machine before the jackpots. They're just ejected, and their money is stolen. Or so go the accusations. Yeah. Very ugly stuff allegedly happening at the Agua Caliente Casino in Palm Springs. So we're going to talk about that. I'm going to read to you the post that uh, someone made on uh, the forum, a radio listener who made a post on the Poker Fraud Alert forum. And I've been hearing this from others as well. So it makes me believe it's happening. It's not just one crackpot posting something that uh, may or may not be true. It's, it seems to be true or mostly true. From what I can tell. Though if anyone listening from Agua Caliente wants to deny this, yeah, feel free. Always give both sides a chance to give their side. After that, we'll do some coverage of the World Series of Poker Week 3. I told you guys during Week 1 and 2 that I don't like covering who wins bracelets. It's not really newsworthy. Bracelets, of course, are going to be won. So why bother to spend time covering who won bracelets? This week... Our World Series of Poker Week 3 news will be all about who won bracelets. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's, that's all we're going to talk about. <laughs> Don't worry. It's not going to be too long. Don't worry. You can, you can fast forward it if you're listening in the archives, which is most of you. 
Well, there's some interesting names who won bracelets since we last did shows, and I, I want to talk about those and give a few stories about some of the people, and then we'll move on. We have a listener to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I think they found the show this year. A person who calls themselves Rachel Lees on Twitter. This person claims they are an older female. Older meaning over 50. I don't know how old they are, but they're, they claim to be over 50. They claim to have a successful background in business for over 30 years. And uh, they're a big fan of this show. In fact, they asked me why this isn't the biggest poker show out there. I said, well, I don't know. You tell me. (laughs) I wish it was, but uh, this person thought this show was so good it should actually be the biggest show out there in in poker. So I appreciate that. Anyway, this person's been very active on poker Twitter and has gotten in a lot of discussions and arguments and debates with various big names in poker. They have written two very long essays, one about poker and one about Daniel Negreanu. I'm not going to read these essays in their entirety. I'll tell you where to find them, but uh, I'll read parts from each of these essays, and I'll tell you my opinions on Rachel Lee's essays and about this person themselves. I think it's time to address the Rachel Lee's situation, which, by the way, that's not her real name. She admits that this is not her real name. In fact, for all I know, it could be a dude. For all I know, this could be a known player who is pretending to be this uh, 50-something-year-old female with a with a long history of business success. I don't know. It could be anyone. I've been online long enough to where... Anyone who claims to be something, even if on the surface they seem to be credible, you can't believe it until you see proof. But that's not that important who it is. It's a little bit important, but it's not that important. It's more important what they have to say. Because what they're saying, they're just kind of giving opinions. They're not so much saying, believe my opinions because of my history. They're saying that a little bit too, but you you don't need to believe their history and their backstory to appreciate their opinions. And I think this person, whoever it is, puts a lot of thought into what they write. They bring up a lot of good points. They're very logical. And I I think a lot of this is worthy of discussion regardless of who it is. I remember, this kind of reminds me a bit of Asian Spa. I remember when Asian Spa hit the scene. And Asian Spa was a bit different than Rachel Lee's and definitely isn't Asian Spa because Asian Spa passed away. I know who Asian Spa was, but... A lot of people theorize that Asian Spa was really a well-known player, and it wasn't true. It turned out that Asian Spa was somebody who was not well-known. The person lived in Vegas, but they were not a well-known player by any means. I was even accused of being Asian Spa at one point. Many people believed Asian Spa was an account shared by me and Micon to troll people. That also was not true. Never had access to any of the Asian Spa accounts. Anyway, we're going to talk about Rachel Lees and the essays that she wrote. Negranu put out a vlog today. He's been vlogging from the World Series every day. He put one out today talking about how people owe him money and how he was mad to see someone in a 10K event he was playing who owes him more than 10K. And he said he may out people soon who owe him money. Well, 
I'm going to play you that little segment of his vlog, and uh, then we will talk about it. Another Poker Fraud Alert exclusive. I reported that the Cosmopolitan is very close to completing a sale, that very soon it's going to have a different owner. You've heard rumors about this very possibly. We may have even mentioned it on this show in the past, but uh, for the last, I'd say, year and a half, there have been rumors it's for sale, so don't go, that's not an exclusive. I heard this back in 2018. Yeah, you may have, but this is a new rumor that was brought to me that they are very close to actually completing a sale and that by the end of August that there's a good chance it'll be in different hands. So I'll talk a bit about that. I've had some people clamoring for a return of Colonel Fabersham. I've had some people tell me the show is not as funny as it once was, that I'm not as funny as I once was, that uh, the show has, is lacking entertainment segments. So Colonel Fabersham is going to take on uh, the Orleans and a real incident that happened there, which was their fault from everything I'm reading. The Orleans... They held a $200 ladies shootout. It was a ladies tournament, part of the Lips Poker Series, which has been around for several years, uh, run by uh, Lupe Soto. A very nice woman. Uh, she. This was not her fault. It was the Orleans' fault. But uh, the Orleans accidentally advertised this $200 ladies shootout as an open event. And as a result, a man ended up winning it. Colonel Fabersham is going to call the Orleans and get answers here as to what happened. Brandon Steven, who is a high-limit poker player, has paid a very large fine to avoid prison time in the uh, whole Kansas underground poker game case. We'll talk again about that case in case you forgot it. And then I'll tell you uh, how big the fine was and why it was so big. The Party Poker CEO, Rob Young, has posted a blog to deal with their recent controversial changes to their system and their policies. I'll read you what he wrote and give you my analysis. Sports betting is coming to another state in the U.S., legalized sports betting. I'll tell you which one and when he can place bets. Finally, provided we have time, which I think we will because this is not really a a very topic-heavy show. This has nothing to do with poker, nothing to do with gambling, but an editorial, something I want to talk about. When positive change happens as a result of a news story, and then it turns out the news story was either a lie or partially a lie, should everyone just keep quiet? If society has benefited, If we've seen positive change as the result of a falsified story, the falsified story is the catalyst to get things done, should we keep quiet about it? Or should we always be in the pursuit of the truth, even if a lie ended up doing some good? I will tell you my opinion, and I'll talk about one particular incident that was a lie that a lot of you probably don't know. It's an incident that happened over 20 years ago. Something very tragic, but the narrative as to what happened was a lie, even though it resulted in a lot of positive changes. And I'll tell you about 
what the truth is and some fallout that someone has experienced for exposing what really happened. So that is our topic tonight. Someone wrote a comment on the agenda I posted. Why the fuck is it so hard to donate? It isn't. Just text me, 775-372-8355, and I'll give you various ways to donate if you want to donate to the free roll. I appreciate all donations. And uh, I'm sorry if you find it hard to donate. It, it really isn't. But uh, if you think it is, uh, just text me, and I'll give you ways to do it. All right. Uh, we're going to get going here. Long intro this time. I've been speeding up the intros, but I just... I got into too many things I was talking about. I know. I, I The intro to this show is longer than many other poker shows in their entirety, which is a, somewhat of a form of embarrassment for me, but what can I do other than shorten it, which I'm probably not going to do. Okay. I want to talk about the Agua Caliente thing. This was brought to me independently a few days ago from both uh, Advantage players I know and also uh, someone who posted on Poker Fraud Alert. Uh, Actually, the person who posted on Poker Fraud Alert, I guess, uh, posted it eh, almost 48 hours ago. So it hasn't really been up very long. The person who posted it said that they are a radio listener it's a person by the name of Bare Necessities. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your stress. I mean the bare necessities or Mother Nature's recipes that bring the bare necessities of life. Wherever I wander, wherever I roam, I couldn't be found off my big home. You better stop this before Disney sues me. Okay, so anyway, here's what Bare Necessities wrote. The topic of the thread that was created on the scam, scandals, and shadiness portion of the Poker Fraud Alert Forum by a person named Bare Necessities is the title is Agua Caliente Casino Palm Springs stole money from me and other players. They wrote, Hey everybody, I'm a Poker Fraud Alert radio listener and have a story where I was the victim of a theft. The theft was not by a mugger or a burglar, but rather the Agua Caliente Casino in Palm Springs, California. Agua Caliente has been advertising a crazy good promotion where you get an extra $500 for every hand-paid jackpot you hit. For those of you who don't know what that means, whenever you press a button on a machine and end up with $1,200 or more ahead from that button press, federal law requires the machine lock up and then they pay you by hand, issuing you a W2G tax form for it. This is true for all casinos in the U.S. Now, he's right about that. Uh, the way he described it may confuse you a little bit. What he's trying to say here is that federal law states that uh, any spin or any hand that you run on any machine, if the result is winning 1200 or more, then they owe you, if that's what the credits that it returns to you, not even your net winnings, but if it returns to you uh, $1,200 or more worth of credits from that one spin or hand, then they have to hand pay it to you and do a W2G form. So, for example, if you're uh, doing a video poker hand, 
even if you're playing 50 hands at once. When you press the button that's you know, to do all the hands at once, if the net result from all 50 hands together is 1,200 or more, it, it locks up and you have to do a hand pay. A slot machine, same thing. One spin, you end up with 1,200 or more. Even if you, you get something like, you know, sometimes these slot machines, they'll give you like free spins, like you'll, you'll win 35 free spins and it auto spins for you 35 times without charging you. That counts as one spin. So that's what he means by a button press. You press the button to spin it, and until you press the button to pay money and spin it again, then it's all considered the same spin. So if you earn more than $1,200 in credits, 1200 or more in credits, in any one spin or any one dealing of hand or hands, then it locks up and you have to do a hand pick. It's a pain in the ass. But that's the law. That's federal law in the U.S. Anyway, going on, he writes... An extra $500 on a hand pay is already sweet, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that if you play high limit machines, hand, hand plays will, will, hand pays will occur regularly, thus netting you a cool $500 each time. Let me give you an example. At video poker, if you play $1 per credit, you will get a hand pay rarely. You need to either hit a royal flush for $4,000 or something like quad aces with a deuce three four kicker, $2,000 on something like double double bonus. Since these are very rare hands, you will hardly ever get hand pays, if any, thus making the promotion not worth very much. But let's say you, pl- you play $10 per credit. Then you would get a hand pay every time you got quads, which is $1,250 or better, making this promotion worth much more. Now let's say you played $50 per credit. You'd be getting a hand pay every time you got a flush, $1,500 or better, making this very frequent. Therefore, the strategy for this promotion is incredibly simple. Play big, hit jackpots frequently, keep collecting $500 extra each time, profit. Okay, so let me stop there. What he's talking about is this promotion, whenever the machine locks up to give you a hand pay, instead of paying you what you win, this promotion is that you get paid $500 extra on top of what you win. So if you get a hand pay for $1,300, they pay you $1,800. You get a hand pay for $20,000, you get $20,500. You get a hand pay for 5000 you get 5500 Just any time it locks up for a hand pay, they give you 500 extra. Now, it's only during certain hours. It says, uh, I'm looking at the promotion here. It says jackpot bonus kicker, Wednesdays, 5 p.m. to 10 p.m., $500 free play bonus awarded to every hand pay jackpot. Pretty clear, right? He posted a link to the promotion, which you can find in that thread on the Scam Scandals and Shadiness Forum on Poker Fraud Alert. And sure enough, if you go there right now, uh, oh, hold on. I think it's gone. Wow. <laughs> Never mind. Okay. This was true as of, uh, two days ago, but it is now gone. They must have just removed it. Cause I, when, when Bear Necessities posted about it, I went to go look. I'm like, okay, could this really still be going on? But it, yeah, it was still there. I went and looked myself. He's telling the truth. He's not making this up. I, I saw it with my own eyes two days ago when he posted this. Because he posted this less than 48 hours ago. He posted this on June 20th at 1.09 a.m. Pacific time. And uh, I saw this uh, not too long after that. I don't remember when. I saw it sometime in the middle of the night. And I clicked on the link he posted to it, and it was there. But he, he also screenshotted it. So... The screenshot's still up on PokerFraudAlert.com of that little thing that says jackpot bonus kicker and, and, and says 500 free play bonus awarded to every hand pay jackpot. 
So anyway, at least as of two days ago, it was up. They, they took it down. You'll hear why pretty soon. He wrote, I live in San Diego, so the drive isn't too bad to Palm Springs. 150 miles and I'm there. I got there and clarified with the desk that the promo is really as it appears to be on the website. They said yes. For every hand pay, no matter how many I hit, they will give me an extra $500. They did tell me video poker was not included in the jackpot promo, which was annoying, but whatever. Notice it's not on the website about that. I went to high limit slots. So that's it's true. I also verified it didn't have any restrictions there. It didn't say no video poker, no asterisks, nothing like that. Just very simply said $500 free play bonus awarded to every hand pay jackpot. I, I should mention that it's not actually $500 you get. You actually get a, a, a bonus voucher for $500 free play. For some reason, he didn't state that here, but you, know, you just run that, uh, run the free play, and you can convert it to cash. It's very easy. Sometimes you end up with more, sometimes you end up with less, but that's not that important here. It's a $500 voucher for free play. You actually win, not uh, $500 cash. Close enough, though. So he mentioned that they told him he can't do video poker. The advantage players I talked to after Bear Necessities post told me that you actually could do video poker at the very beginning of this, but they realized that uh, advantage players were using that to get hand pays very easily, and they uh, made it to where that was not eligible anymore. Anyway, he, he wasn't tricked by that because he asked them first, and they said, no, video poker, we don't do it. So he said, okay, I won't play video poker then. So he said, I went to high limit slots. He writes... I loaded up money. I loaded up some money in the machine and lost a few thousand. No big deal. That's the variance of something like this. A few thousand may sound like a lot to you, but the problem is to play high enough to where you're going to get hand pays a lot. You have to risk a lot of money. That's the one downside to this: is there's a lot of variance. Because if you're going to play high limit slots, then you can lose money very quickly. What you're hoping is to just hit a lot of hand pays and keep getting an extra 500 each time, and that will easily make up for the fact that you're playing negative EV slots. Video poker is way better because the odds are way better on video poker, but you couldn't do that for this promo by the time this guy got there. So he said he was down a few thousand. Then he said, finally, I hit a jackpot for about 1,600, meaning I was due about 2,100 after the promo. He's simplifying it here. He's really due 1,600 plus the $500 voucher, but I guess he's simplifying for this post. They paid me, and I was close to even again. I kept playing with the confidence that I would probably walk out a good deal ahead, barring some very bad luck. Now, by the way, he can use the free play that he gets to rerun it into the machine to try to hit another one. So I think that's why, to him, the 500 was pretty much all the same. Because if he's putting it back in the machine anyway, it's just as good as cash. Uh, He wrote, then I hit another jackpot for 2200 or so. This meant I was due 2700 Instead of paying me, they told me I was being kicked out of the casino. What? They kicked him out. So he writes, after feigning ignorance and claiming I was just a high-limit player who heard this was a cool promo, they said they would let me cash out what was already in the machine, but were still refusing to pay the jackpot. Not only were they screwing me out of the $500 promo, but they were refusing to pay the jackpot I rightfully won. This would be super-duper illegal in Nevada or any state-regulated casino in the U.S. But he's right. You may say, well, okay, they're kicking him out. How can you expect to get the jackpot? No. The way it works in casinos is when they kick you out for any reason other than either cheating or having been there when you're not supposed to be, being underage, being on the ban list, 
any other reason, they pay you. They pay you first, then they throw you out. If you're caught card, card, card counting, they pay you first, they throw you out. If they catch you doing advantage play slots, they pay you, they throw you out. That's always how it worked. They have a right to throw you out. They have a right, uh, except in New Jersey where it's against the law, but every other state, they have a right to tell you we don't want your business anymore, pay you, and then escort you out and tell you that if you come back, they'll arrest you. They have a right to do that, but they do not have the right, morally or legally, to refuse to pay you money that you rightfully won, provided that you were legally there and playing in the first place, which if they've never banned you before, you are, provided you're over 21, which this person apparently was. So this doesn't happen. This does not happen. I haven't heard of it ever happening. Again, unless the person was already banned, or unless they weren't 21, or unless they self-banned before this, or unless they were cheating. Other than that, they always pay you. And they were, this person apparently was not suspected of cheating. They just uh, they realized the guy was there to take advantage of this promo. Take advantage meaning he, he saw this actually could make his play positive expectation and decided to do it. And they didn't like that, and they threw him out. So I'll explain in a second how they got away with this. Because I, I just mentioned it wasn't legal. How can they do it then? We'll get to that. Actually, his post will get to that. He said, I started asking around among friends and acquaintances in the gambling community and found out some people got fucked even worse than I did. A few people were thrown out upon hitting a jackpot and were not paid the jackpot or allowed to cash their tickets. One guy had like 30K in tickets and they confiscated them. Wow. Listen to that again. A few people were thrown out upon hitting a jackpot and were not paid the jackpot or allowed to cash their tickets. One guy had like 30K in tickets and they confiscated them. So he talked to someone, apparently, who had 30K worth of tickets they haven't cashed in yet. And when they kicked the guy out, the guy said, hey, well, let me cash these tickets. Nope, you're not cashing anything. Get out of here. But what about this? A lot of this is money I put in the machine in the first place. Well, we don't care. Get out of here. And they threw him out, would not cash his tickets. And he was out tens of thousands of dollars that they rightfully should have owed them. This was not tickets that he got from the promo. This was like 30 k worth of tickets of money that both he had fed into the machine and winnings, or at least, I don't know if he was up, but you know, whatever the slot machine credits turned into. Like he played a slot machine and he kept cashing out tickets. And he had about 30 k worth and they wouldn't let him cash out anything. Crazy. In all my years in playing in casinos, I've never seen anything like this. Every casino I've been to, uh, every casino I've known has always paid out all rightfully hit jackpots and honored all tickets aside from certain cases where the person was already banned prior to playing. None of these people were banned prior to playing, yet a lot of these jackpots were denied and a lot of tickets were confiscated and or not allowed to be cashed. They only stole 2200 from me, 2700 if you count the promo money I expected, but that's nothing compared to what happened to some others. You would think after all this, they would stop the promo, but go take a look at the website. It's still going, which at the time he made this post, it was. I, I verified it myself. It's it's gone now, which is interesting. But they, they were actually still running the promo after this. They are just kicking out anyone whom they suspect is there to take advantage of it and confiscating both their jackpot and their tickets in most cases. Not only is this really, really unethical, but no one is even trying to cheat or get away with shenanigans here. 
The promo says you get $500 every hand pay during those hours on Wednesday. And all we did is play higher so hand pays would come more often. Duh. Even amateur gamblers should be able to figure out that's the best move. Unfortunately, since it's an Indian casino, they are considered on sovereign land, and I cannot touch them legally. Can't sue them, can't complain to the state, nothing. They can just steal and get away with it. Motherfuckers. Well, that's all. Just wanted to warn everyone to stay away from Agua Caliente in Palm Springs. Wow. I've mentioned before how terrible the situation is with these Indian casinos. I was recently kicked out of an Indian casino. They allowed me to cash my ticket, which was only 200-something dollars, but for the principle of the matter, I really wanted to cash it out. If you remember, I also had uh, Benjamin and Benjamin's mom sitting in the car waiting for me, so I didn't want them detaining me for hours and leaving them like sitting in the car in a parking lot and wondering what the hell was going on. That was also a factor. So I really, really wanted to get out of there. So in order to get out and be able to cash my ticket and get out in a speedy fashion, I, I let them do some things there I normally would not let any casino do to me. I let them take a picture of me. I took off my hat at their request to take a picture of me. I signed a paper that I agreed never to come back. And I even let them take a fingerprint of me. I let them do all that because I just wanted to get out of there. I did not want to be detained. I And I wanted to cash out my money. Now, if it was just about the 200-something dollars, I probably would have told them to eat shit and, and just uh, let the 200-whatever go if they wouldn't let me cash it out. But... I was so afraid of being detained there because I had Benjamin's mom and Benjamin sitting in the car in the parking lot in the middle of nowhere because we were on a family trip and I just stopped by there. And I told them it's going to be very fast. So if they were stuck in the car for hours and hours, not only would they worry what's going on, but I don't even know what they'd do. Like even if they knew what was going on or I could call them, I don't know what could be done. So uh, that would have been a disaster. So I gave up some things I would have normally refused to do. I conceded some things just so I could get out of there. And, and it worked. They let me cash out the two whatever and, and let me walk out of there. But right when I walked out, I remember as I, as I was walking out of the place, I remember thinking, you know, I don't think I want to screw with Indian casinos anymore. Because they make their own rules. They really make their own rules. They can do what they want. There's nothing you can do to them, at least in California. I heard something that Florida Indian casinos, they recently signed a different compact that gives the state more power, which I hope is true because that would be great. This is a huge flaw in Indian gaming. Huge flaw. That they allow the tribes to make all the decisions. And if you've got any complaints, you actually have to do it through the tribe. You have to complain to the tribe about the tribe, which I'm sure you can understand how effective that would be. So they can steal from you. They can detain you for a long time. They can arrest you. There's a lot of things they can do with no real justification, and there's nothing you can do about it. They can screw you in any way they want. And they're considered on sovereign land. It's almost like their own little country. And there's nothing you can do. I first heard about this about 20 years ago, and I didn't believe it. I said, no, come on. Of course you can sue them. No, come on. They can't just take money from you. They can't, they can't just detain you for no reason. There's always, you can always bring lawyers back later and sue them. 
You can always complain about it to the, to the state and get their license taken away. I, I was sure that the, whoever was telling me this was full of crap. But no, they weren't. They were right. I couldn't believe it. It didn't sound right, but it was right. Indian casinos, at least in California, and in most places in the country, to my knowledge, can do whatever they want. Now, ones that are affiliated with large casinos, they 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 can also do whatever they want, but they also have to adhere to some standards because if you complain to the casino they're affiliated with, then they could lose that affiliation. So they're careful about that. So like Harris Rincon or Harris Resort Southern California, it's called now, near San Diego. That one won't screw you as much. It's still not as good as a regulated regular casino, but if you're going to play in an Indian casino, at least that one has to answer back to Caesars. So if they really screw someone, like what Agua Caliente is apparently doing here, then Caesars would say, ah, 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 look, you're, you're screwing our customers here. We don't like this. So stop and make things right or we're dropping you. So that's why they don't do that over there. I'm not saying they're perfect by any means, but they, they don't pull a lot of the shenanigans that some of the other Indian casinos do. Uh, or, or really, really huge ones, like, like Foxwoods and other ones, like, also ones that are really huge with a reputation to uphold. Uh, they probably also won't screw you as much, but they can. They, they just probably won't. But aside from that, you'll probably get screwed if they feel like screwing you and they don't care and there's no one to complain to. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't sue them. You can't go to the state and make any kind of meaningful complaint. There's nothing you can do. As helpless sounding as that is, there's nothing you can do. So here they really ventured into very, very blatant, nasty territory. Is They're not just throwing out perceived advantage players. They're not refusing to honor promotions for perceived advantage players. I mean, they are doing these things, but that's not just what they're doing. They're taking it a step further and actually stealing money that they rightfully have in the form of credits in the machine or tickets. And be very clear, this is not promo money that they won that's being confiscated. This is not free play being confiscated. This is real money that people took and fed into machine. Real U.S. dollars they fed into these machines. You have to feed a lot of money into these high-limit machines to start playing in the first place. So like, if, if you end up feeding $12,000 into a machine and you've got 8000 in credits left, that doesn't mean you've won $8,000. You've still lost 4000 And the 8000 that's in there is actually your money that you fed in there. So if they won't let you cash that out, they've actually stolen $8,000 from you. Or if you hit something on the machine, a jackpot, whatever, whatever you hit on the machine to win credits, you're rightfully playing the slot machine with your own U.S. dollars. Whatever you win is yours, just like whatever you lose is theirs. And if you can't cash that out, again, it is blatantly stealing from you. It is theft. And I've never known casinos to do this, other than a situation where someone is banned or suspected cheating. When I say banned, I mean banned before they played, and they played anyway. Other than those situations, or other than when someone's not 21, I've never seen a casino do that. That is really ballsy to do. Ballsy and nasty and unethical. It's stealing. It's theft. That's what it is. 
Now, maybe you'll say, well, come on, look at these guys. Look what they're doing here. But I, I bet this bare necessities guy is an advantage player. Yeah, he probably is. He doesn't say it there, but he probably is. I, this isn't just a regular guy who goes, oh, well, look, a cool promotion. Okay, I guess I'll play it. Like, he, he knew what he was doing. Bare, bare necessities drove the, the 150 miles because he knew this was a positive expectation promotion, especially if they would let him play it on video poker, which they didn't. But even for high limit slots, he realized that it's it's positive expectation for him and he's going to take advantage of it. The bees are buzzing in the tree to make some yeah. honey just for me. He was probably singing this on the way up there, thinking he had a great opportunity in front of him. At the fancy ants, then maybe try a few. The bare necessities of life will come to you. They- so, this guy's an advantage player, but big deal. Big deal. So, he played the promotion exactly as they said it. They said $500 for every hand pay. They could have put restrictions on. One guy who talked to me about this said, you know what's unbelievable here? All they had to do, even once they realized that this can be taken advantage of, I mean, this is this is incredibly stupid for them to offer in the first place, but even if they didn't think of this when they came up with a, prom- with a promo that people could take advantage of it, once they realized it, which must have been pretty quick because they were kicking people out rapidly from what I'm hearing, all they had to do is make one quick change to it, and that is one per person. That's it. One per person. That would have solved everything. Why? Because it wouldn't be worth the trouble and the variance for people to travel all the way to Palm Springs just for an extra $500 on a hand pay. In fact, in many cases, it wouldn't even be positive expectation. Or if it was, it would be so small and the variance so large, none of them would do it. Advantage players travel because there is an opportunity to make thousands. Or maybe a super low variance hundreds. But not a high variance hundreds at best. Because at best here you're gonna you're gonna be getting five hundred dollars extra. But it's less because you gotta play negative expectation games to get this extra five hundred. So it's worth less than five hundred at most if you can only do it once. With a ton of variance. There's no chance that advantage players would have gone on, uh, to do this if it was just one per person. That's all they had to say. One per person. They could just change it. And of course, they can change it any time because they're an Indian casino and they can change it whenever they feel like it. In fact, even casinos that are licensed and regulated by the state that aren't Indian casinos can change promos or cancel promos at any time. That's that's something they always have a right to do. So all they had to do is say, whoa, 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 hang on, we're changing this. Now it's only one, one per person. That would have solved it. Instead, they left it as is, apparently, and just kept kicking people. Every time someone showed up, They denied him, wouldn't pay the jackpot, and kicked him. Now, this wasn't from the very start. From what I'm hearing, uh, someone reported to me that they actually made decent money from this, that they were paid a number of times, 500, 500, 500, 500, and they did quite well. Then I was hearing that others were kicked on the first jackpot they hit and not paid the jackpot, but they could cash the tickets they had. And then I heard from others that they could not even cash the tickets they had which is really terrible. Though not paying the jackpot is also really terrible. They kicked a ton of people from here and stole a lot of money from people from the stories I've heard. Terrible. Especially since they could have just changed the terms 
and said one per person, and this would have stopped. Or at the very worst, you'd say at the very, very worst, what they could do is just refuse to honor it. Now, I think that's unethical too. But refuse to honor it, pay people their jackpot, and then throw them out. I'd still have a problem if that's what happened. But at least they're not stealing money directly from people. They're just refusing to honor a promo, which also sucks. But uh, to actually steal a rightfully won jackpot in a normal sh- machine, which is negative expectation, by the way. These, are, these people were not playing positive expectation machines. They were playing negative expectation machines because this promo was worth so much that the 500 they get extra, extra every time that they hit a jackpot was worth it. So these were jackpots won on negative expectation machines, and they would not pay them out. Just as a big middle finger to players who are trying to take advantage of this. And take advantage, by the way, I'm not saying in a bad way. So when saw a promo, they said, okay, here's the best way to play it. And like, like this guy wrote, like this guy wrote, this does not take a genius advantage player to figure out. All you have to do is think about it. Go, okay, well, they're paying $500 extra on each hand pay. Well, why don't I play higher so hand pays come more often? Anyone who gambles in casinos could think of that without very much thought. Caller, you're on the air. Jeff, what's yeah. doing? Yeah, hi, who's this? This floppy nut, the Flop. guy who took you out in the Super Bowl tournament. <laughs> which which Super Bowl tournament? The, uh, the one at uh, South Point. Uh, I, oh, okay, okay. You're talking about. There you uh, go. Oh, I know who you are now. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's right. It was that. Uh, that was a, a party, a Super Bowl party I went to, and it ended up uh, heads up between me and Floppy Nuts here, and and he beat me. It was. Uh, that's right. I, I was hoping to be the only bracelet winner on the premises there that I would I would be the winner. It was looking like I, I there was a good chance I was going to. Yeah, be, I was but. doing I was doing some fish shit too, man. Uh... <laughs> I thought I thought uh I thought the blacks were a hundred, but they were worth like a thousand or something. That's right. So like he, I was yeah, raising it, all kinds of wrong stuff. That's right. He was he was raising like funny amounts because he <laughs> didn't, he didn't understand what the chips were worth. So he still beat me somehow. But uh, but yeah, we at least we both cashed there. I got I got second place money. He got first place money. Uh, it's funny. I didn't even know he was going to be there. Like this guy, I talked to him some on texts back and forth over the years, and then just I'm at that party. He mentions that he's the guy I've been texting with, and that was uh, surprising. Anyway, uh, by the way, this this guy's a, a tall Asian too. This guy's like a, an Asian who's like my height. So anyway, Weird, uh, huh? so what what's going on, floppy nuts? Only, it's because I'm half. No, no, no. I was just I was just calling in. I, I was just not listening, but I figured I'd give a call first. First time call, you know. But uh, I, I, I just heard for like two seconds before you called, you were talking about the $500 promotion? Yeah, at, at the Agua Caliente, yeah. Oh, yeah, that was fun. That was fun. So so did you did you actually do it and get away with it? Because they they had, they had were banning yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you must have been on it early because they, they, they were eventually banning people and not only throwing them out, but they were not letting them cash out their jackpots even. Or in some people, some people apparently didn't even get to cash out their tickets they had before the jackpot. Oh, I don't know. The, the first week, the first week when they had it, I don't know which, I, I, I didn't listen to the radio today, but the first week when they had it, they were total gentlemen about it. They were, they, they shut off the machines after a while, after you got like uh, a bunch of the jackpot. But uh, 
they they didn't kick anybody out, and everybody got all their free play. So I don't, I don't know. Was this a recent development for like yes. the next couple of weeks? Yes, this is this is this is a few days ago. It changed, and that's when they got really hard line and, and started doing some nasty things. Uh, apparently, okay. And, yeah, and, I only want the first week. And the weirdest thing, as I was saying, was that they, despite knowing about all this, they left the, they and kicking all these people and stealing their jackpots. They left the promo up. And I, I know this because I looked. The, the promo was still up on their website, and they just took it down in the last two days because I looked two days ago. It was there on the website. <laughs> and then finally today I just looked during the show, and it's gone. No, you wouldn't know what's funny, though. The first week they had an entirely different set of rules than the, the, the following these following two weeks. They, they, uh, if you looked at the official rules for the first week, uh, it said no machines were excluded, you know, um, unlimited jackpots, and then the – that whole week after it got hit, it just said rules coming soon, and then they excluded a bunch of machines. But I guess there's still some stuff that was susceptible. Yeah, the guy who made the post on Poker Fraudler, he he went, he didn't go during the first week. He mentioned that uh, when he went to ask them the rules, they said he can't play video poker, so he went to high limit slots. But then they wouldn't pay him his jackpot. He claims that is weak. Yeah, that's anyway. That's... I was just calling to say, I was just calling to say hi. I'm uh, I'm just going to listen in now. So have okay. a good night. Okay. Uh, by the way, you you hadn't heard from anybody that uh, they didn't get paid. I know you were there the first week where the, I I heard people got no, paid the first, the first week, week too. The first week everybody got paid. That's what I heard also. That's what I heard also. But then uh, the people since then weren't getting paid. That's that's what I was told, and that's also what this guy posted on uh, the forum here. Yeah, yeah, I can I can corroborate that. That is uh, that is the first week everybody got paid. So. It was it was it was very nice, and there was no machines that were excluded until like a few hours. But, but what what did you so. hear from people that went the subsequent weeks, aside from the excluded machines? I'm sorry, what was that? On subsequent weeks, what did you hear from people who went there aside from the excluded machines? Oh, uh, you know, I didn't I didn't talk to anybody on the subsequent weeks. I looked at the rules and I saw what was excluded, and I, I figured there wasn't that much value, so I didn't I didn't even talk to anybody about that. Oh, okay. Yep, that's what I heard happen. So it's it's pretty sad. I, I almost the funny thing. I oh, almost man. went there. I almost went there during the subsequent weeks, but it was my recent bad experience at the Table Mountain. I said, you know what? I don't want to screw with it. So <laughs> I didn't do it. <laughs> yeah, the first week I couldn't believe my eyes. They they were just they were just constant. I think uh, between me and the wife, I think we got a uh, we got a uh, sixteen of those five hundred dollars certificates. Wow. So so you ended up winning money there. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's very good. Yeah, see, but when I heard about it, it was already after it had been done that first week, and I was I was just worried that this, this has been going on too long already, that they're going to clamp down, that I'm going to be the one that gets screwed. I just had that feeling, and I, I would have been. If I went down there, I would have been screwed. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds, like, <laughs> it sounds like anybody that went on subsequent weeks just got screwed. That's what it sounds like, yeah. All right, well, thanks for calling in. All right, well, yeah, nice talking to you. Bye. Yeah, this this is a uh, like a six-foot-two, half-Asian guy. Younger than me, I think he's around like I think he's like uh, late twenties or something. And he beat me heads up in a little uh, informal poker tournament we had there. It's, uh, I got second place money. I, I got paid. I just didn't get the first place money. And and this guy's an advantage player, as you might guess. And he got in there early. That's that's the thing in these promos. You've got to get in early because. If you don't, they're wise to it, and bad things can start happening. But watch out for these Indian casinos. You never know. They can do anything. They can do anything. And this one was pretty straightforward. This was not 
this is a little bit different than like someone finding a machine that's misset, that's a positive expectation, and people start hitting it, and then the casino realizes it, and, and they still have to pay you. I guess Indian casinos don't have to do anything, but they should still pay you. But it's a bit different there, where here this this one they just they published it on their own website in their promo section, and it was very straightforward. 500 free play every time you hit a hand pay jackpot. Like anyone could figure this out. That's what's so obnoxious about what they did. This doesn't require an advanced network of advantage players or, or amazing skill in uh, identifying advantage plays. This is something very simple that most casual gamblers who understand hand, play, hand pays and the fact that they happen at $1,200 could figure out. And if you're a casino gambler listening to the show, I'm sure you could have figured this out too. So this is very obnoxious. Now, again, just just to be clear, I don't have firsthand knowledge that this happened. This didn't happen to me, but I didn't witness it happening. But I believe the reports that have been told from multiple people. But if this didn't, if Agua Caliente gets word that uh, this show talked about it and this is not true, they're welcome to send me a correction and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll put out their side as well. And if it turns out this uh, bare necessities person or the people who've talked to me privately about this uh, are not telling the truth, then I will put the correction out and apologize. But I have a feeling it's true. I can't see why they, anyone would be making this up. Pretty bad. Pretty obnoxious. There's never a good reason to do this. Never. Um, uh, one more word about this before we move on. Some people believe advantage players to be cheaters. Some people may say, well, okay, well, this isn't what they meant. This is the people, these people who were showing up to play higher stakes to trigger a hand pay more often. This wasn't the spirit of the promotion. It's not up to the player to figure out the spirit of the promotion. If the player sees that the casino is running a promotion that is positive expectation and the player goes down to play that promotion, Totally legal and totally ethical. And if the casinos are that worried about this happening, they should not run promotions. Or they should run promotions that are very carefully researched that they cannot be turned around to become positive expectation. Just like if you go to a casino and don't understand how to play certain games and lose because of that, that is your fault. If you go play Deuces Wild video poker, but don't understand how that's different from Jacks or Better, and, and you lose a fortune because you don't understand Deuces Wild or what the strategy is for Deuces Wild. That is your fault. The casino doesn't owe you money back. The casino didn't do anything unethical by offering Deuces Wild. It is up to you to understand the way all these games work and to play them in the best strategy possible. And it is the casino's responsibility that if they run a promotion or if they offer a game, that if the game can be positive expectation for the player, or if the promotion can make the game's positive expectation, then it's important for the casino to analyze this and understand it, and to either discontinue it or not offer it if they don't like that. But stealing from the players who show up to hopefully win as a result of these promotions is very, very unethical. And should be illegal. What should happen here is that California 
needs to change the way that grievances are filed against casinos here. There need to be a set of rules that they have to adhere to, just like the Nevada Gaming Commission has for Nevada casinos, just like every gaming commission has in every state that has casinos that are regulated by the state. There needs to be the equivalent for Indian casinos with the punishments being fines and loss of license. That's what needs to be done. I think Indian gaming is kind of a farce in the first place. The people that it's intending to help aren't really helped very much. It's getting a very small percentage of the Native American population very rich, and the rest of them are still left in poverty. So this is not doing what it's intending to do. And it's been this way since it's been offered decades ago. But putting that aside, the players should not get screwed. And it's not just advantage players getting screwed by Indian tribes. There's there's all kinds of regular casual players who get screwed by Indian tribes all the time. I have no idea why the state is allowing this to be the situation. Probably because it's a headache for them otherwise. They don't feel like regulating these, so they just uh, let them self-regulate. And as long as the state gets their money, then they're happy. But it's wrong. There needs to be some protection. If they're going to only allow the Indian casinos to run these games in California, to run these casinos, if only Indians can run them, then the Indians still need to be regulated in some way. They can't be allowed to self-regulate. Self-regulating casinos are a disaster for obvious reasons. So be careful. Be careful. Just know every time you set foot into an Indian casino, especially one that's not huge, and especially one that is not affiliated with a large company like Caesars, they can screw you at any point if they want. And at some point, they very well might. You, This isn't like a fluke thing. I told a story on this show not too long ago about someone who won a car at a Southern California Indian casino and the casino pressured them to take some kind of much lower cash equivalent, telling them all the different problems. Oh, you're going to have to pay taxes on the retail value of this car and it's going to be so expensive to maintain. And they they tried to talk them out of taking it here, take this cash settlement for much lower. The person refused, the person refused and the casino was mad at them for refusing to take the much lower cash settlement instead of the car. So they, searched and searched for a reason to deny the person the entire prize. And they found one. They found that uh, at some point that person had let their sister play on their card. So they disqualified them from it and they wouldn't give it to them. Again, they're an Indian casino. They can do it. They can get away with it. This was not an advantage player. This was just a regular player. So these Indian casinos can screw you at any time. I'd recommend avoiding them if possible. And if not possible, at least stick to the ones that are affiliated with something very large like Caesars or MGM to where at least they have to adhere to standards set by those companies. Okay, moving on here. Uh, Here we go. Let's talk about the World Series. Talk about some bracelets. A lot of bracelets being given away this year, more than any other year. I think there's something like 80 events. And a lot of times the winners of the bracelets are either just randoms, people you've never heard of before, 
or newer players. Speaking of newer people, let's have a new entry to this show here, though he's here every week. Trader Risky, hello. What's happening, Druff? Sorry I'm late. No problem. You're here just in time for the World Series talk. So I heard, heard the topic come up. I thought that was going to be a good break to call in. That is a good break to call in. Thank you for not interrupting a topic. See, look, Trader Risky knows the etiquette of this show. I'm, I'm uh, very, very happy about that. So let's talk about probably the most interesting heads-up battle there has been at the World Series so far. That was a battle of multiple bracelet winners, a battle of two excellent players who are both very well-known in poker for many, many years. This is I kind of enjoy it when these veterans win bracelets or when, when they're in the running for bracelets. Uh, it, it just kind of reminds me of the old days and reminds me of some of these uh, older players here aren't completely getting run over by the, the 25, 30-year-olds these days. John Hennigan, also known as Johnny World, was up against Daniel Negranu for a bracelet. That was a pretty interesting battle right there, something that could have easily taken place uh, 20 years ago, but was taking place in 2019. Uh, This was at the 10K Stud Championship. Not a huge field. Uh, only 88 people entered this. And, and by the way, th- there's a reason that these guys enter events like 10K Stud. Not not that these guys can't play Stud. Like John Hennigan, great Stud player. The reason he's called Johnny World, by the way, is because he was considered by his peers to be one of the few poker players who is very good at all the games. That's what the, where the world comes from. That he doesn't have a lot of weaknesses in forms of poker. That's why he's called Johnny World by many people. So he and Negranu got down to the final two. It was only 88 people entering this event. And, of course, with 88 people in the event, your chance of winning a bracelet is much higher. Even if the field's pretty tough, it's much easier to win an 88-person event than it is to win a 28,000-person event. The 28,000-person event, the Big 50, that had a lot of amateurs... A lot of recreational players, a lot of players who are not very good, but you still have to beat 28,000 of them. Much easier to beat a small number of good players than a gigantic number of mixed-skill players. Even 28,000 bad players would be a lot harder to beat than 87 good ones. And by the way, they're not all good in this event. It's not 88 great stud players. It's uh, a lot of very good stud players, and, and then some people who aren't very good at stud that play anyway. Uh, So anyway, 10K7 card stud. Stud has been a dying game over the years. Stud was already dying when Limit Hold'em was thriving. That shows you how much stud must be dying because that was the dying game when Limit Hold'em was was rising, which is also now a dying game, much uh, to my chagrin. So they... They played. Uh, not a gigantic first-place prize for this one. It was a 10K event, but the first place is only 245 k Nice to win, but uh, when the entry is 10K, then that's not a tremendous first prize. John Hennigan may seem like a pretty old guy by this point because he's been around so long, but he's not. He's only 48. He's only a year, old, a year older than me. And he's from Philadelphia, did most of his play in the Atlantic City area. And he won his sixth bracelet 
uh, he said this after after winning. It's fun to be here. It's just an incredible feeling to play a tournament and go deep, and then and then not to have to, not have to lose it. it. It's more important than winning it. It seems like I feel bad for Daniel right now, even though obviously he's had a ton of success. I played a very good tournament up to that point, but I really needed luck there when I got to heads up. He played great the whole time. I believe he did as well. He, I believe he did as well, but he clearly had me without had me without the luck. That's how it goes. So he was actually being gracious here, saying that Daniel would have beaten him if it wasn't for luck. Daniel actually had a three to one chip lead at one point, but did did not win. If it seems like Daniel Negreanu has been finishing second at the World Series a lot lately, it's because he has. In fact, Negreanu posted on Twitter, and this is what I'll give Negreanu credit for, is that he's always forthright with his tournament failures. Even with all the success he's had, he's, he's honest when he's not doing well or when it appears he's doing well and he's actually losing. Like this year at the World Series, he's made a final table already. I think two final tables and cashed eight times, but he's actually down money. He's down like 36K, I think, right now, at least as of yesterday, at the World Series of Poker. So it's funny. You look at his results this year and go, oh, he's cashed eight times. He's, he's cashed six figures total he, in, in this year at the World Series since you know since it began in late May. He, he has two final tables. Wow, Daniel's kicking ass again. Nope, he's down $36,000 because he plays so much in so many big events. And that shows you that sometimes everything isn't what it appears to be at the World Series of Poker. But Daniel has not done well at the World Series of Poker heads up. He posted on his Twitter that I believe he is now 5-10 and 10 in heads-up matches at the World Series of Poker. Five wins, ten losses. I think that's what he is. Let me see if I can find this on his Twitter. If he's not that, it's very close to that. But I think he's five and ten now with that loss heads-up. It's been a few years since he won a bracelet, too. So, this is, uh, yeah, he's actually, no, he's, he's six and nine. He's not five and ten. Phil Helmuth is the only one who has also lost nine times at the World Series of Poker. Or he's lost ten times. He's lost ten times at the World Series of Poker. Only one who's lost more than Daniel. But Phil has won 14 times. So Phil is 14 and 10 heads up. Daniel is 6 and 9. So Phil's record's much better. Daniel has lost to these nine people. He lost to Phil Helmuth himself in No Limit Hold'em. He lost to Mike Matisau in Omaha 8 or better. He lost to Barry Shulman in No Limit Hold'em. He lost to Brock Parker in Limit Hold'em. He lost to Dan Coleman in No Limit Hold'em. He lost to Abe Mosseri in 08. He lost to Paul Volpe at Deuce to 7 triple, a single draw. He lost to Ellie Lezra in Deuce to 7 triple draw. And he lost just recently to John Hennigan at stud. So... As good as Daniel Negreanu is, he has not been able to close out heads up very well. It's a certain feeling that you have when you get heads up for a bracelet that is hard to describe until you've actually experienced it. This is something I experienced very quickly in my World Series of Poker career. In my second tournament ever, 
I was heads up for a bracelet. My first tournament ever, I was three-handed for a bracelet. Seemed like I was always in the running for a bracelet until until my third tournament, and then it stopped happening like that. When I was heads up for the bracelet, I came in with a 60% to 40% chip lead, immediately won, had the guy on the ropes for a long time, but then he started to charge back and at one point got back to about 2-1. to one. I was ahead of him 2-1, to one, but I had him down like you know, 85 to 15 percent, 90 to 10 percent, and I couldn't close it out. When he got back to two to one, and then we go to a break, I, I really thought I was going to choke, and it was really, really bothersome to me. And I, I knew I was going to still walk away with 179,000. I knew I was going to, at worst, I was going to walk away with a second place finish after a third place finish in my first two events ever. On the surface, that sounds great, but it just would have been so devastating to have this happen, especially with that kind of lead. But two to one at that point wasn't a huge lead, and the blinds got bigger, and I was so afraid that I was going to chunk it off, that I was going to choke, that I was going to lose. And I went away for 15 minutes on that break and wouldn't talk to anyone. I told my then-girlfriend who was watching. I told my friends who were watching. I told them, stay away from me. I told them politely, but I said, I want to be by myself. And I walked off to the a corner of the Rio where nobody was, and I hid for 15 minutes. And fortunately, I came back and ran well. And it was over in 10 minutes. In my favor. But there's always someone that loses. But it's it's more painful to lose when you had a big lead. So Negrani was up 3-1 to in chips and lost. It's a little less painful when you already have multiple bracelets. So Negrani already had five bracelets. Or he already six bracelets. He was going for a seventh. Uh, and three to one is not a huge chip lead. Though, no, it's right? not huge. It's not like eight to one or something. Right. Then you're just sick. Right. Well, three to one's almost probably even. You know. Well, one... yeah. I mean, I see. I, right. It's not a huge lead. Uh, it's it's a good lead though. I, now I had the guy down nine to one at one point, and that's why when he got back to two to one, I was really panicking. But uh, um, yeah, I, I know three to one is not insurmountable by any means. Uh, but still, you, you're up three to one. You think you're going to get it, and then you don't. That's what that's what Hannigan was saying regarding the luck. Is that he realized when he was down three to one that he needed luck to win at that point, and he got it. And I think he's just being gracious too. And he uh, Hennigan is a pretty nice guy. He's, he's pretty soft spoken. He's pretty. Uh, he he doesn't project arrogance. And I don't have much experience with him, but when I've played with him, that's that's what I've seen from him. He actually put a really bad beat to knock me out of the 10k limit hold'em. Last uh, last year, I was short stacked. It wasn't like a no limit hand, but uh, uh, still, I would have been right back in it had I won that hand. And I took a bad beat against him to be knocked out, and uh, you know he was very gracious about it. But uh, you know he was just being a nice guy here and praising Daniel, even saying that Daniel deserved to win pretty much, and that the luck carried him over the top. Uh, so Daniel, yeah, he has six bracelets and not winning heads up for your seventh is less of a big deal than uh, not winning heads up for your first or your second. But still, it hurts, especially Daniel. Uh, you know, he's trying to get a lot of bracelets. He's trying to catch Phil and the other people who are way ahead of him. And he's playing a, a crazy tournament schedule. And when you get that far, and he, he's had a lot of second place finishes in, in recent years. And it's got to be demoralizing, especially to know you're, you're now six and nine heads up, which isn't the best record. 
So that happened, and people were saying, well, at least Daniel lost to someone really good. It's not like he was playing a fish and, uh, and lost that heads up. He lost against an excellent player. So I, I know if I was playing heads up in a, a 10K event, uh, Johnny World wouldn't be my choice of opponent that I'd want to be up against. But that's who Daniel got, and he ended up not winning. So that's... I'll give Daniel credit again, though, that shortly after this, he he actually put up the list of people who've beaten him heads up and mentioned he's six and nine heads up. He doesn't have to highlight these things. I wouldn't have known he's six and nine. I've, I've known he's gotten a lot of seconds recently, but I didn't know he was six and nine heads up in, until he posted this. I didn't know he's down this year. I thought he was doing fairly well this World Series. I didn't know he's down. He's down? Didn't he have, like, another top three? How is that possible? Was he? He's down. He put, this, he put this in his event. At least he's entering big events. Yeah. Wow. Because what was the, didn't he, an early one, he got uh, top three, I think, didn't he? Yeah, he got, well, he got 52, uh, he, got, he he's top six, and he got 52,000. Oh, got it. So there goes the 50K buy, and that's a wash. Right, right. So, so uh, it, he's played a lot of big events already, so that, yeah, that's why he's down like 36. Like, like he, pay, he he played, I think, in one day the other day, 35K worth of events. A 25K and a 10K didn't cash either. So th- th- it can go very fast. Uh, th- this is what he's done this year. He's He's gotten sixth for 52K at the uh, 10K Super Turbo Bounty, which was basically the first event. Then he had uh, small caches at the 600 Deep Stack, the 1500 uh, No Limit uh, Low Ball Draw, the PLO Deep Stack, the no limit hold'em six handed for three K and the one K double stack. These were all like three figure or four figure caches. And also the uh, online event, he also the online no limit bounty event, he got uh, sixteen fifty two cash. So these are all s- small caches and then he got this big one for uh one fifty one K. But still, despite that, he's still down. So okay, good for him for being Forthright with this, he put this at the end of each vlog of what he is at the moment. And I don't know any other player that does this. And this is why I have a mixed opinion on Negreanu. I respect him for this. And I respect him for various other things. I respect him for the way he interacts with fans. Even even his haters admit that he's very good with the fans. I respect him for not being part of any kind of uh, scandal as far as uh, ripping anyone off. Or anything like that. He's he's never been in, involved in any shenanigans like that. He he's never uh, he he didn't do things. That he yes, he was the rep of Poker Stars when they pulled Supernova Elite shenanigans, but he didn't rep things like Ultimate Better Full Tilt. Right, and early on, he knew Howard Letter and all them were scumbags and didn't go in. He needs definitely to get props for that. Yeah. So there's right. So there's there's a lot of things that can be said about him that are positive both in the past and present. and and But then he, he also has done and said stu- stupid things. And sometimes he, he acts inappropriately on Twitter, especially for somebody who is in the position he is. And uh, and he didn't handle all, all the poker star stuff very well with, with all the, the things that they did in recent years. So a lot of the criticisms of him are valid. Uh, but uh, at the same time, there are some good things about him, which are also valid. And I, I, I'm one of the few, I think, who, who sees all this. I, I, I seem to run into people who either think he's great, he's a wonderful guy, 
and you know everything being said about him is just haters going after him, and he hasn't done anything wrong, and, or, or people who just just act like he's like the worst person in poker. And I agree with neither side on that. Well, and he could be putting that up too, Jeff, because he did. He, even after the whole fiasco with the thing, he still sold what he was going to sell, right? Right. So I guess he has to put that up. Uh, yeah, for the packages, true. That's, that's true. I didn't think of that, but but still, he he's always been, in, at least in recent years, forthright about uh, when it appears he's winning, he'll reveal. Actually, I'm down this year. Like he'll he'll say that when nobody else would have any knowledge that he is, and in fact, it would appear that he's doing great. So that's most people would not do that, and I'll give him credit there. So that, that was. And you, and by the way, Draft, do you think eight 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 will pick him up since the, when they come to Vegas? I don't know. See, I, this is what I wonder. Uh, first of all, eight eight eight. Other than those sites at the the legalized sites that are not really doing that well in any state right now, you also can't play on them in the U.S. So I just don't know how much he's worth to non-U.S. markets. And, and second, I do wonder at this point how much he is worth given that his reputation has been harmed somewhat by all the Twitter battles and all the, the Doug, the Doug Polk taunting about more rake is better. If, if a lot of players believe him now to be a shill who will say whatever he's told to say and just kind of betrayed the poker community, whether, whether this is true or not, that that's the narrative that's been put out and successfully pushed by Doug Polk. Like you'll, I see on Facebook, like when his master classes being advertised, you'll see like 600 comments saying more rake is better and things like that. So it, it definitely got out there very effectively. And I have to imagine that some site should be aware at this point that it could be a, I wouldn't say a negative, but not as positive to have him as the face of the site as it used to be. So I do but wonder. I think, but I think for the people he's targeting, that they're targeting as players, don't you think it's overwhelmingly positive? It's hard to tell because, like, Doug Polk has a very big following. Like, his his videos get a lot of views for poker videos. His poker videos are never going to get the, the millions of views like, like certain other uh, uh, subjects will. But as far as poker videos, there's a lot of people who watch Doug Polk, like, very quickly. Like, every time he releases a video, you see it, like, jumps up to, like, you know, 40,000 views very quickly. So given that there are not that many poker players out there, like, the fact that that many people watch Doug Polk shows that I think a lot of people who aren't even like forum readers or, or people who really follow poker closely kind of have the impression now that Negreanu is just a shill and someone who's, who screws fellow poker players. I think that narrative has gotten out there more than people realize, uh, whether deserved or not. And, I, I, and also they see that he's constantly fighting on Twitter with people and with other pros and that uh, he pushes you know, his politics on people and his views on veganism on other people. And I know this, this – I heard that this is kind of even pissing off poker stars to some degree, that they didn't like him doing this. So I don't know if his value is as high as it once was. I, I know he still has value, but uh, the problem is sites that don't offer games to Americans, they don't want to pay a lot for him. So I'm not sure who's going to sign him next and when. I guess we'll see. That's, that's at least the way I view it. Let's see here. So that's that's the that was uh, Negreanu's uh, battle. There were some other notable bracelet wins that I just want to touch on quickly. Adam Friedman did something pretty impressive. He won the same event that he did in 2018. That's not easy to do. <laughs> uh, 
come right back and win the same one that you did before. Now, this was a 10K event again, so that's, again, easier than winning like a 1500 event where there's a much bigger field. But Friedman was first known to the poker public for something not very good. And that was for crying on TV when something didn't go his way. But he's he's grown up since then. Uh, he has a, uh, There's a lot of respect that people have for him now, at least as a player. He's not known as the crier anymore. And this year, he beat Sean Deeb heads up, another tough opponent, obviously, to win the 10K Dealer's Choice Championship. Some of you may not know what the Dealer's Choice is. I once heard someone ask, why would someone want to play the Dealer's Choice? I don't want the dealer telling me the game I have to play. <laughs> well, what Dealer's Choice really is, is that uh, whenever you have the dealer button in front of you, you get to pick the game you're going to play. And then, so the games are just constantly changing with every person that typically is going to pick their strongest game. Some people that have a game that's much stronger than others will just pick the same game every time. I've thought about what I would do on a Dealer's Choice event, and I probably would pick just like Limit Hold'em every time. The only way I wouldn't do that, I think, is if the other players at the table were pretty good at Limit Hold'em, then I'd probably go to 08. But uh, it's to your advantage to keep picking your strongest game, especially if others at the table aren't as good at it. So he had won this last is it, year. Is it a full round, Truff? Sorry. Is it a, it's a full round, right? What do you mean? When you choose the game, they play a full round of it, and then goes to the next person. Um, well, how, how, would it, how would that work? I believe it... Uh, well, like, in other words, it doesn't change every time the person has the dealer button. So each hand is a new game. It changes... The de- well, the person... Seed one has the dealer button. They call Limit Hold'em. They play one full round of Limit Hold'em. Oh, it goes to the next way. Two, oh, right? yeah, it's funny. Right? I, I don't know. I've never played one of these. I always assume just the button chooses it and they just switch it. But maybe you're right. Maybe it is a full right, round. Right, because if it is the button, then you want to play probably some, hold them something because I think that's the best. I mean, you want to have the having the button and limit or no, even no limit is I don't know. Maybe some of the chat room. Like I've, I've never played a, a dealer's choice event. That's a good question. I had always thought it was just on the button that, that whoever's on it gets the button, and the next time they choose it, I I didn't think it was a full round because the button's going to come back to you. you can keep, the, so you're saying the button comes back to them, and then they uh, like. Well, the, I think it would have to be a full round. I mean, because every hand they're going to be playing a different game. I yeah, just think that would be, be crazy. But maybe that's 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 what I always thought it was. I've never played one, so now you're making me doubt myself. I'd always thought, never having played one. That uh, that it's just whoever's on the button chooses the game, and yes, it can just keep going all over the place. Uh, there was yeah, also I, I just I just I guess I always thought it was kind of like horse or whatever. No, that's easier to do backs. because it's not it's not one person choosing it here because the person choosing if you played a full round it would come right back to them, but they'd be the one choosing it again. That wouldn't make any sense. Well, unless right, unless they just keep giving the choice button to the next person, next person, next person yeah. after the full round. But who knows? I don't see anyone saying in the chat. I guess they haven't played it either. Okay, so in this this uh, table, this final table was uh, pretty tough. 
Adam Friedman was the winner. Sean Deeb, second place. Third place, uh, someone who definitely could answer this for us, but he listens in the archive, so he probably will answer this for me later and probably uh, call me a noob for not knowing for sure that it's just the button choosing it and changing every hand. Uh, Matt Glantz, a listener to the show, 139K. He cashed there, so congratulations to Matt. David Moskowitz, I don't know who he is. Fourth place, 100K. Michael McKenna, fifth place. I'll talk about him in a second, uh, 72K. And Nick Shulman. Yes, the Nick Shulman that you think it is, 52K. Michael McKenna used to be known as Mad Caddy online, and he vanished from poker after 2011. And this guy was a, a big gambler. He bet huge on sports. I mean, there were rumors that this guy was betting uh, insane amounts of money on sports at one point. And this guy was winning and losing large sums of money very quickly when he was younger in the 2000s. He vanished from poker around 2011. And I thought he was gone for good. I just thought this was a guy who had a gambling problem and it caught up with him and he was gone. And maybe that is what happened, but he reappeared last year. He uh, finished second in the 10K08. He, he made another final table in Raz. Uh, he and Sean Deeb don't like each other. And from what I heard, he and Sean Deeb were uh, kind of sniping at each other at the table. I'm not sure what history they have, but uh, Deeb uh, doesn't like him. Uh, without getting into it... Uh, Michael McKenna screwed someone that I know. And the, the person asked me not to uh, really go forward with it. So that's why that's why I haven't mentioned this anywhere. I always give the respect to whoever the person is that uh, is the victim in something or the alleged victim in something that uh, if they don't want me making a big deal of it, then I won't because it's them who lost the money. And not me. So, uh, you know, if I'm... Unless I think it's something for the public good. This was something that was from a long time ago. This is a a story back from uh, 11 years ago. And last year I was told not to really go forward with this, with pressing it. So I didn't. But uh, let me just say I can understand why Sean D. would not like him. Michael McKenna. Who, prior to me hearing about this thing that with a guy I know uh, other than just thinking the guy was kind of a degenerate I didn't have any issue with Mike McKenna in fact I had even he was once friends with Neverwin and uh, (laughs) this is a weird story but I might as well tell it Uh, back in the 2000s I think around 08 or 09 uh, I was over at Neverwin's house in Las Vegas Brandon called it the House of Horrors at one point. This is when Neverwin was kind of on his uh, tailspin downward in a lot of ways. And uh, Neverwin had this uh, very shady girlfriend who eventually went to jail for drug-related offenses in Australia. And this girl also, she did a lot of screwed-up things. This is an Asian girl. And I saw she and Neverwin got in a fight while I was over at his house and Mike McKenna was over there too. And they were kind of like, she started getting kind of physical with Neverwin and he was trying to push her away and not let it get to that, but she just kept coming at him. So 
something like he threw her down to the ground. But this is after she just kept attacking him. This is kind of like a self-defense thing. He wasn't like beating his girlfriend. Don't don't get me wrong here. Like she was, she just kept attacking him over and over, and finally couldn't stand it. And like they threw her to the ground. Anyway, she grabbed a knife and started coming after him. I'm like, I can't believe I'm here watching this. Like, what do I do now? Like I'm watching this girl with a knife <laughs> coming after Neverwin. <laughs> Like, like, do I get involved? Do I do anything here? So anyway, me and Mike both kind of had the same thoughts, and we were both uh, telling her to stop. Like, whoa, 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 stop this. And we approached her cautiously and, and, and took the knife from her. I didn't want to just jump into the fray or I'd get stabbed there, but uh, uh, we kind of cautiously approached her and, and got the knife away from her and then separated them and said, this is getting out of control. And then... Uh, Last I saw, she was sitting outside of the house on the curb, like calling someone to come get her. And then I left. This was too much for me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, me, me and uh, Mike McKenna actually uh, took a knife away from a girl trying to stab Neverwin. That, that's, that's the type of stuff that I found myself in, in the weird decade that was the 2000s. But uh, so back then, like me and him got along fine. And then I, I had heard about the thing with one of my other friends who uh, Mike owed money to, and let's just say that kind of changed my opinion. So I don't know what his issue is with Sean Deeb, or I guess Sean Deeb's issue with him, but whatever it was, uh, I have to think there's a good chance Sean Deeb is right, even not knowing anything about it. And I even asked Sean Deeb privately after I heard about this, a few days ago, I asked Sean Deeb if this is true, what I heard, and he said, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, he, Sean didn't tell me what the situation was, but uh, you know, me and Sean Deeb are not friends by any means. Sean Deeb does not like me very much. But he just, Sean Deeb doesn't like me dating back to something on this show six years ago, which I won't get into now. He doesn't, like, hate me as a person. He just doesn't like something involving him on this show. So, like, we're civil enough at this point to exchange messages on Twitter, but uh, I'm not his favorite person either. But anyway, he he loves me compared to Mike McKenna, from what I hear. <laughs> Mike McKenna's a good player, but as I said, I, I can understand why Sean Deeb doesn't like the guy. He finished fifth. Uh, another interesting uh, bracelet won. Mike Mizraki won his fifth bracelet. So a lot of names you've heard about, right? A lot of these guys who've been successful for many years or many years ago or continue to be successful. Mike Mizraki won another bracelet. Uh, this was in 1500 stud high low. This one is actually a little tougher to win because it's 460 players. So yes, the field was weaker. And yes, the final table was probably not as strong. But he had to beat more players. Miss Rocky beat a final table of Robert Gray, Michael Sopko, Elias Hurani, Jan Stein and Jose Paz Gutierrez. I don't know any of these people. It's probably an easier table than uh, what Adam Friedman had to beat. But still, 
he had to get there with all these people. And a fifteen hundred event, you don't you don't start with that many chips, so you've got yeah, you know, you've got to do well, continue doing well. It's it can be hard to win these. So fifth bracelet for Mike Mizraki. He's not even known really as a stud player. Uh, he he plays a lot of games well though. You've seen how he's won that uh, poker players championship twice. So this is he really is a great tournament player. He just has a great feel for tournament poker, and that's where he found success. He's not really a cash player. I don't think he really has the right mindset for cash. But in tournaments, he he really has a good style, a good strategy. He's he knows what to do. A lot of people think because Mike Mizraki is kind of a reckless spender and someone who's been known to have a lot of financial problems that you'd picture someone like him as being a maniac at the table, but he's not. Sometimes he's the opposite. Sometimes he's actually, he seems like surprisingly passive. But it's actually, when he is passive, it's actually smart passivity. He's actually being passive in certain spots for a reason. He just has a very good feeling for when to put chips in and when not to put chips in. And I've played with him a number of times, and I've actually been surprised at how good his feel is for that. At times, you totally expect him to turn on the aggression, given his stack or, or given what hand he has, and then he does, and you go, what the hell? Is, is, is Ms. Rocky a passive fish? And then it turns out he was right. It turns out he was behind. And you go, okay, wow. So the guy's obviously had uh, a lot of success tournament-wise, continues to have success. Wins tough events, and maybe not the best money manager, maybe not the best at figuring out which companies he should be uh, putting his name with. Pretty much any shady organization that wants to pay him money to represent them, he will do. But he is a very good tournament player, and he actually does have a big heart. Those that uh, are friendly with him, he's been very generous with. I've known him some people that uh, he's really helped out a lot that uh, they've been close with him. Ones who don't do as well in poker as he does. I just wish he would put some more thought into these sites and say, hey, Mike, we'll pay you such and such. Can you be the face of our site? Okay, sure. Where do I sign? That, that's basically how it goes with him. He doesn't say, okay, tell us about your business model. How long have you been around? How do I know you're not going to screw players? You know, can you tell me some more about your business? I want to make sure if this is something I want to be associated with. Instead, it's like, yeah, okay. Deal's done. So, Mike, did you want to know? No, 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 that's right. Yep. If you're going to pay me, yep, I'll sign. Where do I sign? Pay me now. Like, that's, a, that's pretty much what he does. And that's a flaw. That's uh, something he shouldn't be doing. It's, it's done some harm. He, he hasn't meant it to do harm, but, it, but it's done some harm. And that's the truth. And he's done it multiple times. It, it's more out of just kind of ignorance, willful ignorance, but kind of ignorance of the whole thing that you shouldn't do things like that when you're in a position like him. But he does. And part of it is because he's not good at managing money and he a lot of times needs the money. This is someone who really should have a lot of money. Even with all the expense and variance in tournaments, this is someone who's definitely up playing tournaments but he's often broke because he does not manage his money well. 
and I've watched some of it right in front of my eyes. He is someone who is a lot nicer than he looks. He kind of has a look to him like he's arrogant. He's not at all. Soft-spoken and nice. But he is someone who doesn't manage money well or choose companies to work with very well. Moving on to the next notable bracelet. Greg Mueller. He won another bracelet. It was his third. Mueller won two bracelets in uh, the same year and then had a 10-year bracelet drought, something I can relate to because I almost won two bracelets in a year and I've had a 14-year bracelet drought, which isn't over yet. In 2009, he won two limit hold'em bracelets. The 10K Limit Hold'em and the 1500 Limit Hold'em Shootout. In 2019, he won the 10K Horse. Greg Mueller is known to most people by the nickname FBT, standing for Full Blown Tilt. He claimed that was his online nickname. I think that was his nickname on Full Tilt Poker itself, but that was not the online poker name that I knew him under. That was not what he played under on Poker Stars, at least initially. He played on Poker Stars initially under the name Mr. Lashapal, and I don't know what that even means. I don't know what that was in reference to, Mr. Lashapal. But that was the name he played under, and I played a lot of Limit Hold'em with this Mr. Lashapal, who loved to talk a lot of shit in the chat, as did I. So me and Mr. Lashapal at the time, in 2003-2004, both of us were not known, were not connected in real life between our online names and our real life names. He, we both played at Commerce a lot, but we both didn't say who we were online. So I had no idea who this Mr. Lashapal was. He didn't know who I was. He didn't know who Dandruff was. Nobody knew who Dandruff was. We talked a lot of shit back and forth in the Poker Stars games. Well, eventually uh, he revealed who he was, and eventually we met in person at Commerce. And we'd met before, but just in the games, but we talked at Commerce after he revealed who he was, and uh, we laughed about the shit we talked online, and that was that, and there was no hard feelings, and uh, after that point we got along. Over the years, the story morphed in his head to be something that didn't really happen. The way Greg Mueller believes it now, and I know this because he's, he's said this before at the table when I've played with him since. The way he believes the story went now was that we were talking shit online back and forth, and that part was true, but that I started threatening to kick his ass. And that I'd been threatening to beat him up, not knowing who he was, and that when I finally met him in person and saw that he was like this uh, six foot four former hockey player, that I was afraid. And at that point, I, I was uh, very scared because I'd been threatening this big guy. Well, that, that didn't happen at all. Now, you guys, a lot of you have seen me playing online back in the day on Poker Stars, and I talked a lot of shit. One thing you never saw me doing was threatening anyone. I never threatened to beat anybody up. Never. No matter how heated some of the chats got, I never made any kind of physical threats against anybody, even before I was known. 
even before I, I knew that one day dandruff would be known. I, that was just something I never did. That's just never been me. I've never been a violent person or one who, one who even threatens violence. So that never happened. There was never any kind of physical threat there. So by the time I met him, he had already told me who he was. I already knew who he was. There was no surprise. It wasn't like, oh, wow, this is Greg Mueller. He's, he's the Mr. Lash Apollo. Well, now I'm scared. It wasn't like that. He told me who he was. Eventually, we got along better on Poker Stars. He told me who he was, and we met in person and laughed about the shit we talked at one point. That, that's all it was. There was never any threats. But one time I'm, I'm playing a cash game at Commerce many years later, and he tells everyone at the table that me and him used to talk a lot of shit on Poker Stars, and I had threatened him, and then when I met him, I was scared. And then Jesse Martin was sitting at the table too, and he said, oh, yeah, this guy did that too. Both of these guys, they used to talk shit to me and threaten me all the time, and then I, you know, they both met me, and they're like, oh, you know, never mind. That never happened. I don't believe it happened with Jesse either. I've never seen Jesse talk shit like that. I've never seen Jesse threaten anybody. Now, he and Jesse are actually good friends now. But he mentioned at, at one point that you know, when we were playing a commerce that, that both of us had done this to him and were scared when we met him in person. I think he just likes the idea of, of people meeting him in person and being scared after talking shit online. That's what I think. I think he morphed the story in his own head. Doesn't even realize it. Uh, aside from that, though, he's he's been pretty nice and I've played with him in person. We've always gotten along. And uh, he was sitting next to me at the final table, the last final table I made six years ago at the uh, 2013 5K Limit Hold'em event. He went out seventh. I went out fifth. Uh, when he sees me around the Rio or anywhere else he plays, Bellagio, Commerce, he always says hello to me. Uh, this is someone who I, I, I classify as a friendly acquaintance. Someone who I've gotten along with well and don't have really anything bad to say about. Uh, he, he does have an interesting backstory. Wikipedia claims that he was born in Switzerland, which I, I didn't even know until today when I looked this up. I had always thought he was born in Canada because uh, that's where he lived. He lived in Whitehorse, Canada, which is that's it's in the Yukon Territory. It's it's really in the middle of nowhere. It's a small town in the middle of nowhere, kind of by Alaska. I don't know how long he lived in Whitehorse, but that's where he was when he was playing on Poker Stars the first time. I remember seeing Mr. Lashapal from Whitehorse. The story he told me about his hockey career was that he was a minor league hockey player and that uh, he was on the way to making it to the NHL, that he was doing very well in the minor leagues in hockey and that it was just a matter of time until he was promoted to the NHL. And he told me that his mom died unexpectedly and this threw him into a severe depression. And the depression basically ruined his hockey career that it ruined his hockey game and he wasn't the same anymore and and he had to end his hockey career because he's he was no longer improving in fact he was going the other way and it all started from his his mom's death which you know if it's true is very sad of course it always hurts to lose your mom especially at a young age uh it, it says here on wikipedia that his hockey career ended in 1999 he was born in 1971, would have made him uh, only 28 when his hockey career was over. So that meant he must have lost his mom in his 20s, which must have been very tough. And if it really did ruin his hockey career, too, then that's uh, even worse. 
fortunately, he has had a successful poker career since then. The 10K limit hold'em bracelet he won was broadcast on ESPN 360, which is now known as ESPN3. It was an internet-only ESPN channel. Trader Risky, do you have any idea who was broadcasting on ESPN 360 when Mueller won that final hand to win his bracelet? I think Todd Todd Dandruff would tell us. That's who it was. The the announcer of that bracelet was me. I was the color commentator and the actual announcer of that bracelet win. And... I remember being happy for him. Uh, he put a horrible beat on Chad Brown. Not, not, I shouldn't say a beat, a cooler. A horrible cooler on Chad Brown. Chad Brown, who at that point had not seen any signs of the cancer that would kill him not too long from then. But I, he looked pretty healthy at that point. If he, if he did have cancer, I didn't know it then. And he didn't look like he did. But Chad Brown made the ace-high flush on an unpaired board. you think he'd be golden, right? Except there was a straight flush possibility out there at the final table. And Mueller had it. So they went five bets, and Chad Brown couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe as he called that fifth bet. He said, oh, I can't believe it. <laughs> if you really have this, and he called, and yep, Mueller had it. And that was the turning point. Brown was uh, the chip leader prior to that. But there was a huge pot, and the blinds are very big in limit hold'em and a hand like that goes down and you're going to lose a lot of chips and that just propelled Mueller to start winning hand after hand after hand and he ended up being the winner and Chad Brown I think finished in fifth I think that was the that was the first bracelet he won and then the second one 11 days later at the limit hold'em shootout was the next one he got, and then he went 10 years. Uh, one thing I laughed at, remember, he's born in 1971. He's 48 years old, Greg Mueller. In 2013, when we were at our final table, you know, we were you, you always had to fill out these papers at the final table about yourself so the announcers can describe you properly, and also when they write up articles about you that they can refer to things there. So they know about you. So when they were announcing everybody at the final table, so they get to my seat and they say, oh, this is Todd Wittellis, who is a professional poker player from Las Vegas, Nevada, and he's uh, and he is 41 years old. He won a bracelet in 2005 at 3,000 limit hold'em, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, they read all that out. Then they get to Greg Mueller. Greg Miller, who's a double bracelet winner from 2009, a 33-year-old poker pro from Las Vegas, Nevada. (laughs) 33. Let's see. 2013 minus 1971. I think that's 42, isn't it? Not 33. Not close to 33. Yeah, he said he was 33 when he was 42. (laughs) So I, I I said, what? 33? As soon as they said 33, I go, 33? I said, did I hear that right? 33? He's like, uh, I'm ageless. I go, you said you're 33? I can't believe you said you're 33. 
So the reason he was saying he's 33 is I think at that point he was still hoping to get sponsorships. And he didn't want to be 42 yet. He was 42. He just didn't want them to know he's 42 because it makes him more appealing for sponsors if he's 33. He didn't say that to me, but I'm sure that's what that was about. So I thought that was funny. He, he didn't look 33 either. In 2013, go look at old pictures of Greg Mueller from 2013. I'm not saying he's a bad-looking guy. I'm just saying he didn't look 33. He was 42, and he, he looked around there. Definitely not 33. <laughs> so, I knew he was very close to my age. I, I didn't know exactly. I looked it up afterwards. But uh, I knew he was very close to my age. I knew 33 was way off because I was 41 then, and I put the truth. He put 33. I wonder what he put this time. I hope he wasn't 33 again now that he's 48. You can see the picture of him in 2009 when he won uh, one of the two bracelets. You can go to Wikipedia. You can see the picture of him in 2009 when he was 38. He didn't look 33. Come on. So he won a bracelet. By the way, from the 480, they said... Uh, in the WSOP, it does appear that Trader Ruski is correct. It's one orbit then passes to the next person to choose. I didn't know that. Hmm. Guess i got to learn these things if I'm going to play something like Dealer's Choice eventually. Uh, by the way, I do plan in 2020. That's my poker New Year's resolution. In 2020, I'm going to start playing even more games at the World Series of Poker. I've already expanded from just Hold'em to now Hold'em in 08. Oh, not so. Hold them and various forms of Omaha. Next, it's going to be uh, Hold them Omaha and and many other games. You'll see. It's going to start next year. Uh, someone texted me that uh, Barry Shulman got second in the Super Seniors yesterday. I didn't know that. Uh, someone says I, I, I. Someone texted. I really enjoy the chat on your free roll. I miss the chat feature on ignition. Yeah, I do too. In fact, I've been playing on ignition lately, and there's been some hands that are like really interesting hands, or, or some kind of bad beat goes down either way. Either I, I give it or I take it, and I even miss the chat that people would select from the pre-selected boxes, like ha 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 ha, or nice hand, or. A lot of sarcastic nice hands and things like that. Like Even that was kind of funny. Now no one even does that because everyone has the chat window closed because that's the only way to play Ignition without the everything being tiny. You have to close all that side stuff. Like Trader Risky, on Ignition, do you have any of that stuff on the side open or is it just the table now? Yeah, like you said, you can't really have it open just other than to check details and close it right back. Right, so, so nobody chats anymore even with their pre-selected uh, chat words you can pick. So, And is there a reason you plan Ignition rather than Bovada, or are they both exactly the same? They're the same. I just happen to be on Ignition. Okay, that's, just, that's, that's just where I ran it up. See, I, I don't make large deposits, so like uh, I keep like making small deposits, small deposits, small deposits, and eventually one catches on and I run it up, and then that's where I have the bankroll. So at the moment, it's, it's Ignition. So uh, let's, let's, uh, let's see. Anything else? That's what we got right now. 775-372-8355 if you want to text me during the show. Moving along to the next bracelet. Ismail Bojang won a bracelet. And for him, it was a long wait. 
Ismail Bojang had pretty much the opposite situation that I had. I sat down to the World Series of Poker in 2005 and immediately finished third, then first. So my first two caches were third and first. So I, I didn't exactly have a long wait for the bracelet. Ismail Bojang had uh, 72 caches until finally getting this first bracelet. This is a guy who is uh, very successful otherwise in tournament poker. He just could not get that bracelet. He also does not have a title in uh, the World Poker Tour, the EPT, despite 11 caches. He didn't have any major title until this bracelet win that he just got. Uh, he he started as an online poker player. He is only 30 years old at the moment. And he finally won that bracelet. I mean, that's a lot of caches in that time. But he, he finally got the cash he was looking for at uh, 1,500 PLO. He cashed uh, $298,000 for finishing first. I think some of those caches... Yeah, so I guess he has 63 caches in uh, the regular World Series, and then the rest are Europe or circuits. So he didn't get 72, actually. It's actually uh, 75 total, but 63 at the regular World Series. So we'll count that. But still, it took him 63 tries in caches to actually get all the way to first. That is pretty tough. In fact, it's... uh, he came close last year in the 2500 No Limit event, event number 43. He finished second last year for even more money, 313K. Couldn't quite get there. He finished fifth at the 5K No Limit Hold'em in 2016. He finished sixth at the 25K PLO event in 2015. You see, he's had some close calls. But this is his first bracelet. So congrats to him for finally getting through. He had a third place, also in 2015, at the 10K Deuce to 7 low ball triple draw. Finally got there. So congrats to Ismail Bojang, which I, I, I know the name. I knew he was a successful tournament player. didn't know that much about him. But I thought the story of how many caches it took to finally win that bracelet was interesting. Final bracelet we're going to talk about here is Joseph Chong. Joseph Chong, who is best known to people for a crazy bluff he made in the main event. Three-handed. Three-handed in the main event in 2010. For some of it, he was wearing a donk-down cap, by the way. Mikon sort of knew him and pressed him into doing this. He was only 24 years old at the time, and Mikon pressed him into wearing a donk-down hat until he got a real sponsor, then he dropped the donk-down hat. His name online is Sublime, not Sublime, but Sublime with two I's and no L. He was actually born in South Korea. He finally won a bracelet 
He did not have any major title, though you could almost count third place in the main event as a major title. He was never at my table, even though I made 88th in that same main event out of 7,319 people. He was partially responsible for Jonathan Duhamel winning that year. He six bet all in with a seven off against Duhamel's Queens and lost the hand, as you might guess. This is pre flop. That's pretty ballsy, dude. Can you imagine three handed with a seven when you've been five bet? You go all in? Can you imagine for all that money on the line? Not only the difference between third and first place, which is about five million bucks, but then you you also have all the sponsorship money at the time that you would get for getting first place. He didn't care. He threw caution to the wind and six bet all in with a seven. Do Hamill believed it? Or didn't believe it and called. And won. Won the pot, won the event. Two years later, Chong did have a chance at the bracelet in the $5,000 No Limit Hold'em Mixed Max event, which is where they keep changing how many-handed you're playing. He finished second in that one. He also finished second in 2014 at the 1500 Deuce to 7 Draw Lowball event. Couldn't win a bracelet, couldn't win any major title until this year. He won a big field event, the 1K Double stack event. I don't think the one I played. I think it was the week after I played. I think it was the one that began on the 17th. But he won that and $687,000, even though it was only 1K buy-in. So I guess congratulations to Joseph Chong. Don't know him very well. When I, I met him briefly, seemed nice enough. Don't that much, know that much about him. He did post a funny text that he got. I think it's a real text. Uh, right after winning his bracelet, he got a text from a VIP host at a strip club and asked him if they'd like him to reserve a VIP table. <laughs> I don't know if this VIP host just got his number or if Joseph had been there before, but this guy jumped on it. Congrats on your bracelet win. So when are you coming down to our strip club? Can I hold the table for you? <laughs> You can really spend a lot of money at these strip clubs with all these VIP services and private tables. And people have dropped tens of thousands in one night at a strip club, which is insane to me. And I think a lot of this even happens at legit strip clubs where it's not even like a front for prostitution. Like there are some strip clubs, especially some of the shadier ones, that if you get a lap dance and go in the back behind the curtain that the girl will do other things other than just dance. But I think like some of the more legit bigger strip clubs, they don't even do things like this and you can still spend tens of thousands of dollars, which is crazy. Like how how can you spend tens of thousands of dollars in some kind of like sexual expenditure like a strip club would be and not have sex? And not even get a blowjob. I don't understand it. To me, that just seems insane. But guys do. I don't know if Joseph Chong's been to this particular club or if they just got his number somehow. But that was a funny text and he posted it on Twitter. <laughs> Got to respect the hustle, though, of the 
hosted that strip club. He jumped right on that bracelet. Saw24 doesn't like Sublime. He said, uh, I hate Sublime. God, this piece of shit cost me so much money on full tilt. Fuck Joseph Chong. <laughs> she wrote that in chat. So those are the notable bracelets that have been won so far, to my knowledge. And even though I don't really like talking about who wins a bracelet and all that type of stuff, I thought that with lack of other World Series news for this week, that was worth talking about, especially since I had some stories involving some of these players. But now we're going to move on to something else. I'm going to talk about a mysterious character on Twitter who listens to this show. Might even be listening right now. If not, we'll catch it in the archives. That is a Twitter user named Rachel Lees. That's L-E-E-S 69. In fact, Rachel Lees, I think there's only one L in the whole thing. It's almost like Rachel E's. So Rachel and E-E-S 69 is the handle on Twitter. It may not be around for that much longer because she keeps saying she's going to delete her Twitter. But, uh, She only has 236 followers, but she has already made a big impact, despite the low number of followers, because of who she's been interacting with. She seems to always be part of these various controversial discussions on Twitter. She's only been on Twitter, at least under this account, since April of 2019. Her description on Twitter says, Tech, Startups, and Career Plus Management Musings pseudonym of an irritable unfiltered human sometimes not safe for work often too long didn't read her location is internet i've seen her going back and forth with the number of poker pros sometimes in civil fashion sometimes arguing with them she has told me that she's a regular listener to this show i asked her if she actually is female she said yes course that could be a lie she mostly has said things she's mostly taken positions i've agreed with and i say mostly there's been some where i've disagreed but she's mostly taking positions i've agreed with i've noticed that she has approached all these topics with intelligence and with thoughtfulness and You can tell you're dealing with an intellectual here, not an idiot. She also seems to be writing from kind of an interesting position, someone who on the surface appears to be an outsider. Like she's just, for example, she learned from this show about uh, like Isaac Haxton's shenanigans with the Brian Hastings multi-accounting thing a few years ago. She had never heard about that until hearing it on this show and then she mentioned it on Twitter. So she definitely hasn't been following poker news for very long, or otherwise she would have known about that a few years ago. But she wrote this essay, she wrote two essays now, one about poker itself and one about Negranu, where she really knows a lot about the last few decades of poker. She talked about the way poker was in the 90s, and then the 2000s, and the 2010s. It kind of seems like she's been there. And if she hasn't been, she's read so much about it that she's learned to where it seems like she was there. Very interesting character 
I would love to know more about her. I would love to speak to her. Wish she could come on this show. But she's very big on her anonymity. And again, this whole female thing could be a front. It could be a dude. Who knows? Despite being female, she doesn't attempt. She doesn't attempt to really play that up. She doesn't try to say, as a woman, this; as a woman, that. She doesn't really write from the perspective of a woman. She just writes. She could be writing the same thing, the exact same things, and be a dude. So she's not really coloring her perspective from the point of view of being female. Obviously, saying that she's older. Making it clear that she's over 50 She's not trying to Attract people from the Sexual standpoint If she was trying that she'd try to pretend to be you know, 25, 30 years old and hot She's not trying to do that at all She's claiming to be older Which I believe to be the case So no one's going to go Oh wow, a 55 year old female Well I want a piece of that Like People aren't going to be following her for that reason So she wrote two essays recently the first one was called Poker is Dead in America, Long Live Poker. I think it's like a 4,000-word essay. She claims she hammered it out in an hour, which is hard to believe. But I, I do believe she kind of just sat down and hammered it out pretty quickly. I'm going to read you parts of it, and then I'm going to tell you my opinions of this essay. One good thing about her is she, just, she doesn't care who she pisses off. She just writes her opinion, puts it out there, doesn't care what people think. Kind of kind of like what I do on this show. You never know. Maybe this is a pseudonym of mine. Maybe that is my secret identity. Maybe that's why she likes this show so much, because she is me. Maybe that's why I'm giving it this attention on this show. Hmm. You ever think of that? You will never know. Going on here, she wrote, Poker in 2019 is on a slow, gradual decline. In this article, I will outline how we got here and what we can do to turn the tide in a favorable direction. To understand the poker industry and economy, we need to go back to the time of 1990 to 2002 time frame. The seeds of the poker boom were planted in 1988. The movie Rounders had some influence in accelerating the poker boom, but it cannot be credited with starting the boom. To understand the poker boom, we need to look at the growth of gambling in the U.S. In the late 1980s, America started to legalize more and more casinos. It began with riverboat casinos, then to commercial casinos, and eventually to Indian and tribal casinos. By the late 1990s, online casinos began sprouting up everywhere as the Internet revolution was in full force. In 1988, the federal regulation of Native American gaming was established through the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. By 2002, tribal gaming revenues reached nearly $15 billion from a total of 354 tribal casinos. That kind of ties in with what we were talking about before. Online poker also experienced rapid growth in the years leading up to what most consider the poker boom. In 1996, the first 15 online gambling websites were operating, but by 1998, over 200 websites existed, pulling in $830 million in revenues. The first real money multiplayer online site, Planet Poker, online poker site, Planet Poker, launched in 1998. By 2001, which by the way is when I joined, over 8 million people around the world gambled online in some shape or form. Up until the UIGEA in 2006, up to 70-85% of online poker revenues were generated by U.S. players. In this context, live poker in 2019 is by my estimates $1.3 to $1.8 billion business in the U.S., 
I don't think I believe that, but that's what she's claiming. Uh, the increasing appetite for gambling by Americans, which was fueled by the government legalizing state lotteries, tribal casinos, and commercial casinos, is what set the stage of the poker boom. The internet revolution of the mid-1990s only further sped up this rapid-fire growth. This, that, that part's all true. That for the poker boom to happen, it wasn't just that poker appeared on TV with a whole cards and that Chris Moneymaker had a great story and a great name and won the World Series of Poker. It wasn't just that. It was that people were doing more and more online and that uh, the dot-com boom had happened already in the 2000, in early 2000 and in late 90s. And then uh, there's more online shopping, more online everything, and people were gambling more than ever. So it was natural that poker would take off like it did, especially with those two other factors really accelerating it with the uh, whole cards on TV and with Moneymaker winning. Poker in the 1990s. The world of live poker was completely different than it is today. Poker attracted mainly hustlers, retirees, and a small group of casual recreational players. The game spread in a small set of card rooms and casinos were slow games. Mostly all limit games and draw games. That's true. There wasn't no limit hold'em back then. A lot of people think, like, you go back to 1998, you'd find a lot of no-limit hold'em. No. It it was mostly limit hold'em and games like stud. The popular hold'em games of choice are 2-4 limited and 6-12 limit. Stud and Omaha 8 or better were also very popular. Big bet no-limit hold'em was rarely, if ever, spread. Poker was not a very lucrative business, but it provided a steady stream of income for owners of card rooms. The atmosphere was collegial and friendly. I think she means congenial, but whatever. The collegial, I I don't think she means there's a lot of college students there. The the regulars would know the staff by name and vice versa. Even back then, you could pinpoint the regulars after a few days at the table. They were middle-aged white men mostly, and for the most part, they were not very talkative but always professional. It was around that time that prop players became widely used by card rooms to get games started and running. Prop players are people who are paid an hourly wage to play a set number of flexible hours at the calling of card room management. Prop players play with their own money, and wore an ID indicating they were prop players. People learned how to play poker by reading books and magazines. A recreational player quickly became a regular face in card rooms. Since limits were low and games were slow, the environment was not suited for the types of bum-hunting and predatory behavior that is so prevalent today. It existed, but it was more subtle and underneath the surface. Players also did not fraternize with one another to the extent that they do today. Smartphones did not exist, and this, this was a generation that grew up with payphones, phone cards, and notebooks... Bad beat stories were plentiful, but very few discussed, and hand histories at the level of detail that players do now. The silver-haired retirees slowly lost their pension or life savings. These were the losing players in most of the games. They would spend countless hours in a card room, bleeding away their money in slow motion. Next, the games always had a steady stream of neophytes who would try their luck at poker. Mainly kids from college and salary men dropped by and lost each month. The small group of professional poker players feasted on these rec players. The best way to summarize this period of poker was that people, A, were generally friendly to each other, and B, content with a small but consistent and reliable game, and C, the totem pole was fairly established. Pros fed on the retiree regs and visiting recs. The retirees lost at a slower pace since they fed on visiting recs and the newbies, and the college kids and salary men fed the poker economy and kept it running. This is all mostly accurate, by the way. I wasn't playing at this time, but uh, I started playing in 2001, early 2001, which was kind of the... Kind of the end of this. We hadn't had the poker boom, the online poker boom, any of that stuff yet. Yeah, there were a few online poker sites by then, but they weren't that much of a factor yet. 
So I came into the poker scene at the tail end of this sort of thing, and this is pretty accurate. Kind of makes me think she was there. Poker in the 2000s. I will not again get into the pre- and post-boom poker landscape because a lot of this has already been written on the topic. Here I want to get into the live poker scene and how it's steadily changed since the 1990s. This is, uh, now she's writing with the 2000s. Before the poker boom, young people simply did not pursue poker. The game is both intimidating for new players and also an old man's game. College kids play blackjack, craps, and bet on sports. The, the idea of sitting with a bunch of old people for hours to double or triple your money was not appealing. Thus, the kind of people who were drawn into poker were addictive personalities. They were the types of people who did not, who did not need to see the need to study the game. They were people with a lot of gamble in their personalities. Middle-aged people did play poker, but they also approached the game from the standpoint of entertainment and leisure. It was a good way to blow off some steam, join in light banter, and have a few beers after work. Another category of recreational player that frequented poker rooms were business owners. These self-employed people were the original whales, meaning uh, fish who lost a lot of money in the games, and many of them ruined their lives and lost their businesses through poker. These business owners typically had access to a lot of cash and business credit lines, so they were the most susceptible to becoming addicted and chasing losses, gradually upping the stakes to dig out of a futile hole. Many of the old-school poker pros you see on TV today made their living befriending and exploiting the early whales through charm, deceit, and cunning, basically social engineering. But this was an elite group of predatory pros. A vast majority of pros were not predatory. Opportunistic, yes, but predatory, not really. Now let me stop there because she doesn't explain what she means by that. What would happen was when someone would identify one of these fish, like a, a rich business owner who just kept showing up and had a lot of money to lose and just kept shooting it off in the 2000s, what they would do is they would befriend these fish and get their phone number and act like they were their best buddies. And then they say, hey, you know, it's been fun playing with you. I can't play to play with you again next time. Hey, why don't you give me a call next time you're there? You know, uh, I can't wait to play you again. And a lot of times these fish didn't realize that what the pros were really doing was just making sure they were always present in their in the game to win their money. So what would happen was like the game either wouldn't go or it would be kind of shorthanded. There would just you know, a few good pros together. And then one of these predatory pros would get the phone call. Hey, I'm thinking of coming down to the commerce. This would be the fish calling them, saying that they're thinking of coming down there. And, of course, the pro drops everything, rushes down there, gets in the game, and is already there when the, when the fish shows up. Plenty of seats open because the game otherwise wasn't that good. And if for some reason the game is full, they'd start another game a little bit higher. So if, if 100-200 is full, they'll start 200-400. If that's full, they'll start 300-600. They'll start another game up. And uh, around that fish, and yeah, it fills up quickly at that point, but the, the predatory pro is always the first one there because they know he's coming. So that's what she's talking about here. And the opportunistic ones she's saying are the ones who just jump in the game as soon as they see that, but the predatory ones are the ones who would falsify friendships, would, would pretend that they care about these fish and pretend that they like them really just because they like their money. She goes on to write, everything started changing in the early 2000s. The online poker era can be easily called the youth movement in poker. A lot of young people started playing poker, and it was a different type of young player. These were not the usual kids who would gamble, go broke, and leave poker. Uh, these new kids were more interested in the game aspects of poker rather than the gamble. They became conditioned this way through online games and poker. They were statistically inclined and more, much more attracted to learning how to beat the game of poker. They read voraciously and studied the basic theories and concepts of holding poker. As online was grooming a new crop of professional wrecks, the live poker scene also started to see a noticeable change. No Limit, no limit Poker was gaining popularity due to TV broadcasts. 
poker started to become much more aggressive and as a, as a consequence of these games. The games no longer were systematic and gradual. The big bet poker was tuned perfectly for the alpha dog. People could lose a lot more and a lot faster. Poker has always had a share of winners and losers, but Big Bet now introduced a new factor never seen before, pain. The general atmosphere of poker rooms changed around this period. If the period before could best be described as collegial, this new – I don't know why she keeps saying collegial. Maybe, it's a, maybe, there's a, maybe there is a definition to collegial. I don't know. <laughs> I always thought it meant having to do with college. The new era is feast or famine period. The gap between the best players and average players was enormous. The biggest winners were not necessarily those who studied the most off the felt. Let me stop there. I agree with some of this, but not all of this. Uh, the gap between the best players and the average players was enormous. I don't know. I mean, that's always been true. I don't see that much of a difference. The more difference I see in those days was that what she said, the biggest winners were not necessarily those who studied the most off the felt. That might be true, but I think the most accurate statement is the biggest winners were not necessarily the best players. The biggest winners were the ones who game-selected best and who looked for opportunities the most. So the biggest winners weren't necessarily the ones that hung up on poker, hung out on poker stars and took on all comers. They were the people who would get on every site they could and only play in the best games and had the bankroll to play at the highest stakes in those games. She writes, the card, the card room kings were those who spent endless hours grinding at the game. They picked up live reading aptitude, social skills, and finally honed their pattern-based ga uh, pattern game strategies. The bulk of their income came from exploiting the few terrible wrecks and regs alike. It is around this time that even mediocre pros started to stay out of each other's way. Pros always had sort of an unwritten rule not to battle each other in the past, but it was common to see pros often having no choice but to play against each other in the 1980s and 90s. Now, in the 2000s, games were so plentiful and the fish were marching in endlessly, so the pros woke up and made compacts with one another. That's true, too. What started happening a lot was that uh, whenever the fish would bust, everyone would just mass sit out. And then when the fish would come back in, everyone would sit back in. Now it's much harder to do that online because there, there aren't as many fish anymore. So now you do have to have games where a lot of times pros play each other hoping a fish shows up. But in the 2000s during the poker boom, there were so many fish you could just sit out and there would always be a, another fish coming down the line. She writes, everything was in full bloom. Poker rooms were spreading a lot of games. Rooms were petitioning their gaming commissions to add tables. Tournament poker was blossoming. Card rooms always depend on daily and weekly tournaments to bring in new players. Most rooms got rid of the prop players because business was so good. Poker grew so fast and large that greed was almost non-existent. Poker was so profitable that people actually began creating small circles or communities comprised of their competitors. Sharing and learning became the norm. Then it all changed. So she's saying that at that point, everyone was very happy to help each other. Pros uh, got together and talked about things. It wasn't... Uh, a dog-eat-dog -dog competition. Just there's so much money out there, pros actually kind of cooperated. If the live poker scene in the 1990s was the collegial era and the 2000s was the feast era, today's poker landscape can best be described as the disease era. In some ways, I view the current period as poker's recession, and I do believe there will be a market correction in poker. I think there already has been. Why is it a disease era? When there is no cleanup after a feast, disease runs rampant. More seriously, poker is in a disease era because there is an endless list of things happening that's not good for the long term, health, growth, and sustainability. 
and almost every single one of these negative trends are direct outcomes of the feast era. The overnight disappearance of the online poker player of online poker in the U.S. had a massive effect on the industry. It was referring to Black Friday. What happened? Uh, people went from the small piece of the large and growing pie mentality to no holds barred, take all mentality. Whereas greed was frowned upon when the times were good, greed now rears its head in almost every corner of the poker industry. Let's count the ways in no particular order. This is this is the most interesting part, by the way. Aside from the little history lesson, which was interesting, I I, I like this part, which is really covering. I'm about to read you things that have happened in the 2010s, which are all indicative of greed. Number one, card rooms and operators have consistently raised rake every two to three years. True. Number two, mediocre pros who can no longer make a good living in poker, but are still a lot better than the average recreational player, have exited poker, but now take money out of poker via poker training sites and poker coaching. Yeah, that has happened to some degree, that uh, some have stopped playing and started coaching. You know, those that can't do teach, it's kind of like that. Number three, World Series of Poker has sold exclusive rights to the summer extravaganza to a poorly run private online media startup that has a track record of failing for four years and running, thus effectively blacking out and hurting an already struggling poker broadcast and delivery space. That's a slam on Poker Go. That's somewhat true. Number four, all major poker tours have gone Walmart or down market to appeal to the lowest common denominator, but have restructured events to acutely favor the best pros who are the best staked, re-entries, slower structures, multi-day events, all those benefit pros, while the entry price point, meaning lower, lowers in more wrecks. It's a flat-out cash grab driven by operator greed, panic, and lazy necessity. That's true. And I've brought this up in the form of my complaints about these day two registrations people can do or super late registrations people can do when there's 70% or more of the field gone, that this is all because of greed and that this just benefits deep-pocketed pros. And that uh, many other things they're doing, like re-entries, also are favoring the pros. And again, are for greed. They're not doing because they want to help the pros, but they make the most rake this way. Number five, poker pros and even recreational players are now producing user-generated content to fill the void and conditioning recreational players to free content while actually being salespeople who sell merchandise and now even staking sometimes at predatory markups, all of which takes money out of the poker economy. Vloggers, however, can have a major positive impact, though that is another dedicated topic in and of itself. I I don't know what she means by that last part, but uh, I don't know. If people are putting out useful free content and then there's some kind of ulterior motive to direct people to buy things, that's not a bad thing. You know, I think that's fine. Number six. The poker middle class is now the largest population by far, and, th- and through poker literacy, this group has become so even in skill that it's a matter of simple math that the bulk or disproportionate amount of money will inevitably go to the house or operators. Yeah, that's that has become a problem. There, there are, and I've talked about this before too. There are too many good players now, and not enough fish to feed them. So just like in a regular food chain. Everyone's getting skinny, not physically, but uh, their wallet's getting skinny because there's not enough to eat. The population's too big, there's not enough to eat. The population can be big if there's enough food to support it, but not when there isn't. So the very best players are still doing well, but people who used to make a lot of money in poker are now having a hard time doing that because there's a lot of good players out there and not that many fish to feed them. 
and the poker rooms just keep raising rake as the number of games running goes down, down, down. They raise rake to compensate. So as she's writing there that the simple math is that the bulk of the money ends up to the house that runs these games. Next. People are now much less collaborative with one another. Fake image signaling is rampant. I don't know what she means by that. While in actually what we see in abundance is that more energy is being spent on silly red herrings, such as what clothes people wear, how they behave, etc. Players are just meaner with one another and the resentment is real. Uh, There's been drama in poker ever since I've been part of it 20 years ago, especially since the boom. I don't agree with that. I think just because Rachel's been watching more recently, it seems like everyone's meaner. Now, everybody's been mean for a long time. Groups that shared before are now nothing more than collusion teams strategizing collectively on how to exploit other pros and wrecks in the local player pool. Often these collusion teams share bankrolls and play at the same table to both reduce variance and also to increase profit through ethical and unethical play. This has been going on a long time, too. This is not a newer thing. Next, the high-stakes tier is seeing games evaporate as the most predatory pros are poaching the weakest whales and isolating them in private and quasi-public games which where they deploy all sorts of abhorrent tactics to empty out their victims' life savings. Um, that's not where the abhorrent tactics come in. It's actually in keeping these games private. We've talked about that before here. But yeah, that's correct that a lot of the good games now have been converted into these private or semi-private games where the typical player shut out. And that's where the abhorrent tactics come in. That's We've talked about that before on other episodes we've done in the past year. In fact, I, I had someone at the World Series of Poker last year thanking me for doing a segment like that because it was someone who's really bothered by what they've seen. So she's, she's close to correct on that one. But it's, it's, it's not really about emptying out the fish's life savings because the fish are going to lose no matter what. This this is what people are missing is that the fish are always going to lose. The fish have a finite amount of money they're going to lose playing poker and whether it happens quickly or not as quickly, they're going to lose it all. It's going to all be gone. Whatever they can afford to lose, it's going to be gone. It's a matter of who gets it and whether certain people were unfairly shut out from getting it. That's where the abhorrent tactics come in. Finally, the low takes, the low stakes tier has always been a rake fest, but now the mid stakes, the heart, the heartbeat of of live poker is also experiencing the same trend: the unwillingness of most rooms to staff shorthanded games, refusal to, to spread three blind games, and the lowering of buy-ins in, in capped games are all optimizing revenue model, targeting the volume of wrecks at a time when the wreck volume is simply not there. It is putting the cart before the horse. Yeah, the rake has gone up. At the mid-stakes very badly. There are some games which I think are unplayable now if you're a mid-stakes pro because the rake is so high. And yeah, they uh, they don't like running shorthanded games. They try to avoid that by doing must-move games so they can avoid having shorthanded games. And yeah, that, that's mostly true what she wrote there. Then she gives solutions. She says, there's several things that poker can do to gradually get things back on track. Uh, One of them, make poker games more volatile. 
The current full ring No Limit Hold'em game is fraught with problems in terms of bringing in and keeping new players in the card room. It seems counterintuitive, but I believe card rooms must innovate and make games more chance-based and less skills-based. The liberal giveaway of poker strategies and knowledge over the last decade cannot be undone, but poker can minimize its effect by creating new structures and formats for the popular No Limit game that still remains the Cadillac of poker. Innovation opportunities are plenty everywhere you look. Add antes, uh, have three blind games, do seven-handed poker, reduce post-flop play to two streets instead of three, uh, play the standard post-flop board with three pre-flop cards instead of two. The point is that the entire poker community has to expand and experiment and innovate. Okay. I only partially agree with this. I do think that introducing new games is helpful, and Short Deck is an example of one where I think that, uh, that that's starting to see some growth and people are starting to enjoy it. And People always do enjoy new things that they can do, kind of breaks up the monotony, kind of feel like they have a chance to reset everything and maybe be good at a game everyone hasn't learned yet. But you, you can't reinvent the wheel and expect people to want to ride the new wheel when the old wheel is working fine. So recreational players aren't going to want to play a game with uh, only a flop and a turn where they lose the river. They're, they're not going to want to play uh, games that they get three whole cards instead of two. When I say they're not going to, like it's not going to replace No Limit Hold'em. They may go, oh, this, this looks kind of fun. Let's try this. But it's not going to re- replace No Limit Hold'em. A lot of people want the familiar. A lot of people want, they know Limit Hold'em. They understand how to play it. They They have a strategy they think is good. And they don't want to learn a totally new game or, or, or a, rapid, a, a vastly different game from No Limit Hold'em. So the people who are really going to want to play a game like that are, are pros who think this is a new ex- opportunity to exploit people who don't play it well. And that's what I would think. If, the, if these – like, if, let's say short deck poker started getting spread at limits that are more reasonable. I would start playing it. I would learn it better, and I would start playing it because I would assume that most people who come play it wouldn't know what they were doing, and that there would be a big opportunity there to take advantage of major mistakes before people learn it better. Like, at this point, a lot of people really have a clue on how to play No Limit Hold'em. Even if they're not really good, they, they have a clue of what to do and what not to do. You're going to do the best when your opponents have, like, no clue. So something like Short Deck, if, if it comes down to the mid-limits, then... I would start playing it because I think there'd be a lot of opportunity there to play against guys who don't, who don't know what they're doing. So, I don't agree that the, the way to fix No Limit Hold'em is to reinvent the game. No. I disagree. Sorry, Rachel. Do I think some modifications to it might be interesting to people? Yeah, the, the, you might get a few side games going like that, but... Uh, you also have to have the games approved, by the way. The, every time you make a new game, most of the times you have to have it approved by whatever gaming commission's regulating, so that's the other problem. But even putting that aside, I just don't see this taking over existing No Limit Hold'em. She also writes, Poker rooms need to invest ahead of growth. Today, poker rooms are investing beyond growth. If they see a surprisingly busy month, they will consider rolling out some temporary player-friendly promotion or, or perk. Then they will just just as quickly cut the program the minute revenue numbers drop. Poker rooms need to understand that poker players are a very low-maintenance group as a whole. They want the lowest cost to play, rake, decent service, good enough food, and be treated respectfully and warmly. 
Table games have VIP hosts. Invest in floor staff and, and, and incentivize them to treat the wrecks nicely. Right now, most floor men are in the pockets of predatory pros who give them money to alert them via phone call or text when the live one comes in. End the poker room corruption by realigning the casino staff incentives to map directly into the operator's interests, giving them a significant monthly bonus for increasing repeat visitation by new customers. Okay, let's stop here. In theory, this sounds good, but this would not work, and uh, casinos would not want to do this. Poker does not make much money for casinos. If, if casinos have a lot of different things, they have poker, blackjack, slots, craps, etc., etc., Poker brings in only a small percentage of their revenue. Poker is almost a loss leader, where they're ho- they have the poker going because they hope some of these people who win in poker will then bring their money to the pits and shoot it off there. That That's why they have poker. They don't have it for itself. Now, one problem is that the rate keeps going up because the poker room manager is still expected to turn a profit. And if he doesn't, he can get fired. So a lot of times these casinos are short-sighted and say, okay, well, we don't want the poker room losing money. We want we don't want the poker room breaking even, even if it does feed the other parts of the casino that make even more money. They're like an independent department who has to show a profit, and then they raise the rake because they think that's the only way they can show a profit. And there we have the situation we're in today. And the only way out of it is competition, which is finally starting to happen in L.A. But it took a very long time. But there's no way casinos are going to invest in hosts and others trying to bring in new fish to the table because they just they, they don't want the fish losing to the poker pros. They they actually like running poker rooms. So not just the fish come in, but also they, they want both the fish to come there and take whatever money they get lucky enough to win to then shoot it off in the casino or maybe chase losses in the casino after losing the poker game. And they even want some good pros to shoot off in the pits, as they surprisingly do. That's why they run poker. So they don't want to give incentives to play more poker. They just want to get you down there. So that's why it wouldn't make sense to have these hosts. Now, I do agree that they shouldn't just raise rake in response to everything that uh, they think is the problem. If they're not making as much money there, they should find other ways to make the room more appealing than just raising rake, raising rake, because the truth is it does drive people away. And one thing that these rooms don't understand sometimes, they say, well, recreational players, they just care if they're winning hands and having winning sessions. They don't really pay attention to the rake. That's somewhat true. It is true that the recreational players don't notice the high rake as much as pros do. But games don't go unless there's someone starting it. And usually the games are started by pros and then recs join it later. Pros are not going to start a game with a high rake. Pros will not even play if the game if the rake is ridiculously high. So, if you drive the pros out of your room, the people who are going to start games, people are going to play games that when there may not be fish around, and you make the rake really high, then the games are just going to die. The, the the pros are just going to leave as soon as the fish are gone, and that's that. 
and that actually, you know, empty tables are a killer for poker rooms. So they, what they'd be smarter to do was keep the rake lower or make some kind of incentive for people to stay around to play, to keep games going. There's a lot of innovative things they can do to make more money without just raising rake. And decent service goes a long way. Friendly floor men, good food that they give complimentary. Uh, just good overall policies, competent rulings, things like that. That they can do and should do. And in some cases aren't. I'll give you an example of the opposite of this. In Bellagio, at 2 a.m. I go there, the whole room's dead. Only a few tables running. One of them that is running is 2040 Limit Hold'em, which I wasn't even that excited to play. It's kind of low for me, but uh, there's like three seats open and one game running. So I just sit down, as I always have. A short time later, a floor man comes over and yells at me, actually yells, that I can't do that. I have to always check in with him. I can't just sit. Every player needs to check in with him. What if you know? What if this, there was a must-move game going? What if there's this? What if there's that? I said, well, there isn't, though. It's, it's 2 a.m. There's nobody here. It's very clear what's going and what's not. It's very clear there's only one game here. And I sat. I've always sat like this. If, and look, if you really want this to be the rule, if, you, if this is very important to you, fine. But you approach me more politely. Instead, I was told if I do it again, I'm going to be kicked out of the room for good. Can you believe it? Over, over taking a seat at 2 a.m. when the place was dead on a weeknight. I complained to the poker room manager about this, by the way, who apologized to me and told me that shouldn't have happened. But uh, that's an example of not treating the players well. And this is someone I had no history with or anything, so this is not like this is targeted at me. This is just someone being rude and having a power trip. So that's what they need to stop doing. Then she said... We need a poker bill of rights. All of the bad behavior that has made live poker often unbearable to sit through can be addressed by a player's bill of rights. The operator of some third-party organization should not be enforcing this type of contract. This is a player's contract and promise to other players. Well, then, how is it enforced? I, don't know. <laughs> I mean, that, that doesn't mean much unless someone enforces it. Uh, an organization can be set up to enroll membership. All member rooms can require players with players' cards to start, sign up online for such a bill of rights. Members can wear a pin or wristband to self-identify themselves as a true professional who will adhere to the bill of rights. Come on. <laughs> Rachel, I, I, I like you and respect you from what I've seen of you, even if you're not who you say you are or what you say you are. But th- this, this part's ridiculous. No one's going to wear a pin about the, bill, the player's bill of rights. No one's going to enroll into membership in their organization. And, and, and those that will are the ones who are going to behave well anyway. The, the people who are problems at the poker table are never going to sign up for such a thing. Samples of promises that the Bill of Rights may contain are, I will never berate or belittle any of my opponents. I will always defend the dealer from abusive players. I will never shoot an angle deliberately for momentarily gain as I have a responsibility to protect the integrity of the game. I will always make a concerted effort to provide a comfortable and safe playing environment for my Fellow poker players, I will often sacrifice my own maximum profit in order to not intimidate new players from becoming regular players. Yeah, that's, ne- that's never going to happen. And she's referring to a repeated seat and table changing, pressuring table to drink, etc. Okay, this this would never work. What I think should be done is that 
card rooms should become much more aggressive about kicking out badly behaving players and not tolerate nasty or aggressive behavior at the poker table. Except maybe if it's a mega fish, which is to be determined by the floor map. But other than that, I, I see regulars who, who behave very poorly. Regulars who bully people at the table, who make nasty comments, who make it unpleasant to be here with them. One, regulars who berate the dealer when they take bad beats, which is unpleasant to even be present for, even if you're not the dealer, just being a player at the table. It's a very stressful thing to see. Those people should be kicked out and told if they continue, they're going to be 86 for good. That That's what should be done. Not this Bill of Rights thing. So she's kind of on the right track, but the methodology is wrong. Stop patronizing bad businesses. Poker players are very bad at voting no with their wallets. True. Since poker is a tiny industry, I call this problem too small to fail. If X only provides Y and Y goes away, we're screwed. We'd rather have a poor Y from X than nothing. This is so wrong, but it's the default standard in poker. Yeah, this is true that poker players pretty much tolerate anything if it's the only game in town or one of the few games in town. I'm convinced that many poker players believe that they are, are consumers of a product or service and that the operators are the, are the producers of that product or service. This is 100% wrong. Poker players as independent solo business enterprises are the products around which businesses are built around. The poker operators are the intermediaries. They facilitate the transactions that occur between two principal actors in the poker market, the players. For that service, they take a cut to continue its operations, the rake. The more power of the intermediary, the power of the intermediary is always absolute when the parties are unwilling or unable to do- deal directly with each other. The minute that poker players have a way to coordinate and boycott, the poker room near instantly faces the threat of going out of business. Even a short one-month boycott would cripple the poker room in terms of cash flow, annual targets, and sh- so on. Uh, let, let me stop here. In theory, I agree with this. The problem is it's very hard to keep people away. Because one, it's hard to communicate to everybody, hey, stop playing here, especially live. And and number two, if the pros leave and the wrecks keep coming, there's going to be predatory pros that show up because the games are easier. And you're you're never going to stop that. You can say, okay, let's band together and not do it. Look, you just mentioned earlier in your essay that people are having a harder time making money these days, which is true. So here you have the opportunity to go to games that are now great because the best pros are staying away in some sort of boycott and you're not going to do it. You're never going to get much participation in that beyond a a few really dedicated people. So it just won't work. It it sounds good in theory. It just won't work. What should happen and what is more realistic is that players should get together and say, look, if our treatment doesn't improve here or if the rake doesn't improve here, we're going to move the game down the street. We're going to move it somewhere else, provided it's a place that has more than one card room, which most places do. If players got together, the regulars got together and said, we're going to move the game there, and when, and we're even going to tell the recreational players that come to this game to go elsewhere, and they'll start going elsewhere too, and your game's going to die. And this has happened before. Commerce got the mid- and high-stakes action because everyone left Hollywood Park. Now the bike is trying to take Commerce's mid-stakes action. So this does happen. But I'd love to see more of this. This is why the rake went down in L.A. in the mid-stakes games. Because of this war between the bike and commerce. That's the only way to fix that. A boycott will never work. 
Anyway, I'm not going to read any more. You can read the whole thing. I posted it in the, on the Poker Community Discussion Forum on Poker Fraud Alert. If you go to Poker Community Discussion, you'll see a thread called Good But Long Essay About the Current State of Poker and How to Fix It. And you can read. I, I read you a lot of it, more than I expected to. So much that I, I, I've kind of run out of the desire to go to the second long essay, which is even longer. That one is about Negranu. I'm going to read a little bit of it. This time, really, a little bit, and then that's going to be it. Uh, then you can read the whole thing you want later. This is called The Leader of the Stupid, and it's about Negranu. And she wrote, I'm leaving poker... I'm, I'm leaving the poker Twitter party as a consequence of being attacked by Daniel Negranu and roughly 150 of his minions. I explained to my tiny but engaged followers why I'm leaving poker Twitter. They know why I want to quit poker Twitter, and that's enough for me. And then she goes on to write this very long essay about Daniel Negranu and his minions attacking her because she questioned him. And she even went on to say that... uh, Negranu is a person who just isn't very smart. That he's 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 a poker savant. That he's very good at poker, but just to, beyond that, isn't a very smart person, and uh, doesn't understand what he's saying. And I I don't agree with that either. Uh, she wrote a section called "Daniel does not exhibit any non-stupid qualities." So here's a little passage. If you analyze most of Negranu's comments, they are filled with logical fallacies. For example, Negranu thinks and speaks in a circuitous manner, which defies the basic rules of deductive reasoning. Killing animals is evil, major premise. Meat eaters kill animals, minor premise. Meat eaters are evil, conclusion. As you can see, the above way of thinking is flawed in every way. The major premise is disputable. The minor premise is also disputable. I may eat meat to survive while while being lost in the wilderness. I may eat meat because it's our culture to do so, and so on. Since the premises are open to debate, the conclusion is not conclusive. I mean, she's right there. You you can't jump from killing animals as evil to anyone who eats meat as evil. You you can't. There's it's it's way more complex than that, and that's one of the dumb things Negranu does is uh, he looks down on others who are not vegans. And I've told this to vegans before. I have friends who are vegans. And I've said to them, unlike those who hold views I don't agree with, like a lot of people on the left, you know, I'll I'll say, look, there's some people who hold views I I not only don't agree with, but I'm even having a hard time understanding why they have those views. They're just so nonsensical to me, some of these views. But I can understand veganism. I can understand these people don't like seeing animals killed for food when humans can survive without eating animals. And they don't like the conditions these animals are held in. It's not even just about killing them, but the conditions that they're in. And even animal products, they don't like the conditions these animals are in, such as things like eggs and milk. And you know what? I can understand that. And if you see these videos of how some of these animals are treated, it is disturbing. And if you do think about that, you don't, uh, if you actually had to watch the animals being killed that uh, you're eating, you may not want to eat them. You know, nobody wants to think about it. You, you meet a cow in person and, you know, you, you think, oh, you know, what, what a sweet cow, what a cute cow. And you don't think about the fact, yeah, this is going to become hamburger meat or a steak. 
so a, a lot of times you you just get so used to eating meat that you disassociate that you're eating something that is an animal that was killed and maybe even raised in circumstances which uh, were very unpleasant for the animal. And I'm a meat eater, and I don't see that changing. But at the same time, I can understand it. The, the, the vegans are actually ones who sometimes challenge my way of thinking. And sometimes the conclusion I'll come to is, yeah, I kind of see their point. And it's not enough to stop me from eating meat, but it, it, it does make me think sometimes. I even think that one day there won't be meat eating in this world, especially when uh, substitutes for meat become invented. That Right now there's a lot of progress in that, not enough yet to replace meat, but uh, there can be meat that's grown. There's even been some work on that that's been somewhat successful where meat can be grown without uh, actually being a living creature you have to kill or substitute meat can be made right now it doesn't taste very good but uh, substitute meat can be made that uh, tastes just like meat of an actual animal you kill so as the years go by they'll get better and better in this at which point uh, not only from a moral standpoint will it be pointless to kill animals when you have this as a, as a workable substitute but it economically might be a lot cheaper to produce meat that way than than our traditional way of doing it and eventually you know maybe in 100 years 200 years 300 years people may look and say look wow how, how barbaric they're killing animals then oh my gosh you know, why were they doing that you know you know that's that's so cruel and they'll be looking at it from the perspective that they have this substitute meat which tastes just as good so then it's easier to judge people back in this time why were you eating meat? And the response is, well, because there's no substitute for it and it tastes good. <laughs> so, and it's an easy way to get protein. Uh, humans also do have a, a natural desire for meat. To not eat meat requires some training. You have to really train yourself not to. It's not just cultural. It re- you really do have a, a natural desire to eat meat. Humans are omnivores. You, you have a desire to eat uh, both meat and plants. But um, it's not even like something society conditioned you to do. This is something you'll, you'll naturally crave as a human being. I, I don't want to get into that whole vegan discussion. But the problem is, with a lot of vegans, is they do not approach people in the way that would best convert them. They approach people in an aggressive, nasty, holier-than-thou fashion. Telling you that if you eat meat, you're evil. If you eat meat, you're no better than Hitler. I've seen that one, believe it or not, a lot of times. If you eat meat, you're committing atrocities. If you eat meat, you are a person who has no conscience. You're morally reprehensible. They're better than you because they don't eat meat and you do. That message is not going to change anyone. Meat eaters aren't going to read that or listen to that and go, oh, yeah, you are a better person than me. And, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a cruel asshole who, who doesn't care about killing animals. And, and I'm a piece of shit who's as bad as Hitler. Okay, you've convinced me I'm changing. You know, what, they, they end up being dismissed as whack jobs when they talk like that, and rightfully so. And I've had discussions with vegans, and I've said, 
You know, looking in deep into your message, I understand it all. But do you understand that most people really love animals and that you could use that to convince people to really think about what they're eating and maybe get them to change? Do you think that maybe you could do it that way and maybe alternatively if you if you think there's health benefits from it, which are, it's debatable, by the way. It's not a slam dunk that it's, health benef- that it's beneficial to your health to be vegetarian. But uh, there's a lot of claims that that's true. They could go with that. They could go with people's general love for animals. Instead, they, they come at people with, you're a piece of shit, you're, you're heartless, you're this, you're that. And they, people tune you out. And I've told this to vegans. I go, look, I'm, I'm the, the audience you're trying to reach. I am a meat eater. I do like animals. I do feel for animals. Uh, I'm the type of person that you'd want to convince. But you, you're really turning me off by the way you're approaching this. And you, by telling me I'm evil. Well, if you eat meat, you are evil. I go, no, but do, do you understand this is not going to win converts? I'm sorry, I have to speak the truth. I can't sugarcoat the truth that people are committing an animal holocaust. Blah, 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 blah. I go, oh, my God. Like, okay, you're not getting it. Goodbye. So this is kind of the way Negranu has approached his veganism to some degree in a holier-than-thou fashion and has turned a lot of people off. It's gotten a lot of people angry. And I wouldn't say this is indicative that he's stupid. It's just not the right tactic. Also, when you're in the position that Granu is as an ambassador of poker, this is where you don't try to alienate people or try to make people feel bad or or, or try to make people... Uh, feel like you're talking down to them. You don't do that. As an ambassador for anything, you try to be likable. You try to bring people into whatever you're promoting. You try to make it to where you appeal to the maximum number of people that you can. You don't... You you, you come out as divisive and lecturing and demeaning, then a lot of people are going to push away from you. And that's where Negron has made a lot of mistakes recently. And he'll say, well, I just like to speak my mind. I don't want to be phony. Well, don't be phony. Don't say anything you don't believe, but but also know your position. Know the position that you want to have, that you've chosen to have. And understand it comes with certain responsibilities and understand that you're turning a lot of people off when you act this way. And that vegans get very few converts when they come at people aggressively. So she's right about that, but she... I think she's going along the wrong lines, like saying that he's stupid. That's not really what it is. She does mention something interesting. Throughout the years, Daniel has been a strong proponent of both pros and recreational players. By doing so, he has made it obvious that he is both anti-pro and anti-rec. By now, everyone understands the topic of business operator versus recreational versus pro player. The key takeaway is that Negroni wants... All to hurt just as long as his own self-interest is preserved. Let us examine his prior statements. I'm paraphrasing things here, but you've all seen it before. Some of his comments uh, are, are some variant of the following at various points of time. More rake is better because it will keep the pros away. Every business has a fiduciary responsibility to its stakeholders to maximize profit. And pros are bad for poker and Rex want more fun games. 
What are the common themes here? And more importantly, what's the end goal of these statements? In other words, what output is the formula producing? Hurt the pros by reducing effects of skill, reducing win rates by elevating rake, harm their lifeblood and effectively make them poorer, hurt the wrecks but do so more surreptitiously by letting them slowly bleed to death, paying a much higher rake tax and unknowingly ensuring almost all their money goes to the operator. Ultimately hurt the business operator by reaching maximum profit quicker but without ways to grow the revenue base and increase operating margin over time and destroy the business long term. So this is kind of true. I don't know if Daniel's really thinking this as he's saying these things. I think he, in a way he was kind of brainwashed by poker stars to believe a lot of this crap. But yeah, it's uh, he, he has said a lot of anti-pro, anti-grinder stuff recently, which is simply annoying and in some cases uh, ill-advised and not even correct. And as she goes on, I'm not going to go through the whole discussion about the way businesses work and how, how they... Uh, maximize profit and that it's not the way people think that it's not always maximizing short-term profit, which is important. And she goes into this whole discussion with that whole economics discussion. I won't bother to read here, but but she does make the point. If you push out the rake paying pros and bankrupt the rake paying wrecks, the end result is that over time, the business is forced to raise the cost of playing even more and reduce expenses. So service support plummets. This leads to the business to ultimately go bankrupt as it cannot escape the vicious cycle. And yeah, that's, that, that is the problem. They've been, uh, that's why just raising the rake when fewer players come is not the answer. So anyway, this is a long essay about Daniel. and Some of the, some of the things uh, she's criticizing are fair. Some of the things she's saying are exaggerated or too hard on him. I agree much less with this essay than the first one I read you, but there are some good points, good and intelligent points raised here. And I, I still think it's worth a read. She also mentions that he uses a, quote, handful of impassioned words that incite the imbecile masses into action. These words and phrases are, I never, ever said that. You are wrong. You are a bully. You are evil. You will not disparage me. You are a liar. And yeah, I've seen that, too, where, where a lot of times he'll go play victim or say, you know, how can you say this or how can you say this about me or you're being a bully right now or you're being evil right now. And I've seen that. And then people bring up things he said, which are very similar to the things that he's complaining about. So over and over, he's shown to be a hypocrite when he criticizes the way certain people behave on, on, on social media. And that, that's also the type of thing he needs to stop. Like there's all these petty arguments and discussions he has out there that shouldn't be happening. So she got in one with him and he ended up blocking her, I think, and, and, and bashed her. And then a lot of other people bashed her and she got mad. And now she's just saying she might be leaving poker Twitter, which I don't think is a good reason to leave that Negranu and fans of his jumped on you. But that's what she's doing, supposedly. But anyway, go read these two essays. They're interesting. This is an interesting person. I would love to know more about her. I'd love to know what her real background is, how much poker she's actually played, how she knows about the old school poker environment so well from the 90s and and to some degree the 2000s. Very, very fascinating character, this Rachel Lee 69. And she does bring up some thought-provoking points, ones that I haven't considered or haven't thought about in a long time. Definitely, when you have some time, go read those essays. If you only have time for one, read the one about the poker world. That's the better of the two. Uh, Let's let's see here. Hopefully, I'm not going to be the subject of the third essay since I criticized some of the things she wrote here. 
But I think I've been more positive on her than negative. Hope she understands that, too. But hey, if I'm the subject of another essay, then so be it. Just like you, Rachel, I'm going to be honest with what I believe, what I think, and my reaction to things you've written. Speaking of Negranu, this subject was brought to me by a listener, by a vegetera who is in uh, Sweden. And he pointed out on Daniel's vlog, which I'll be honest, I don't watch, that he talked about people owing him money. And I watched the portion he told me to watch, and indeed it is worthy of a topic here. So we're going to fast forward to the part he tells me to fast forward to, which I've already watched before, but I think you guys are going to want to hear too. We've doubled up, got 120,000. But what he's talking about here, he's walking, he's walking out of the Amazon room in the Rio, and you actually get to see the route he takes through the back hallways, the secret back hallways of the Rio to get to his trailer. His trailer, he actually rents a trailer. I assume he rents it. He either rents or owns it, but he rents the space at the very least. Uh, it's parked right behind the convention center where the World Series of Poker takes place, and it's also right next to the employee entrance. There's a special employee entrance through the back hallways that uh, is connected to a the employee parking lot, which also houses the various trailers that are allowed to park there. Right? They have to pay some kind of rent to park there. But Daniel parks his trailer there for the entire World Series. That's where Daniel stays. I, I don't know what he does with his house during that time. And I don't know where Amanda is. I don't know if Amanda's in the trailer or she's at home and how many nights he spends in the trailer and how many times he just uses the trailer for breaks. I don't fully understand the trailer for someone who lives in Vegas. It's not even like he's saving on hotel rooms. I don't understand why he needs this trailer, and it's got to be expensive, but whatever. Uh, you get to see him walking out of there in the middle of an event, and I think this is the 10K triple draw. I think he had already busted the, the 25K uh, PLO event. So that's what he was doing. He was walking out, and he was doing pretty well in chips at this point. He had doubled up his 60K starting stack to 120K in this uh, 10K triple draw event. I got a question. Put it on Twitter. Curious, you know, I see a guy here in the triple draw playing the 10k. He owes me a lot more than 10k and has and hasn't really responded. And uh, he did it in a dishonest way where he said he's got a wire coming in three days, it's been a year. It's happened to me a lot, you know, and I've always had a policy of just kind of keeping it private and not going public with it. But I'm starting to think that maybe I'm on the wrong side of that morally and ethically. Like I think maybe it's better. I'm better off. Maybe it's probably better for the community if I just actually out people. I think I'm, it's pretty clear. It just feels so wrong. It feels dirty. Like it doesn't feel good to do that. Let me stop it right here. I can understand how frustrating this is that a guy owes him a lot of money. He says, quote, a lot more than 10 K and he sees the guy in a 10 K event. Now, Mind you, it's possible and probably, in fact, probable that this guy who's playing is not playing with his own money, that there's someone staking him in this 10K event. So it's not really his 10K he's putting up. But still, uh, to see this is bothersome, to see someone playing high-stakes poker when they owe you a lot of money. And Daniel's saying, why didn't you just pay me? And then apparently this guy used the old wire-is-coming excuse to borrow the money in the first place or to claim he's going to pay soon and then it never comes the wire coming soon excuses one that's so many different 
poker deadbeats and scammers have used. And apparently this guy used it on Negranu, and Negranu is now enraged enough to where he's considering outing this guy and others. Um, so, yeah, I'm kind of in that dilemma right now. It's, uh, it's a little frustrating sometimes, you know. When you, and I've, I've been in games where playing five-handed, playing with four guys who owe me money. <laughs> So he claims he actually has played a five-handed game before where all four people playing him owe him money. And that is that is kind of weird. Now, what I wonder is if you're playing four guys who owe you money, are they playing with your money? Probably not. There's probably people who've owed him for a long time and are playing with other people's money. So if you beat them, you do win their money. But if you lose to them... Wouldn't you have a right to say before they cash out, hey, can you give me some of that back? I would think so. You can't make them take it off the table during the play because it's not allowed. But once they're leaving, they could give you the money that they owe you. I would think, provided you try to do that, that that would actually be good to play poker with four people who owe you money, provided they're not sitting with money they directly got from you. You wouldn't want to lend someone money and have them sit right down and and play you. But if they're sitting with independent money they got from someone else and you can win that money from them, or if they beat you, that you can get some of that money right back from them, that's kind of a free roll for you in a justified way, but that... It sounds bad what he's saying, but if you think about it, it kind of makes sense why he'd want that. He doesn't explain further, which is too bad. You know, but again, I don't listen. First of all, first and foremost, I take 100% responsibility for the loans. I'm not playing victim here. The question isn't about, you know, the decision I made. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm at peace with it. The question is, should I make it public so that, you know, it doesn't happen to other people? And it feels like that's the right play. That's interesting. So he claims there's a number of people who owe him, and he's just decided to always handle it privately, and now he's rethinking it. And maybe he's starting to feel some guilt that keeping quiet is allowing these guys to scam others. Um, a lot of you are going to be really surprised. A lot of people you love in the community and think are like stand-up people with good reputations have absolutely screwed me for some money. Wow. Um, and then there's others who I would never tell you because they came to me and said, listen, I don't have any money right now. I'm going to grind. I need to borrow some, and uh, I'll pay you, you know, when I can. I would never, ever, ever, you know, break that, you know, out that person at all. It's the people that say, listen, uh, you know, it's going to save me a trip to L.A. I'll, you know, I'll be back in a couple of days with it, and they don't have it. Or I'll get a wire coming in, you know, in uh, a couple of days, and then, like, months go by, and a year goes by, and they come freaking third in the tournament, and I'm still waiting here like a chooch. You know, I feel like a chooch here, so I don't know. We may be making some drama bombs happen. I don't know. Think about it. Interesting. But I'm, I'm hoping the ones that he outs are, are truthfully ones who have really been scumbags to him. I would love for more people to be outed who are in bad financial shape and keep screwing people that are thought to have money. Look what happened with Ellie Lezra earlier this year. It went from, oh, Ellie such a successful businessman uh, he either makes money in poker or makes a lot of money in his business, whatever. This is a guy who's, who's a stand-up guy who's, who's got a lot of money to, oh, he's a deadbeat who owes a ton of people money for many years and won't pay. Narrative changed very fast. I'd, I'd love to see more of those outed, and hopefully Negroni will do it. I'd be supportive of this. Now, after this, you can't see this, but I'm going to read you what it says on the screen, which is unrelated to any of this money that is owed to him. 
playing music. You're seeing Vegas in the background. Oh, wait, hold on. This is him. <laughs> I'm going to play this part, too. It has nothing to do with what I just played you, but this is him walking out of the event where he got off to a good start. God, triple draw is not for the faint of heart. My goodness. We had 120,000 and turned it into dust at the three and six level, of course, but a lot of big bets. This was unreal, really. There's a hand I made a... I broke an eight correctly. Okay, I'm not going to go through the hand analysis, but let me get to the end here, uh, which goes to the final display. Lots of big events coming. 50K, that's one to win. We're going to gear up for that. But of course, for first, for first, we got to take care of the study on my tomorrow. So you hear the typing. It, it's like kind of like as letters are being typed on the screen by a typewriter. So it's day 23 minus... 1158. So I think he means coming to day 23, he was down $1158, which is, you know, pretty much even for him. Tiny bit down. And then it goes away. A little cashier cha-ching comes on. Well, it's a kind of a reverse cha-ching because it goes to minus 36158. So coming into that day, he was just about even, tiny bit below, but he entered two events, the 25K PLO, the 10K triple draw, bricked them both. There's 35K more. So it goes from 1158 to 36158. That's the 36k I was referring to before. Okay. Yeah. So I hope I hope he outs those people. And yeah, he walked out of that triple. It's, it's amazing how quickly your mood can change in these tournaments. You're doing well, you're going to a break, you've, you've got double the starting stack, everything's going well, and then you just come back and you just get clobbered and lose every hand, and then you just walk out a short time later, you're like, what the hell happened? Where'd all my chips go? That's how I felt in the 1500.08, the first event I played this year. I more than doubled my starting chip stack and then just lost every hand and I was gone. Just like that. I can relate. Okay, we've done a lot of Negranu talking. Let's uh, move on. Saw24 in chat says Daniel isn't going to out anyone. Yeah, there's a good chance he was just kind of hot under the collar about seeing that guy there, and now once he calms down, he's not going to do it. I can easily see that happening. In fact, I agree that's the more likely scenario here. Caller, you are on the air. Caller, hello. Hi, this is Tyrone Chen again uh, from Vegas. Can I talk about two subjects? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, by the way, is your real name Tyrone? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm Chinese, but uh, my uh, somehow my mother gave me an Irish name. Okay, okay. That's that's. Well, it wasn't so much Irish people were thinking. When they hear Tyrone, they think of a black guy. So people were surprised to hear a Tyrone that sounds like you. Uh, well, uh, I think she named me after Tyrone Power. Okay, I'm Chinese. I'm nowhere, nowhere is black. Okay, and and, and so, someone else texted me. They said they like. They said they liked your questions last week, but they they thought that you may have been drunk. Were you drunk when you called last week or no? Oh no, sir. I don't drink, sir. You don't drink. Don't, okay. No, All right. Very I good. Don't, only I only drink when I uh, only the, the cook food with alcohol. Okay. All right, so, so let's let's hear uh, your questions. Where are they? 
uh, here's another question. I think I sort of agree with you. Is I think Phil Helmer is a shameless promotion. Uh, he might be a good poker player, but he's not as good as he should be. Because the reason is that if you have all the everybody pay you to pay, in fact, if you don't have to cash, you still make money because they have a high high uh, high buy-in on the thing that uh, that he easy to win the uh, it's not easy but the, the chance of his way making bracelets is good because hey somebody give me a free roll if i don't make it you might make a bracelet make me more famous i can make all the money in the world in reality he's not that good Good. He might be a good poker player, but he's not one of the, to me, is one of the not top ten poker players. Okay, well, here, I'll say this. Okay. Just, First of all, at cash, I agree. When I played him in limit hold'em cash, he was, he was, I wouldn't say a fish, but he wasn't that good. He was, he was far below the uh, skill level of the good limit hold'em players. Uh, in fact, games actually went around him on ultimate bet. They were, he was kind of like the live one in the game. At tournaments, there's a reason he has 14 bracelets plus one at, uh, from Europe. And nobody else does. Uh, you can't take that away. You can't just say, "Oh, it's because he plays so many," or that he he was uh, being put in for many years. That what you say is partially true. That if you are just getting bought into a ton of events, the the chance of winning is more. And also that you could be more cavalier about it, to where it's not your money. You're playing either way. They're they're putting you in. Someone else's money is putting you in, and you don't have to worry if you win or lose. Because that's just part of your compensation. It's not even like someone backing you where you feel like you're, you're losing money for the backer. Here you're actually being put in by a company as part of your compensation and that uh, you can really just not care to just play it without any kind of pressure. And uh, that also helps in the the way you approach the tournament. And others can be a lot more nervous as they play. And that can be an advantage to you. And the sheer number you play, including events with small fields, gives you a much higher chance to win bracelets. But with that said, Phil has shown time and time again that uh, he's just an excellent tournament player, and that's why he is the leader in bracelets, and that's why he even still continues to win bracelets and even come close to winning others, uh, despite the game changing and all those young players who got better and who studied the game so much that he still has remained relevant after all these years, and I have to give him credit for that. But uh, is there a big element to being put in all those events? Is there a big element to how much money he has that he got for owning a part of UB all those years and never taking responsibility for the stuff they did? Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's those are all valid criticisms of his that, that you can put on him. And those are criticisms that I have given him both on this show and in person. And uh, Phil knows that I'm one of his critics there. In fact, when I got moved to his table last year at PLO8, uh, I, I saw he kind of didn't look happy about it. He looked like, oh, no, one of the few people who's willing to talk shit to me in person. Because most people are, are like, a lot of people will criticize Phil online or on social media, but when they sit with him, like, oh, Phil Helmuth, I'm so happy to be with you here. Like, they either say nothing or they kiss his ass. I'm one of the few who actually talks shit to him, and I know this because I, I sit there for a long time and nobody else says anything except me, even those that get berated or afraid to say anything back. So... Uh, I'm not the only one in the world who will talk shit back to Phil or start up with Phil, but I, I'm one of a, a, a small number of people who will. And 
So he, he does deserve a lot of the criticism he gets, but I at the same time, I have to be fair, he does have more bracelets than anybody, and he does... Continue- well, uh, well, I agree with you, sir, that, that everything you say is quite true. I didn't say he's not a good poker player, but certainly I, I don't think he's one of the top ten. In, uh, in, in it, it, overall, in poker, maybe not, but but in tournaments, especially no limit hold'em tournaments, I, I'd have to I would have to put him uh, up at the top because of uh, the, the results say it. And even even entering a whole lot of them, there's a lot of people who enter them all now or enter most of them, and they don't have quite the same results. So it's uh, and even in modern times, you can't even say, well, he won all these in 1993. This is he's still doing it in modern times, and that's uh, that's pretty good. So I, I still give him. A lot of credit for poker tournament-wise, but I also criticize him for a lot too, as, as people have heard on the show. Second, the second topic I have, which is a little bit related, is that uh, I think that it's also very shameless of WSOP that continue to each year give out more or more bracelets, so uh, sort of. Uh, then sort of uh, below your bracelets winning because at that time there's not that too many bracelets giving. Now, now it's double the amount, especially what you say is online bracelets. They don't deserve anything. They are not the same class. Just like you say, it's just not deserving to be a bracelet. Yeah. You know, just devalue everybody bracelets. So, so I'm sorry. Your 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 bracelets is worth quite a bit in the past, but uh, right now it's a little bit devalued. Well, yeah. Okay. So I, I'll say this: that I there's two types of bracelets I don't like. I don't like the online bracelets, and I don't like the bracelets for low buy-in World Series events. That uh, I, I feel those actually also are taking away from the spirit of the World Series of Poker, which is supposed to be a competition of mostly good players. And uh, when you end up with a, a 28,000 entry document, which you can get in for 500 bucks, uh, then it more becomes of who can run well for, for six days. And, and it's less about... Uh, about the skill. Now, of course, you had. I'm not saying the person who won didn't have skill. I'm not taking away that accomplishment. Uh, if I happened to win it, I would have been proud. But I'm saying, and and yes, it's it's a as I said earlier in the show, it's a big feat to beat that many players. But it's it's different. It's different because there there becomes such a luck element to running deep in it, and I, I especially if you take into account inflation. If you think about what $500 is worth today compared to 1970 when the World Series started, that's if you if you go back to that, people are entering for what like 70 dollars. You're you're actually playing like $70 tournaments in 1970. Uh, if you account for inflation for a bracelet, which I think is is stupid. So I I think that buy-ins they don't need to be really high, but at least $1000. And why? I, I, it's not that I feel that people who don't have a money should be shut out. I just feel that to be able to win a bracelet, I feel you need to have been successful enough at poker to be able to afford to enter for at least $1,000, at least put up that type of money 
to be able to compete in the first place. And if you can't, then go play more poker and, and win your way up there to be able to play it. Now, yes, some people have existing money from other sources that they could use to enter, but at least have the buy-in be something four figures so it's meaningful enough as far as the entry fee. And uh, and, and then second, uh, have it all be live. This online thing is, is a totally different animal. It, it just shouldn't be bracelets. And that that's I, I agree there's too many of those type of bracelets being given out. Now if they were just running more events that were of the that's same what, class that that, that I'm fine my, with. Huh? Oh you don't you don't mind that. Huh? I don't mind that there's more events. I just mind that a lot of them shouldn't be bracelet events at all. The the online, the three hundred dollars, the six hundred dollars, the five hundred dollars, I don't like those events having bracelets. That I don't like. Oh, I see. I see. You have time for one more quick question? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, you know that one of the things I, I like to listen to your show is you also talk about video poker sometimes. You know that uh, my wife used to be a uh, um, he she makes her money in video poker, video poker quite yeah. a bit, a video poker. But the time the time is gone. Yes, uh, I think that the, the advantage is you, you're no longer able to to make money. Well, I shouldn't say no longer, but uh, less and less because the casino had catch up on that. But well, this is my point. Yeah, this this is my point. It's really related to poker tournament in the sense. My wife used to be not put in a single dollar unless you have a little bit positive return. Uh, re, 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 return. Uh, either uh, casino give you edge, uh, give, give you money to play, uh, uh, or the casino think you're a high roller or something like that. You know, she run everything, and and it's a, it's, a, it's a skill. But this is my question to you related to tournament poker. It's really that uh, the edge is not there. The tournament, the the edge, no, uh, the edge. I forgot to ask you is that let's say, let's say the best p- poker tournament player, what percentage of edge do you think you have? I don't you know. Think the top five. I don't see. I don't know. See, that, that's that's a question people have been pondering for a while now, and it's very hard to come up with that answer. It's just a, it's a very difficult thing to quantify. Uh, but uh, th- there are edges that can be had. Like if you, take the fifteen hundred limit hold'em tournament. If if we could take that exact tournament with the exact same players, and let's say I got to play this every day for a year, I would I would make money. Mm-hmm. I, I'd beat the rake. I would make money at it. I would uh, I would do very well. Because I, I'm much better at limit hold'em than the average player. There's a lot of people in that event. There are good, other good limit hold'em players in that, don't get me wrong. But there are a lot of people who are much below me in skill there where playing it every day for a year would, would balance out the luck factor, whereas playing it uh, once a year does not. So that's uh, so there's definitely a skill advantage there and enough of one to where I could overcome the rake even. Uh, so... There are high enough edges people have to where they are overcoming the rake and and even overcoming their expenses. How much it is, I don't know. And a lot of people do, of course, overestimate their edge. And in some some cases, they they have no edge 
once you take out those factors of the rake and once you take the rake, the rake into account, the travel expenses into account, and even in some cases, some people believe they are better than average players when they're not. Some people are actually worse than average in certain tournaments. You think that you could be anywhere from fifteen to twenty percent? You're saying it's hard it, to say, huh? Oh, you no, you can. I think you could be. Oh, yeah, you could easily be fifteen to twenty percent. Easily, you could be more than that if you're. If you're, uh, it depends on the tournament too. It depends how. Oh, how it depends how tough the competition is. So, uh, so, but so, so, so the rate is uh, ten or thirteen percent. You you think you can beat, beat the rate? Basically, you you have. Twenty percent edge. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, you can you can definitely have that because yeah. you you yeah. really can have a big oh, edge in these. I see. Yeah, but but. Uh, oh, I I see, I see. I uh, that's a, that's something uh, I always ask some of my friends go to the tournament, uh, uh, especially WSOP. You know, they they put their uh, meager money quite a bit to go to the WSOP. I said. I said, you you be better off paying cash. Well, they probably would. You have... They probably would because the, the variance is less, and there's there's less expenses to go there, and less time you have to invest, and you're you're on the WSOP schedule, not your own. And uh, but people like the the fun of it. They like the, the chasing the bracelet. They like uh, the chance of winning the big money from a, a buy-in that's much smaller. There's a lot of reasons tournaments appeal to people. Where whereas cash isn't as exciting, so that's that's why people play it. That's even to some degree the reasons I play it. So that's uh, hopefully that answers your question. Uh, thank you for calling it again this week. And uh, yeah, 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 Dan. Just thank you very much. I I want you to know that uh, I really basically listen. It's a good uh, lesson to you. I sort of admire all the topic you talk about. You mentioned something that we are talking about poker. Uh, I wish you best of luck. You're going to play in WLSB in the future. Yeah, well, the future's coming very soon. Okay. I'll, be, I'll be in an event in uh, about three and a half days. Yeah, so. okay. uh, three and a half days. Yep. Day. Okay. Oh, okay. Thank you very much. Okay, so. thank, thank you, Tyrone. You know, we may have the only Chinese Tyrone caller of any talk show anywhere. That's one thing we can claim. That's one claim to fame poker fraud alert radio may have. Good questions, though. He always comes up with some interesting questions, and, and the, the fans like him. The, the listeners have given me positive feedback on Tyrone, who's been a kind of a newer caller to this show. All right, next topic. The Lips Poker Tour is a series of events that take place around the country, which are women's events. And the Lips Poker Tour was founded by Lupe Soto, who's also the one who is in charge of the Women in Poker Hall of Fame. Nice woman. I got to know her last year. And something pretty embarrassing happened involving the Lips Poker Tour in its current Las Vegas stop. But it was not even the fault of Lips. It was the fault of the venue. So I want that to be clear here as we do this segment that this was actually the fault of the Orleans where it took place. So listen to this. This was a post on Real Grinders from Taylor Nicole Williams. I don't know her, but... I believe her account of what occurred. She finished in second place at a tournament, but she left pretty angry and not because she didn't win heads up. Listen to this. Just finished second in the Lips $200 shootout event at the Orleans. In the process, I got berated by a man in the tournament who got to join. 
got called a fucking bitch multiple times by a man, heard a lot of the guys talking about how soft it was going to be. A guy was so rude to this woman, it looked like she wanted to cry. Real amazing for a ladies' event. Congratulations to the guy who won it. It's a man, baby! (laughs) So, a man ended up winning the $200 No Limit Hold'em shootout at the Orleans, a ladies' tournament. A man won it. How'd this happen? And that's who she lost to heads up. This Nicole, or Taylor Nicole Williams was second place, and the winner, who I can't seem to identify, I can't seem to find this in Handed Mob, but the winner was a man, an actual man. Yeah, baby! So how did this happen? We're going to talk about that in a second. She wrote, I'm not even pissed about losing. The guy I lost to was very nice. So I guess it's not one of them that called her a fucking bitch or made other derogatory comments. This, this was a nice man who played a ladies' tournament. I'm pissed about it being promoted, a ladies, on Card Player and multiple other places, and then them promoting it as an open event at the very last minute. I'm also extremely pissed at how a lot of the ladies were treated by some of these men that entered in what was supposed to be a ladies' event. A lot of women don't feel comfortable playing in other events besides ladies' events already, and I think it's bullshit. What I saw from some of the guys who entered it tonight was absolutely disgusting, We're supposed to be trying to get more women into poker, and tonight did not help. So Taylor Nicole Williams, the second-place finisher at the $200 No Limit Hold'em Ladies Shootout on the Lips Tour, is very angry. Not because she lost to a man. She says that that guy at least was nice. She is mad at something that happened in the organization of this event, where it was promoted everywhere at first as a ladies' event, which it should have been, and then at the last minute it was promoted as just a regular open event, and a lot of men showed up. So how did this happen? Let's talk about this. First of all, they cannot prevent men from registering. That's against federal law. The only way they can prevent men from registering is doing what the World Series does, and that is charging a discount, or I guess giving a discount, to women who register. So you make the event like $2,000, and then you give an $1,800 discount to women. This way men would pay 10 times to enter, and they usually wouldn't do that. That's what the World Series does, that the quote, 10K ladies' event is actually only a 1K event if you're actually female, and you only pay the 10K if you're male. And that's what has been keeping men out of the event. That's the only way they can do it. They cannot, by federal law, discriminate against men and not allow them to play. Personally, I think that men should stay out of the ladies' events. They shouldn't be insulted. They shouldn't feel like it's a joke. They should understand that a lot of women are new to poker. A lot of women don't like the aggressive environment in poker and they want to kind of introduce themselves to the game by playing in a gentler environment like a ladies tournament so you have to respect that it's it's nothing that men should be angry about or frustrated about there aren't that many of these so just let the ladies play and don't do this but that's not what really happened here because these men showed up believing it was a regular $200 shootout and then they got there, and I don't know if they were told it's a ladies' event, or I don't know if they registered and only found out later. But the way this whole thing happened was the Orleans screwed up. The Orleans promoted it as an open event. I don't know if they did this on purpose because it wasn't getting a good response, or if this was an accident because they didn't realize it was a ladies' event. I don't know how they couldn't realize that since this is whole, a whole like ladies' tournament series, the Lips tournament series. But somehow the Orleans screwed up and they are the ones who put out the word this is an open event 
when it wasn't. And that's what caused the men to show up. And at that point, I don't know if the men just said, screw it, we're here anyway, we're still going to play. Or if they registered and by the time they sat down and played, they realized they were in a ladies' event, it was too late. I don't know what happened there. But something happened to where a lot of men ended up playing. But fine. Let's say these men ended up in the tournament without realizing what they were doing until they had already sat down and it was too late to unregister. At that point, at least treat the ladies nicely. If this happened to me, I wouldn't be a jerk to the women at the table. I'm never a jerk to the women at the table, unless they're jerks to me first. And that's the same way I treat men. If someone at the table's nice to me, I'm nice back to them. If they're not nice to me, then I'm a jerk back to them. That's how I treat everybody, regardless of gender or anything else. So if I was in a ladies' event accidentally then I'd make the best of the situation and apologize and say, hey, look, I didn't realize what this was. Now that I'm here, I'm kind of stuck, so I'm just going to play normally. And if I win, I win. If I don't, I don't. And sorry for being here. If I discovered it was a ladies' event before registering, I wouldn't register. I would just leave. And let's face it, people aren't coming all the way to Vegas to play a $200 shootout. So clearly these were mostly locals, especially at the Orleans, and they easily could have turned around and gone home if they realized it before they registered. The Orleans... I don't know how they could have allowed this to happen or why they didn't get more insistent when these men were registering. Hey, you know you're registering for a ladies' event. We can't technically prevent this, but uh, yeah, we, we'd prefer it if you didn't. So, I don't know. Put it some way to where a lot of guys are guilted out of entering. And you know, there were obviously some jerks there that were saying, oh, we're going to make a lot of money now. This is a ladies' event. This is going to be super soft. Like, you, you don't say things like that. Even if you're thinking it, if you're thinking, okay, wow, now that I'm in this, this is a great opportunity. You keep that to yourself. You don't say that and make the ladies there feel bad because a lot of these are beginners who are learning and this is the environment they want to learn in. And that's fine. Now, I've heard the arguments they shouldn't have ladies tournaments. Uh, poker isn't something where your gender is a disadvantage because there's nothing physical about it. So unlike women's sports, because women do not have the same physical abilities as men, uh, that makes sense to have women's sports and men's sports, but poker, it's a mental game. So people are asking why separate it? Well, that makes sense for most events, but uh, it's good to have ladies' events available so women can get introduced to poker. There's a very, very big gender gap in participation in poker to where it's mostly men, as I'm sure you've seen. I bet when you've played poker it's all men at the table many times. That's what I find many times is it's 100% dudes at my table. So anything to help more women get into the game is good, and you shouldn't disrupt that. That's my opinion. But the Orleans really blew the situation here, and I don't understand how this happened. And rather than continuing to guess at it, we're going to make a phone call, or shall I say Colonel Fabersham is going to make a phone call. Yeah, baby. Orleans Poker Room, Jeremy speaking. How may I help you? Uh, hello, Colonel Nigel Fabersham here. Um, I know it's a rather late hour here, but um, I've got a question about um, a certain tournament that occurred here recently. It's something rather unusual that occurred, and uh, I'd I just like to understand an explanation for the whole thing. Um, okay. My wife came down, and we're all the way from London, so she doesn't get to play very much poker in the States. But uh, we saw that there was a poker tournament, a $200 no-limit shootout that was uh, for ladies only. It was called, called the Lips Tournament. I don't, I don't know why they call it the Lips. I think in some ways that could be offensive if you think about the wrong type of lips, you know, the lips down there rather than the lips up here. But uh, putting all that aside, um, 
I, I sent her down there to, to play this tournament. And she, she had never played a poker tournament before. And I, I said, this is a good one to play because you're going to be being, playing against all women. So you won't have uh, men saying degrading things at the table. Um, you won't have men being overly aggressive. This is a good place to start. So she came down there, and, and she was most disappointed to see that there are many men in the tournament, not just one or two who wanted to be uh, rabble-rousers, but I'm talking about uh, several men who, uh, who chose to, to be disruptive and, and to be in the tournament. Um, uh, upon playing further, she found out from some of the men that uh, this was actually promoted by the Orleans as a regular tournament incorrectly, that uh, somehow the word was put out improperly, and um, a, a bunch of men showed up believing it was just a regular tournament, and once they were there, they said, well, um, when in Rome, and they uh, registered anyway. Uh, do you have any knowledge of this uh, situation? This is a few days ago. Yeah, what day was it specifically? Uh, I believe it was on, uh, on June 18th. It was a two hundred dollar oh, uh, lip shootout. Okay, so she played the six p.m. tournament, then the night tournament, right? Yeah, it was, it was a two hundred dollars buy-in. I I, okay. I I don't quite remember the time, but um. yeah, uh, yeah. So that tournament uh, is a ladies' event. There's a, a company that runs ladies' event tournaments called Lips. Yes, yes. And part of their organization is basically they're not allowed to. Uh, so, like, legally, we're not allowed to basically say that only women can play in a bed. The only thing that we can do is basically charge them more money. Well, we don't charge them more money. We actually give all the ladies a reduction. So all the women pay $200, and uh, men pay $400, so twice the buy-in. So most of the time, people don't buy in for it. Now, we can't prevent people from registering, so they don't get the reduction because they're men. So they actually would have had to have paid twice as much to enter into that tournament. It's the only way that we can basically – so legally you're not allowed to basically say that someone is not allowed yes, to register yeah, and, and, for and a tournament. I, I'm and aware so of that. People and... can register for it, but they, they if there were any men in that tournament, which uh, you know I don't have that number in front of me basically of if there were or how many, but they would have had to have paid twice as much. For well, the, uh, the, the gentle um, woman who won the whole thing was actually a man. You know, it's, it's, it's rather foolish that the, uh, the, the individual who won a ladies' tournament actually has a penis. But uh, putting that aside... Um, yeah, I, I mean, that's always been the case in every U.S. tournament. It's because we have, uh, you know, uh, there's federal laws that yes. basically say that you can't, you can't basically charge, you can't, uh, yes. you know. And, and you I've, know, been, I've been told that, but that's not really my question, because I, I realize you can only do what federal law allows you to do, and that's, uh, that's yeah. understandable. However, um, I guess my two questions are, number one, I was told that uh, the reason so many men showed up for this particular event is that it was mispromoted by the, the Orleans, actually, that... This Lips uh, group, they promoted it properly, but somehow the Orleans, when they promoted it, they forgot to mention that it was ladies only. Is, is this true? No. Uh, we Every piece of material that I have shows that tournament as being a Lips tournament. That would just be something someone might have said but misunderstood. All right, uh, we've yeah. never... I mean, that, that tournament's been advertised for the past uh, two, two and a half months, and from day one, that it's been a LIPS event. All right. And the, the second question now, is... People it, might come in not understanding what LIPS means and then decide to pay the extra $200. That's completely up to them. Now, but. wouldn't it be smarter to actually put on the literature, say, uh, um, LIPS ladies tournament and ladies this, ladies that? Wouldn't that be uh, more clear to, to, it, to, to, to those coming yeah, down? It, it has it on this sheet right in front of me here. It says it's a LIPS event, and then at the bottom it has a guide saying like that LIPS is a ladies' international poker series, and that uh, you know 
basically that they get a reduction in their their tournament cost. Right. And that men I mean, I understand that, but don't you think it'd be uh, more clear to have on every event ladies this, ladies that, than than a gentleman who comes down can say, "Oh, I didn't know this is the ladies event." You can say, "Look, you stupid bloke, look at this right here. It says ladies two hundred dollar shootout." You know, what, what do yeah, you think you are? Do you? It's that lips organization. They don't want us. They want us advertising it as a lips organization because they're like a ladies. Uh, they're like a, a ladies' international poker group that hosts these worldwide, and they want us advertising their name, and that's why when that event gets attached, it gets attached to the Lips name. It's All right, like a name brand. I mean, they could, they could have put so. down uh, both Lips and ladies, but you know, that aside here, yeah. um, my other question is, I know at the World Series of Poker, they... Uh, for the ladies' event there, which is a bit uh, a bit rich for my blood, I don't want to give my wife a thousand dollars to play an event she doesn't quite know what she's yeah. doing yet. But uh, two hundred is one thing, but a thousand even you know even when you translate yeah. uh, pounds to dollars, it's still too much. So yeah, um, very high. But but what I've noticed they do at the World Series when I look this up, it says it charges ten thousand for men. And 1,000 for women. Now, that's a factor of yeah. 10. And uh, to my knowledge, since they started to do that, um, no men have entered because it's such a tremendous uh, uh, increase. But uh, every, every year, to my knowledge, that they've had a ladies' event, they've always had men. Well, I, I don't know. There's been if, one year that there hasn't if been. If there event. have been, it's got to be pr- pretty unusual because to, to have to pay a 10 times premium, uh, that, that's, yeah, that's I mean, rather crazy. Uh, last year, I mean, I don't know what this year's going on because I don't really pay keep up with it. But uh, I know last year there were like 15 or 20, and the year before that, about the same. Actually, there were even more. Like four or five years ago, I think there were like thirty or forty that actually registered. Well, so okay, it, but, but it what I'm saying here, the the, it, the point know. I'm making is, how come it's only twice as much? Because someone who who, who uh, would that's, that's a lips policy. So the, so they're not the ones. To, they're not the ones who decided. You know, couldn't they make it uh, two thousand instead of two hundred? Yeah, then I, mean, I bet would keep them their, out. That would be their decision because it's their organization. Oh, see, I did not do that. I, I thought this is the Orleans decision. All right, so um, I, I guess so I may have some questions for them. Tournaments into this. It's like if you we. Were run a WPT event, we have to adhere to their rules. It's the same thing. It's a LIPS event, so we have to adhere to their rules. Right. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to ask these questions of them because I had been told that uh, this was the uh, the fault of the Orleans. The Orleans had incorrectly promoted this as no. a uh, as as and that's what my wife heard when she was playing the Orleans mispromoted it and then uh, this yeah, whole that, thing about the buy in like only being double that sounds like something one of the men said as an excuse to buy into the tournament it might have been you know it's it, that's that's yeah. rather unfortunate so my wife heard someone saying oh this is going to be a piece of cake look at all these women these women are terrible at poker this is going to yeah, be so I easy mean, to win and people said this out loud and it made her she, she was very sad she says she says Nigel can you just bring me back to London I just uh, I don't want to play anymore and I. I had yeah. I had to convince her that this was just um, uh, it was an unusual circumstance. I had to tell her. Yeah, I mean, no matter what, we can't prevent people from registering. The only thing we can do is try to delay them, and that's uh, again the lips policy, not not ours. All right. Well, uh, thank you for your time in explaining this whole thing, and I think I understand better. Uh, tally, hope yep. uh, pip pip. Let's get on with it. Yep. Thanks. Okay. Bye. <laughs> well, I don't know what to say here. Uh, this is a bit surprising. Uh, this guy, he kind of seemed to know what he was talking about, but maybe, maybe he had the wrong info. I didn't get to see the actual post, but someone on Real Grinders said that, uh, Lupe Soto posted elsewhere. I couldn't find it. I looked for it. I, I should have asked her directly, but I forgot. But th- that she said that this was a gaffe by the Orleans. And it's, it's hard for me to believe she made that mistake. She tends to be pretty with it and doesn't make these type of mistakes. But this guy seems pretty certain that 
both of these things were basically Lip's fault. Number one, not making it really clear on the flyer that these are ladies' events. And number two, that they're the ones who decided to only make it double, which is odd too. Like why not make it 10 times to really drive the men? Why not make it 20 times? You make it high enough, at some point the men aren't going to play. And if they do, I guess they can welcome it at that point if they're adding that much to the prize pool. Like, let, let's take a super extreme example. Let's say they said, okay, it's 200 for women and 200,000 for men. If a man showed up and paid 200,000, they'd be kissing his feet. <laughs> they'd be saying, you know, thanks for pumping up the prize pool, buddy. You can play all you want. So at some point, it's worth it to them to have the men pumping up the prize pool by paying such a tremendous premium. I think even 10 times the women would be happy to see that. But they can make it as high as they want, I believe. And either prevent them from entering or really pump up their prize pool for the few that do. I don't know if any men really still enter the World Series. He claims they got 15 of them at the ladies. I, I don't know. I don't know if I believe that 15 guys were entering. There there may be a few. It's hard to believe that 15 would enter for 10K when it's really a 1K event. But that aside here, I am curious now who messed up the promotion of this, if anybody. Maybe the promotion was never messed up. Maybe nobody did it. Maybe... Lips didn't mess up and the Orleans didn't mess up and dude just showed up because they figured, hey, $400, that's easy. Or they just didn't understand what Lips meant. And once they were over there, they said, okay, well, twice as much? Okay, no big deal. I think the f- the field is soft enough to beat it. I can see guys thinking that too, especially because they were already there. Uh, this is definitely something that needs to be looked into in order to – you can't completely prevent it as the law prohibits – shutting out men, but you can do all you can to, number one, make it very clear this is a ladies' tournament, even if it's redundant, you know, maybe put ladies in several places all over the flyer and other material promoting it, and number two, to charge a lot more than double. So maybe I'll ask Lupe about this. I'll have to dig up her phone number, and I'll ask her for her take on this whole thing. They've been running these for a while. These Lips is not a new organization. It's existed for many years. Like I I think like a decade it's been around. So this is not something that just showed up and nobody understands it. That's that's what's so weird is that it happened on this event and not the others to my knowledge. Not that men haven't also played the other events, but the, this one had a lot of men in particular to where Women commented on it out there, and uh, Lupe Soto commented somewhere else. So I'm curious to hear what was different about this one, what happened. We heard the Orleans side on this call, and I guess we'll hear the other side. Uh, I guess I'll update this next time. We'll do further investigation, and we will see what happens. Let's move on to another Poker Fraud Alert exclusive. The Cosmopolitan. There are rumors that have been given to me. I have a source. I won't tell you what kind of source, but I have a source who has told me that the Cosmopolitan is not only for sale, but that a sale is going to be complete very soon and that by the end of August, it will have new ownership. I was told that this is not a certainty, but that it's looking a lot like this will happen. And the timetable is also not a certainty. But that this is the most promising a sale has looked since uh, these rumors started 
a year and a half ago. And people are kind of tuning them out now because they've heard this since early 2018, and then it doesn't sell. So they're like, okay, well, we don't believe it anymore. It's like the boy who cried wolf. But now it appears to really be happening. In April was the last time we heard about a cosmopolitan sale. The current owner, the Blackstone Group, was supposedly putting it up for sale in April. The Blackstone Group bought it in uh, 2014 for $1.73 billion. That was the first major investment into gaming properties for Blackstone. They... They had owned a small stake in Caesars in the past, but this was much, much larger. Then after the $1.73 billion purchase, they spent half a billion dollars on renovations. These might end up being worth it because there are rumors that the sale price of the property, and these are the ones I heard in April, not uh, not in the – I haven't heard about a price – from this latest rumor that was told to me personally. But I was told that uh, back in April, the property was worth $100 billion. Well, maybe not. But it was worth $4 billion, apparently. That was the presumed uh, asking price for the Cosmo, which has been successful. In 2008... Deutsche Bank actually had control of the Cosmo because the original owners group defaulted on loans. This was uh, from the 2008 financial crisis that hit Vegas very badly. And eventually it sold to Blackstone in uh, 2014. They did spend about $4 billion on the property in the first place. So Blackstone got a bargain. The Cosmos still has a positive outlook. It does get the young and hip crowd. It has basically stolen the market once held by the Palms. It has a high average hotel price per night. Each room goes on average for 330 a night, average throughout the year, much more on the weekends, but that's the average price that each room sells for, which is a lot. It's got a good center strip location right next to city center. It's got a lot of restaurants that are well regarded. They have two very large towers with a ton of hotel rooms. So it, it is a profitable property. And that's why it probably will sell for something like uh, $4 billion. Again, I haven't heard how much it will sell for if this upcoming sale is true. But I was told that they're preparing for it. Like internally in the Cosmopolitan, they're starting to prepare 
for a change in ownership. And that's what I was told. Not just, hey, there's a rumor it's going to sell. I was told that there's actually internal preparations now for this ownership change that's coming very, very soon. And that there's a very good chance by the end of August that we're going to hear they have a new owner. Maybe even sooner than that. For you, the player, will this mean much of a change? Probably not. They are probably just going to quietly change hands and most things will remain the same. It's one of these cases of it, if it works, don't fix it. They've already made the renovations. There isn't that much to do as far as changing anything for the new owner. This isn't like they're buying some failing property that needs all kinds of work. It's not like when the Rio eventually sells, that's going to have either a lot of change or it's going to get wrecked, most likely. This, uh, it's, it's something that's doing fine as is and doesn't really need that much done for it, if anything. It's more just who owns it. So for the players, it may seem kind of transparent, like they don't even notice anything. But there's a good chance it really is going to sell this summer. After almost 18 months of rumors about it being for sale. So keep in mind you heard it here first. Just like I told you guys in December of 2017. Not 18, 17. December 2017 that the Caesars Convention Center is going to have the World Series of Poker. And it will probably happen in 2020. And now everybody's saying, well, it's going to go to the convention center in 2020. Well, who said that first? So remember who said this first, that the Cosmos probably going to sell and be in new hands by the end of August. We will see. Maybe I'll be wrong, but the, the preparations have already started, so I've been told. Moving on, Brandon Steven has agreed to a very large fine in order to stay out of prison over the whole matter regarding the Kansas underground poker games that were busted. We've talked about this before on this show. It's an interesting story mainly because it involved law enforcement officers who were part of the game who were attempting to prevent the game from getting busted by identifying undercover officers they noticed at these games, and they ran plates on vehicles of these suspected officers to see if they came back as official state vehicles, which they were, and that also tipped them off the suspected cops in the game who were there to bust it were there for that purpose. Some of these officers were charged with obstruction after this whole matter. These games were illegal, that's why they were underground, and they were raked. That's usually the factor which is used as to whether or not to bust a game. If you're just having a home game with your buddies where no rake is taken, then even though you're running an unlicensed poker game, uh, typically this is not something that law enforcement cares about because no rake is taken. The house is not running a game for profit. It's just a game being run among friends. They go after games that pretty much emulate card rooms or casinos by taking a rake out of each pot. 
where the house ends up winning without ever, without ever having to play a hand of poker themselves. So these were raked games in Kansas, and you had to get invited to these games. That was their way to keep cops out, but when the word gets around enough of these games, eventually under, undercover officers can manage invites over there. The They were helped out for a while that they had cops that were working for them who were helping out those who were showing up to these games in order to investigate it. For a while, the name Brandon Steven was going around. He was a high-stakes player. He's played a number of high-roller events. And he's a very rich guy, and there was some suspicion that he actually was uh, involved in either bankrolling or running this entire operation in Kansas City. So his his name was being thrown around. There was even some belief that he would end up seeing prison time over this entire thing. Uh, Brandon Steven, according to his Hinded Mob, has caches such as a first place at an Aria High Roller event for 50k buy-in for uh, 648,000. This is back in 2016. Uh, he played the 111k one-drop event at the World Series in 2016 and finished 10th for 384,000, which sounds like a lot, but it's only about triple his buy-in. He also has, let's see, a he also cashed in the 2013 111K1 drop for 621,000 in 7th place. A 25K WPT also in 2013, he finished in 5th place for 223K. And he has a number of smaller caches as well. A little further back uh, at the main event in 2010, for some reason that keeps coming up, the same one I ran deep in, he finished in 10th, just missing the final table. That was probably his best accomplishment here. Uh, he missed the November 9 by one person. Somebody didn't even know that. Just noticing that looking at his Hendon mob. Uh, he has come to an agreement to pay a very large fine. One million dollars. More. One million ninety-five thousand dollars. He's going to be on probation for three years and has already paid that fine of one million ninety-five thousand dollars, which represents the profits from that game which really seems to indicate that he was the owner of it. Or at least these are the profits he made from the game. This game ran for a long time. That's why it made such profit of millions, or at least one million. The manager of the game, David Flax, pled guilty in January 2018 regarding the game's operation. Brandon Steven is known as a businessman in Wichita, Kansas, and 
probably was the owner or one of the main owners of this game. He does avoid prison time, provided he doesn't screw up further. He got uh, also 200 hours of community service. But he is not going to spend time in prison. And he can actually cut the probation down to 18 months later on if everything's going well with it. Judge Gwyn Beiser Berzer Gwyn Berzer said I do believe that the sentence is sufficient Brandon Stephen exercised proper remorse and did understand the consequences of his actions I don't know about that <laughs> I, I doubt he has remorse And I doubt that he understood the consequences Of running a private poker game He probably just had remorse that he was caught I doubt he's sitting there going Oh man, I really hurt society By running that underground poker game Oh boy, I really screwed people there I really did some bad things But I'm, I'm reformed now What a piece of shit I was to run that game No, he, he got caught And now is expressing fake remorse So they don't make him spend time in prison. This is not surprising. Uh, the very rich person who committed some form of uh, mostly victimless crime that's technically against the law, that he gets away without actual prison time, that usually with uh, excellent, well-connected attorneys and without any real victims that can be pointed to, other than just society in general, uh, usually you can worm out of prison time. So he has managed to do that. It doesn't really bother me that he managed to do this. I mean, he was just running an illegal poker game. I haven't heard that the game cheated anyone, just that it wasn't legal, wasn't licensed, wasn't allowed, made money from the rake. So while I don't, you know, people say, oh, why are they doing this? This is a miscarriage of justice. I understand why they do it, because there's a reason there needs to be regulation for these games. You never know if these games could be cheating you. You, you never know if, if a dispute comes up there, you could get screwed. There's, a, there's no protection for the players in these games, and the rake tends to be incredibly high, too. And also the operators of these games make good money, as you see from the million-dollar settlement he gave, which represented the profits he supposedly made from the whole thing. And they're making all this money because there's very little competition and they're willing to break the law. And these underground games would not do nearly as well if they had to compete with card rooms that could exist legally. And I never look at businesses which are running illegally that get busted and say, oh, man, they didn't deserve that. That's so unfair. No, it's unfair to everybody else that who, who follows the law that they can't run a business like this. If I would run a certain business with that sort of profit potential but don't because I don't want to go to jail, it isn't fair to me who's not running it only because I don't want to go to jail that someone is running it and making all kinds of money. And if they don't get busted at some point, then it's not fair to everybody else who follow the rules. And I'm not a stickler for rules type. Some people confuse me as a stickler for rules type. I'm not. I hate stickler for rules types because these are usually people who just say, well, them's the rules, without really thinking about the reason they're the rules, the reason the rules need to be enforced, the reason the rules are there, and if the rules are good in the first place. 
So I'm never a big rules guy, but I, at the same time, when there are rules, you can't just allow people to not follow them and get away with it while those who follow them get screwed. And that's an important point to think about. Not what running illegal poker games do to society or or, or, or blah, blah, blah. I, I don't care about that stuff. The, the point is that when something is illegal and certain people get to profit from everybody else's fear to engage in the illegal business because of the consequences of jail, it's not fair not to go after those who are doing this. So that's why when these rooms get busted, I don't say, oh, this is so terrible. How could they be doing this? If you run a business that is illegal, then you are taking the chance that you're going to go to prison. And if the state does go after it and sends you to prison, you have no one to blame for yourself. You knew you were breaking the law when you did it. You made money from breaking the law. You made money because others were afraid to break the law and compete with you. And then you get caught and you go to jail, and that was the risk you took. So there's an increased ability to make money and have much less competition when you run an illegal business like this, but a real chance you will go to jail. So for Brandon Steven, this was a pretty good result because, yeah, supposedly he gave away any profits he made, but if that's all he had to do is give away his profits, then this is kind of a free roll for him because either he doesn't get caught and busted or he gets busted and hands the profits back. Pretty good deal. Anyway, I don't care that much, though. I'm not hoping he goes to jail for it, which he's not, but I, it's not like I'm mad he didn't go to jail like I was when the UB cheaters didn't go to jail or the Full Tilt Thieves didn't go to jail. I just, I understand why they do these busts. All right, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. The Party Poker CEO has put out a statement about their changes, which have been met with some controversy. Here is the blog put out by Rob Young, who is the current CEO of Party Poker. Hi, on June 17th, 2019, Party Poker made changes to its poker software, the start of our mission to make Party Poker a safe, fair, and honest place to play. I would like to be clear on a few points of the changes. Number one, HUDs, which stands for Heads-Up Displays, which people use to see stats on all the players they're up against. We banned the use of HUDs and also stopped your opponents from downloading your hand histories into databases and software to analyze your play or to sell or swap your hand histories with other players to gain an advantage against you. Number two, new alias. We asked you to select a new party poker alias upon login so that the databases that hold your hand histories and the software that analyzes your play is of no further use against you. Here's an image of a player being analyzed by software. Number three, my game. We understand that you may want to review your own play, and since you can no longer download your hand histories, we will work with players to improve my game. My game is a feature on their site. uh, Letting you review your own hand stats and results. And so they show pictures of the my game tab, which still isn't showing specific hand histories, though. It's, It's attempting to... Like, I guess you can use it to analyze your game, and it, it gives you a grade on on how your play has been but uh, with some suggestions, but I don't see ways to, like, view raw hand histories. 
Number four, security. We've invested heavily in our game integrity before making these changes. It wouldn't be smart to inform bot users, cheats, and angle shooters of our plans, but it will personally be open and transparent of our results. Number five, more. We have over 50 more improvements in progress to make Party Poker fairer. You can keep up on these improvements, express your views, and suggest ideas via my my at Rob underscore Young underscore Twitter account. Rob Young is spelled R-O-B-Y-O-N-G. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. Rob Young. Come on. <laughs> Keep the faith in what? Lack of hand histories? Their, their ability to catch bots when players can no longer analyze them? The problem here is they're assuming that, that without player help, without player feedback, that they can catch as many bots as before. And they can't. Oh, we've made security changes. No, you haven't. You, you may have done a little bit, but the best security measure are the players themselves, the observant players, the ones that can analyze data, the ones who are in the games, the ones who can separate the suspected, suspected bots from the actual bots. And they can do that through hand histories, through data they can download and analyze. And without that at their disposal, they will catch far fewer bots and far fewer other cheaters and far fewer other worse instances of cheating like super using. It is never to the advantage of players that the ability to download hand history goes away. Let's go back to the beginning of the blog. He says, well, there, there, people are mining your hand histories and selling them and, and they're being used against you and, and look at these HUDs. Well, okay. You want to ban HUDs? Fine. You want to threaten to close accounts if, if you detect HUDs being used? Fine. Still be a few people who do it, but it's going to greatly bring down the number of people who do it. You want to let people change their screen name every week? Fine. You want to let people change their screen name every day? Fine. You want to force people to change their screen name like once a week? Fine. These are all methods you can use that can defeat these HUDs that still allows analysis. Well, changing every day, I guess, could be a problem if uh, bots or cheaters keep changing their name. So every day it would be too much. But maybe once every two weeks, once every three weeks, something like that. Something enough to where bots and cheating can be detected, but where players who are legitimate get a fresh start and there's not as much data on them and their play style to be useful. Either allow people to change their screen names or a combination where you're allowed to do it, say, every three weeks, but you're forced to do it every three months. Something like that. There's things you can do to really bring down the effectiveness of these huts. And this my game thing within party poker, whatever that is, that's not going to substitute for for hand histories. You always should have access to hand histories. I mentioned it last week. Party poker is being arrogant here than just saying, ah, just trust us. We're going to we're going to catch the cheating. We're going to catch the bot. Just trust us. We we don't need your help anymore. We we've advanced so much we don't need your help. That's not true. They've admitted recently that that most of the times that they've closed accounts as a result of accusations against bots and cheaters, it has been from player reports. They've admitted that. So I don't see how 
they claim that they can do it so much better now. They, they didn't just come up with amazing methods this year that didn't exist before to catch bots and cheaters. This is just something they're saying to save face. They, oh, we've invested in a lot of extra security measures, so don't worry. Just trust us now. No. They should not. They, people should always have access to hand histories. People should always be able to access to identify bots, super users. Should always be able to analyze everything that happened at a table to see if anything fishy was going on. So that's a very bad change they made, and all the justification they can put out in the world is not going to change that. Can't make a long topic out of this. It's pretty straightforward, but I wanted to put that out there. And that's all I have to say. Doesn't look like they're doing an about-face. Doesn't look like they're changing. It's going to stay this way. It's unfortunate. That's the way it is. Time to move on. New Hampshire is the latest state to add sports betting. There's legalized sports betting. It, it hasn't quite happened, but it's very close. New Hampshire had its state House of Representatives agree with the Senate regarding Bill HB 480. The final steps that they have to do is go to the Enrolled Bills Committee for finalization, which just means that they have to make sure the bill reads okay. And then the governor, Chris Sununu, has to sign it. You may say, well, that's a big step, the, the governor signing it. Maybe he's not going to sign it. Well, he is going to sign it. He's already indicated that he plans to do so. So very likely there's going to be legalized sports betting very soon in New Hampshire. Governor Sununu said in his budget address that the state will earn an extra $10 million from sports betting. So why, why would he say that and then reject the bill? Wouldn't make any sense. Within two to three weeks, it will supposedly be there for signing. And then it will officially be legal. Then there will be some time that will be taken to actually get these legalized sports betting outlets running. But it won't be that long. 18-year-olds will be allowed to gamble legally in New Hampshire, which is, I think, maybe the first time that is ever happening in the U.S. Anyone 18 or older can bet on sports, according to this bill, and they're going to authorize up to five mobile sports betting operators and 10 brick and mortars. And apparently, the brick-and-mortar locations do not have to be within casinos. Sportsbooks can be opened anywhere in the state, and they have to go through a bidding process and an application process, but that's it. So they don't necessarily have to be associated with a casino or in a casino. The businesses that will get priority as far as getting a license to run a brick-and-mortar 
sportsbook will be ones that have already made a, quote, solid contribution to the economic development within the state. Meaning that if you've already been in New Hampshire a while and the existence of your business here has helped the state of New Hampshire, then you have a much better chance of getting a license than those without that track record. Also, they do not have any kind of tax in this bill regarding the revenue. The way the state plans to make money is from bids that whoever's willing to give the largest cut will get uh, the licenses as long as they qualify in these other ways. So you're pretty much writing your bid how much you're willing to tax yourself. <laughs> They'll use that as a, a big piece of criteria as to whether or not they select you. That's kind of an interesting process. It's like, uh, you tell us what we're going to get from you. You tell us what percentage of your profits we're going to take, and the ones who are willing to hand over the most to us are much more likely to get a license. Mm-hmm. The brick-and-mortar sports books will be able to uh, offer regular sports betting, as you know it. And uh, the mobile sports betting operators will be able to offer both regular sports betting and live betting. It's not clear why they are only offering live betting on the mobile sports operators. What about college games? College games will be allowed, but anything involving New Hampshire schools will not be allowed. So that's the details regarding New Hampshire sports betting, which is about to become yet another state with legalized sports betting in the U.S. So our final topic, we're, we're down to our final topic, and we're not even going to talk about any form of gambling or poker. I'm going to do my editorial here. Before I begin, let's see if we've got any texts. Oh my God, you would think they would be grateful you showed up to the room at 2 a.m. in Bellagio. That's unreal. He's referring to that abusive floor man. Yeah, I, I told him that too. I said, do you, do you guys notice your room is dead recently? Do you notice that you know it, a long time ago at 2 a.m. you would have had a ton of games still running here? There was like four games running in the whole place of all kinds combined? Don't you think that driving out players walking in is not the right move? Even if you wanted me? To check in with you, you should be more polite about it, not threaten to ban me. The manager agreed with all this later. The floor man was a jerk about it. And when I when I asked her a supervisor, I could tell the supervisor wasn't a real supervisor. He was just like a, like a guy on the same level who was put in the supervisory role at that time. I could just tell by the way, he, yeah, I'll talk to him. Well, you'll talk to him, but you know, do you have authority over him? Um... Well, we, we don't have exactly defined levels of authority here. I'm like, okay, this, this, he's on the same level here, and he's not going to do anything. So that's, I, t- I took it to the top. 
Okay, so anyway, getting back to my editorial. or starting my editorial. I haven't gotten to it yet. What do you think you know about Matthew Shepard? Do you remember that name? I bet you do. What do you think you know about Matthew Shepard? Matthew Shepard was a gay young man who was beaten to death in Wyoming way back in 1998. He was only 22 years, he was 21 years old. He, wasn't, he was almost 22 on October 12, 1998 when he was beaten to death. A lot of factors about this tragic crime were ones that got people's attention. Now keep in mind, this is the 90s. This is the late 90s. Most of you are old enough to remember it because this is an older audience show. We don't have that many young listeners. Gay rights and uh, gay people, it was, it was very different at that time. In 1998. There was a lot more stigma regarding being gay than there is today. Way more. In fact... The biggest societal change that's happened since 20 years ago has been the acceptance of gay and trans people. It's, it's incredibly different today. Much, much more acceptance of gay people by the mainstream than back then. Back then, people knew gays were out there. Uh, it wasn't shocking to, to, to know there were gay people, but they still faced uh, a lot of discrimination and a lot of hate. And in the mainstream, it was kind of still common for gays to be made fun of. And uh, they, they weren't, I, I'd say starting the like around the late 2000s, early 2010s is when it really started to change. Where the way the public viewed gay people, uh, it became something seen as much more normal, much more uh, accepted by the mainstream. But a big incident that started to get that changed, it took a while, but uh, it started to get that changed and also put a strong focus on violence against gay people based upon their sexual preference was the Matthew Shepard situation. By the way, before I continue this, uh, Trader Risk, are you still here or did the, the T take hold already? I guess if you don't answer, we'll have, we'll have our answer. Still here, Trader Risky? Got to give him the obligatory time to unmute it. I always, I'm convinced he's gone. Then I go, hey, hello, I'm here. <laughs> I think he's really gone. It's 105. Usually gone by this point. Last last week he somehow made it till 3 a.m. But this week I think, I think the big meal he had has done him in early. I'm going to drop him. Just me now. So getting back to Matthew Shepard. This seemed to be a case that was open and shut. The perpetrators of the murder, Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson, were arrested, charged with first-degree murder, and convicted. And that seemed to be that. As a result, 
Congress passed the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr., who was a black man who was uh, dragged from a uh, a pickup truck, dragged to death, another terrible crime. The Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act, also known as the Shepard Byrd Act or the Com- or the Matthew Shepard Act. This was passed in October 2009. President Obama, who was uh, a new president at the time, his first year in office, signed the legislation into law. His mother, Judy Shepard, became a prominent gay rights ex- uh, activist, despite not being gay herself, and established the Matthew Shepard Foundation. Shepard's death inspired films, novels, plays, songs, and, and many other works. It was considered, uh, while a tragic moment, a, a big moment in shining the spotlight upon anti-gay violence. It also came out that three years prior to his death, while he was in Morocco on a high school trip, he was beaten and raped, and this caused him to experience depression and panic attacks. Now, yes, this occurred in a foreign country, but uh, the whole tragic story of Matthew Shepard, who was beaten to death by homophobes in a backward place like uh, Wyoming... And the very brutal way in which he died, where he was uh, approached by uh, Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson at the uh, a place called the Fireside Lounge in Laramie, Wyoming. And uh, they convinced him to get in a car with them, and then they drove him to a remote area, robbed him, pistol whipped him, tortured him, then tied him to a fence, set him on fire, and left him to die. He was beaten so brutally that his face was completely covered in blood except where his tears came down. Not only that, but the girlfriends, I guess the ex-girlfriends of the two murderers, McKinney and Henderson, testified that neither of them was drunk or on drugs at the time that they committed this heinous act. McKinney and Henderson did testify that they intended to rob him and also got his address and were going to steal it from his home. He was also left out in the cold. It was This is in Wyoming. This is in late October. It gets pretty cold there. It was uh, in the 30s outside, and he was left tied to the fence after being beaten and set on fire. And uh, believe it or not, the two who beat him to death got into a fight with two Hispanic guys on the way home. And that actually is what uh, led police eventually to these two, and then eventually the whole thing unraveled, even though the fight with the uh, Hispanic guys didn't have to do with this. So the story that went around, the story that you probably know if you followed this case at the time, 21 years ago, 
was that uh, he was beaten uh, for his sexual preference. That he was beaten to death because he was gay. That's what most people think. If you hear about Matthew Shepard, oh, that, that was that uh, guy in the 90s who got uh, beaten to death in a really brutal manner by two guys because he was gay. Homophobes killed him. Why'd they do it all? Because they're from Wyoming. They hate gay people there. That's not what happened. That's definitely not what happened. If you know a bit more about the case from around that time, if you studied a bit more, then you might know that robbery did have to do with this, but that there was still a nasty element here involving Shepard being gay and that uh, Henderson and McKinney pretended they were gay to get him in the truck so they could rob him. So they made phony gay advances at him. They all left together because they were supposedly three gay guys leaving together and then their real motive was to both rob him and kill him. That wasn't true either. Partially true, but that's not really what was behind any of this. There was a book written in two. Th- uh, let me see when was it? I think it was written in in uh, in 2013. I almost got the date wrong. An author named Stefan Jimenez wrote a book called "The Book of Matt." Hidden Truths About the Murder of Matthew Shepard. And Stephen Jimenez was actually the producer of a segment they did in twenty uh, on the show 2020, nine years earlier in 2004, that this murder was not motivated by Matthew Shepard's sexuality. That it was actually a drug-related robbery. And that's all it was. It had nothing to do with the fact that Shepard was gay. It wasn't a hate crime. It was a crime about robbing someone. It was a robbery that turned violent, and that's it. So, Stephen Jimenez was the producer of that segment, and then nine years later, he wrote a book about it in more detail called The Book of Matt, Hidden Truths About the Murder of Matthew Shepard. Now, you may say maybe Stephen Jimenez is some right-wing homophobe who just wants to hurt gay people by changing the narrative here, that this wasn't a hate crime against gays, and therefore uh, we shouldn't worry about hate crimes against gays so much. Maybe that's what you're thinking. Well, don't, because Stephen Jimenez is gay himself. He's openly gay and has been for a long time. He's not a self-hating gay. He's actually he's a gay guy who has been open about being gay, proud of being gay. So this was not anti-gay by any means. But he did more investigation into Matthew Shepard's life than anybody had done before, even the police. And he found some things in the story that were very contradictory to the narrative that had been going on that Shepard was killed because of his sexuality. He said that, first of all, this McKinney guy, while he was one of the killers, he was actually an on-and-off gay lover 
of Shepard. He wasn't pretending to be gay once to get him in the car. No, no, they he was really gay himself, this guy McKinney. They had been sex partners on and off, and that uh, they did drugs together. And that Shepard, who got into drugs, and his mom even admitted he was into drugs for the last few years before his death, at this point was a meth dealer, probably to fund his own drug habit. And basically, what this book alleges was that uh, Shepard at this point was a big enough meth dealer to where he had $10,000 worth of meth in his home. And that McKinney and uh, Henderson, the murderers, got wind of this. And that they wanted to steal it. And that was the reason that they got him into that car. That was the reason they were beating him and that they were trying to basically steal all his money and drugs because they heard there was at least $10,000 worth. And this whole book explains all that and explains all this in a very... uh, well thought out and well laid out fashion to where it looks like it's probably true. And you can Google it. You don't have to even read the book. You can read a long article written about this. You can Google Matthew Shepard, Stephen Jimenez, which is spelled J-I-M-E-N-E-Z. And you can find it. You can find these articles explaining what's in the book. And it's pretty convincing. It's pretty convincing that this was not an attack by homophobes in Wyoming who hated gay people and wanted to kill one. This was just over money and drugs. And one of the victims happened to be gay. And in fact, one of the perpetrators was too. And in fact, had sexual relations with the victim before. There's a reason I'm bringing all this up here. I'll admit, I just learned about this recently. I All this time, I really thought that he was just a gay guy who was beaten by rednecks to death. I didn't realize that it wasn't that. But what fascinated me was the fallout from this. Remember, Stephen Jimenez, the article of this and the producer of that 2020 segment, is gay. And he took a lot of heat A lot of people threatened him. A lot of people threatened his life for writing that book and for producing that segment. People got very angry at him about this. Telling him that he shouldn't be putting this out there. That this is not true. That this is harming Matthew Shepard's legacy. And that even if what he's writing is true, that it's harming the gay community because of all the progress that's been made since his murder, and some of this progress is because of his murder. And that even if it's true that Matthew Shepard was actually just a drug dealer 
who was murdered for his drugs and it had nothing to do with his sexuality, that that should not be put out there because the one good thing that came from this murder was all the advances in gay rights and the hate crime legislation that makes much tougher penalties for going after someone for their race or sexual preference. And that leads to the question, what if something that is not true or mostly not true results in positive change in society? What if the outrage at a fake incident or a exaggerated or morphed incident leads to something positive that occurs in response? Because there are instances of violence against gays for being gay. There is real gay bashing. There are real hate crimes. Just because this one wasn't and was framed as if it was and that got a lot of media attention. There are real ones, right? So if this one happened to get all the attention, shouldn't they just take it if the end result is something good? Is it wrong to ruin progress that might be coming by telling the truth about the one that finally does get the attention? Or maybe you should keep quiet and just let the wheels turn and let society progress. After all, if there are real attacks like this that aren't getting attention, should an attack that wasn't a hate crime that gets the attention as a hate crime If that's the one getting the stuff done, maybe that makes up for the fact that others aren't getting the attention they deserve. I disagree. And I think that sets a very bad precedent, too. In society in general, it is never good to base legislation or reactions upon lies. Even if you think It's doing the public good, even if you think it's making up for other inaction that should have taken place over things that actually did happen. In general, it is not good to have anything take place as a result of a lie. And you should not support lies being maintained and being continued and being used as the means to an end. Now, I'm not talking about individual situations. I'm not talking about something you have to tell the phone company that isn't true to get them down to your house when they're they're not coming. Or uh, something you have to... Uh, let's, let's say there's a, a guy who owes you money and isn't paying you and you have to... and he's just refusing to pay you and he's being a jerk about it and you think he's trying to rip you off and, and then you... you tell him a sob story that your wife is really sick and can't afford to pay her medical bills and the, and he's the last hope to get your money and then he comes and pays you. And in reality, your wife's healthy and you just lied to him. Okay, that's fine because that's, that's one-on-one. That's individual stuff where sometimes you have to look out for yourself and sometimes if you have to tell a white lie to, to get something done where you're uh, otherwise going to be screwed, that's a different story and you can decide on your own whether your own behavior, whether that justifies it or not. But I'm talking about 
public policy. I'm talking about the media. I'm talking about mass awareness about situations. And there, there's never any justification to push a false narrative. There just isn't. And I'm seeing it increasingly over time, and even more disturbing is when you correct it, when you put out the truth, you get hate, you get anger, and you'll sometimes hear from people, okay, maybe what you're saying is correct, but you're doing harm by saying it, shut up. And I hate when people think that way. And all that does is establish a precedent that it's better to lie and to mislead the people than to be honest with them. If you're going to support lies to get done what you want to have get done, then when the other side that you don't support lies to get their legislation passed, you don't really have a right to complain, do you? But you'd be surprised how prevalent this is. Here's another one that uh, wasn't about a murder, but this is something that uh, I think I've talked about before in this show, but I'll mention it again since it's appropriate. Gamergate. You can Google that if you don't remember it. But uh, Gamergate was basically a scandal that involved the gaming community. I don't mean the casino gaming community. I mean video gaming. Where it seemed to be that females were being shut out of gaming. That men were making it very tough for women to exist in the gaming world, either as players or developers. That women were the subject of harassment if they attempted to take any kind of prominent role in the gaming community. One of them, Anita Sarkeesian, made a video about gaming and then claimed she was getting harassed over this video she made. And she solicited donations to help her make videos about the harassment. And guess what? Anita Sarkeesian, who originally just asked for $6,000 on Kickstarter to make her next move, her, her next video, she got hundreds of thousands of dollars of donations from guilty left-wingers who felt that they owed it to her for being such a brave female for standing up to these misogynistic male gamers. Only problem was Anita Sarkeesian had a pretty, pretty ugly history, if you looked into her, of being pretty much a career scammer. And when her own stories about being harassed by these misogynists in the gaming world, when they were scrutinized further by skeptics, it turned out that it looked likely she made up all or most of those harassment stories as well. That uh, Her plan worked much better than, in fact, she'd even thought it was. She made a ton of money, some estimate millions of dollars, off of being a professional victim. And there were others in Gamergate. Brianna Wu, Zoe Quinn... They also lied or exaggerated to some degree, or in many cases, a large degree, regarding the harassment they received, and they also profited from this quite well. There was even a terrible Law and Order episode that was made based upon the stories of these three. I won't go into each one of them, but you can Google it and you'll see. 
that these were made up, exaggerated, or important details left out. But they made a lot of money from it. So I'd be on Facebook or some other place on the web and I'd see people talking about Gamergate and I'd see people talking about all the misogynists in the gaming community, which there are some. There are some basement-dwelling guys who still believe the girls shouldn't be part of gaming and harass them. That does happen. I'm not denying that happens sometimes. Not denying there's guys out there like that in the gaming community. But these three women who made so much money, who got so much prominent from it, they were not the victims. They were exploiting the situation. And they were the faces of it, though. So I will bring this up, and I'll point out the holes in the stories of these three. And I'll make a very good case. And after the detractors can argue no more because my case has been laid out so clearly and convincingly, I get the answers of, well, okay, perhaps you're right about them, but look what they did. Look at all the attention they brought to the problems that females in gaming face. Real problems, which before no one would talk about, but this brought it to the mainstream, and there's been a lot of progress since then, and this is a conversation that needed to be had. So, so what if some people took advantage of it and didn't tell the whole truth, and maybe they gained from it, but okay, overall it was a good thing, so we need to support them anyway. And I go, oh my god, no. Never support scammers. Never support liars who exploit a situation to get donations for something that never happened to them. Never. But they couldn't be convinced. All they saw was that there was finally a dialogue about misogyny in gaming that needed to be had for a long time. These women got it done, even if they made up what happened to them, even if they exaggerated what happened to them, even if they made a lot of money over false stories. So what? Society benefited from it, so let's still hail him as heroes. There were really a lot of people who thought this way, not just weird extremists, but I mean, a lot of people who thought this way, and most people just never knew. Most people never knew because this wasn't covered very much except for by right-wing sites. So you have a bunch of right-wingers who know this is all BS, but everybody else just says, okay, these are just weird right-wingers who hate women, so this this didn't really happen. But go look into it yourself if you don't believe me. Go go Google Gamergate and Brianna Wu, Google Google uh, Anita Sarkeesian, Google Zoe Quinn, and, and read the site skeptical of them, and you'll see very, very clearly laid out reasoning as to why all of them were lying and or exaggerating. You will see. You will see it's not just conspiracy. You'll see it's it's very, very logical. And it's it's on the other end in their support that's illogical and doesn't make any sense and doesn't add up. There's like there's just a lot of things that just simply don't add up, that just simply make no sense if you piece together their stories and then you look at the skeptics and it, it makes perfect sense. So most people don't know about it because this wasn't covered. Those that knew about it chose not to cover it except for the right-wing sites, which felt like that uh, it, it would do them some good to discredit it because right-wing readers like to read about these sorts of things. You know, when some kind of victim group claims victimhood and then it turns out the faces of the victim group are lying, that the right-wing loves that. So that, that's why they covered it. Everybody else knows. But I'm not going to make this an attack on the left either because I've seen some things from the right where they know certain things not to be true and they keep running with it because 
they don't want it to hurt the narrative. Something I thought of off the top of my head is about someone who I have criticized a lot, someone I don't like, someone I hope does not become president, someone who's very off-putting to me, and that is Elizabeth Warren. Now, I'm a big critic of Elizabeth Warren's. I don't like her. I really don't like the people who, like the people who support her, the average Elizabeth Warren supporter I find is really insufferable. Like that's the type of left winger I tend to hate the most are the ones that support Warren. <laughs> For some reason, like every, I think of the left wingers who piss me off the most that I just know in real life. And those are the ones who are Warren supporters. It's kind of weird how that's fallen. But anyway. The whole thing about the Native American heritage claim. I think this is very dumb of her. I think she took something that she invented a long time ago and benefited from and then just kept doubling down on it when the subject came up, as it always does in politics. They they dig into your life and find embarrassing things. And they found this on her, and she should have just owned up to it, and, and she, she had a good way out of it. She could have said that she heard this in her family. She never checked on it too well. She just believed it, and now, now she realized it wasn't true. Sorry for anyone she offended. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm not really Native American. Sorry, sorry. I, I, you know, I just believed some stories in my family. Didn't mean to offend. Uh, apology, apology, goodbye. Like That should have been it. Don't do stupid DNA tests where uh, it comes out you're one 1,024th Native American maybe and claim that proves that Donald Trump was wrong the whole way about you and that you really are Native American. That, that was a joke. It made you look like a fool. See, Donald Trump, he, he's calling me Pocahontas uh, derisively. Look, look, I'm 0.1% Native American. I was right. You, you look like an idiot saying that. So she handled this very poorly. And the truth is, she did do this decades ago to gain. How did she gain? Well, if you're on the right, you probably think that she did this to get hired at Harvard, that Harvard has racial hiring quotas, and that she went there and said, I'm Native American, and they said, okay, Elizabeth, you're hired because we need a Native American professor here, and they hired her, and they may not have otherwise if she admitted she was white, which she really was. That's that's what most people on the right think. You ask the average right-winger, they will tell you that she got hired at Harvard because she lied about her race. Not true. Not true. The truth is that she was already at Harvard before she invented this whole thing. So she got hired at Harvard as a white person. Her race, when she got hired by Harvard, was white. And they've released documents proving that. And I believe those documents. So she did not get hired for that reason. But while she was there, she realized, even back in the 70s, she realized that being white at, being white and heterosexual in academia is boring. That you get a lot more credit if you are some sort of victimized class. Even decades ago, she realized this. That she'd be a lot more interesting on campus if she were something besides a white female, a white straight female, which is what she was and is. So she remembered some stories that her mother and father had told her about having some kind of Native American heritage. She said, okay, perfect. There's some Native American background I think I have in some way, though I don't really know it or understand it. And uh, I'm, I'm now on Native American. I'm no longer white, I'm a Native American. And she, she actually submitted paperwork, which has been found, at Harvard, while there, not to get the job, but once she was already there, to change her race, her listed race, from white to Native American, and then subsequently Harvard actually sent out uh, 
not right after she got changed, but sometime shortly after that, they were talking about the racial makeup and actually talked about how uh, they have one Native American professor on staff. (laughs) (laughs) They actually bragged about having a Native American professor, Elizabeth Warren. This is before she was well-known, before she got into politics. So yeah, she exploited it. She exploited a false racial identity to gain victim cred and be more interesting at Harvard, which she probably also felt might help her career down the line. And then once she was called on it, instead of finding an easy way out of it and just saying, oh, my family told me this, I, I didn't realize it wasn't true, she she doubled down on it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, 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 I'm, I'm Native American. I am, I am, believe me, believe me, I totally am. Trump's full of crap. No, Trump's just being hateful. Oh, look at this DNA test that shows I am. Like, she kept doubling down on it and looked stupider and stupider, and now she really looks stupid. So, somehow she's starting to make a comeback. Somehow she may actually end up being the nominee. She's, I, I thought she was dead in the water, but she's starting to make a comeback. But anyway, the reason I'm bringing this up is to criticize actually the right for sticking to this whole story about Harvard, which they know isn't true. And I'll even tell people on the right when they say this. I go, no, 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 no. Let me explain again. She got into Harvard listing her she got a, she got her job at Harvard as a white person. She claimed she was white. There was no Native American claim back then when she got the job. It was later. And then I explained it was still wrong what she did. She was using it to gain cred she didn't deserve while at Harvard. But but she didn't get the job that way. And they're like, oh, okay. And then like two days later, the same person's like, did you hear Elizabeth Warren got the job because she uh, said she's Native American? I'm like, oh, my God. These, they don't want to know this. They don't want to believe this. They, It's so much better to say she got the job as a college professor by lying about her race. It's just easier to say that. It's just easier to use that narrative than the truth that she got the job being white and then changed it in the middle for cred. Like, that, that doesn't sound as good. That doesn't sound as outrageous. That doesn't sound – that doesn't grab your attention as much. And no matter how many times I try to correct people, they just, it's like, they don't argue with me, but then I, I see them saying the same thing again a short time later. And I, I know a lot of them have said that, have, have heard the same thing I have, and read the same things I read, but they just don't want to believe it. They keep pushing that same narrative. And, and I've seen this before from the right in other ways, too, where they just know something isn't true, and and they keep pushing it. And again, I think it's because they believe that they, whatever gets whatever works, whatever gets their agenda done, it's better to stick with that story. But I'll be honest, the left does it more because the left does it more from the victim standpoint. Look at this victim. Look at the terrible things that happened to them. We have to change the laws. We have to do something. So we don't have other victims like this, or if we do, that the there's the proper punishment for those that do it. Usually it's to get some sort of new law passed or to uh, change the way certain things are viewed. And if the whole thing turns out to be a hoax, then they don't want to admit it. Or they believe it was fine to have pushed the hoax even when you knew it was a hoax, because if it gets good things done, it gets good things done. Look at what happened with Donald Trump in the 2016 election. There were so many legitimate things to criticize Trump on. He said and did so many stupid things in the present and in the past. There is endless material, true material to criticize the guy on. 
And yet, a lot of the attacks were fabricated. A lot of the things said about him by mainstream media sources were true, were not true, or only partially true. With so much true material, they stuck to more sensational, offensive-sounding, false material. Taking him out of context constantly. Pushing stories that weren't verified, or were very likely to be false. There was a constant attack on Trump with accusations that weren't true or weren't likely to be true, despite the availability of so much material that was true to attack him on. Why? Because the the fake stuff sounded better. The fake stuff was easier. The fake stuff was more outrageous. They thought the fake stuff might be believable because he's he's such an outrageous guy in the first place. And when pressed, why are you doing this? The few times you'd get anyone to admit it was happening, they'd say, well... We have to. Having Trump as president would be such a disaster for this country. We have to do whatever we have to to make sure that he's not elected. By any means necessary, whatever lies we have to tell to keep him out of office, we have to do. It's, it's essential for this country. That was really what some people felt. And that's a very, very dangerous thought process. That's a very, very flawed thought process, and that's something that I would hope that you do not believe is ever justified, no matter what political side it's coming from, or even if it's non-political. That you should always seek to get policy changed based upon true occurrences. Not a false occurrence that's somewhat based on a true occurrence that happened that didn't get attention. And defending lies and defending false narratives and defending hoaxes and defending gross exaggerations and defending scammers who happen to be leading, whose actions happen to be leading to uh, your cause getting more attention, that should never be supported. And I would never support it. And I will always call out things that I notice are not true. Even when they make my own side look bad. And I hope you will too. You may notice that uh, if you listen to that Adnan Mohammed segment we did. Where I played those voicemails. And we got to that one voicemail talking about how his social security number was used in a scam. Now, I could have just said, you know, Adnan's a piece of shit, he's a scammer, he's all these terrible things, all these accusations against him that seem very credible, blah, blah, blah. Like, I could have gone along with that and said, oh, wow, look at this. Look, yeah, look, this really shows how bad he is. But the first thing I said was, nope, I think this is actually a scam call. I think this call is a scammer trying to scam a scammer. I think the caller didn't even know he was a scammer. I think it was like an automated call. But that one, I said, this is the one call in in all these that are being played that I I think is not legit. Not because I wanted to be an Adnan defender, but because I wanted the truth out there. Because I only wanted to criticize him based upon where the criticism was legitimate. And not just where it would sound the worst. 
So I hope this is the attitude that you have and that more and more people will have over time. I've always liked stuff that's real. This is not the same, and of course it doesn't really have much of a consequence, but I always get annoyed when there's these like fake text message exchanges that are going around Facebook or wherever. Something that's supposed to be funny, you've like a father talking to a daughter or uh you know someone accidentally texting somebody else that they they didn't know they were texting or uh or someone texting someone something stupid to someone else or giving a stupid response and it goes viral. And I'll read a lot of these and they're so fake. They're so staged. They're so obviously conversations that never really happened. So I'll type a response like this is so fake or so obviously staged. And then I'll get back. This is funny. Stop ruining my fun. This is entertaining. Like what's entertaining about it? Someone just made up a conversation. Like it's not funny. The whole reason this is supposed to be funny is that it's supposed to be reality. We're laughing at it because we think it's real and this really happened. This is different than laughing at a sitcom where you know you're watching uh, something that was written, something that's fiction, where you're you're laughing at kind of a, a representative a representation of, of what a family would be, a representation of a situation would be, kind of a, a funny way that it all goes down. This is one you're more laughing over, like picturing that this really happened. And when, once you know it's fake and it's staged and the whole thing's put together to go viral in the first place and, and did, that, that takes the humor out of it. You just feel like you're being manipulated by some asshole at that point. I can't laugh anymore. At that point, I'm just, I'm just so tempted to put out there fake, 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 fake. There is uh, a viral video that went around of this game show where, uh, I think a game show, something involving an audience, and this uh, guy and girl went, uh, they were called up to the front, and the guy thought they were together, and the girl said, no, 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 we're just friends, I'm single, everybody, I'm single. And the guy had this really awkward response, and it looked really embarrassing, and you, you picture, oh my god, it's so terrible for this guy on TV. On national TV, this girl is friend-zoning him when he thought that they were together in a way, and... Oh, so terrible for him, and it's just like this embarrassing, cringe moment that you couldn't help but watch. Except it was obvious to me it was all staged. It was obviously it was two act. There were two actors doing this. There was no relationship. There was no friend zone. It was it was two actors playing a part and going by a script that was written by somebody else, presented as reality. Well, at that point, it's it's not embarrassing. It's not cringeworthy anyway. It's not. Something that evokes any kind of emotion because it, it's, it's phony. It didn't happen. And we're supposed to watch it as if it did. But yet when I bring this up to people who share that, they get mad at me. They go, oh, thanks for ruining it for me. You know, the, why do you have to be the killjoy with this stuff? I go, because it's fake. What am I supposed to do? Respond and go, oh man, I feel terrible for that guy. No, I feel like a moron doing that because, uh, it's not real. You're being tricked. You're being lied to. So I, I I think videos of real life, of things that really did happen that are embarrassing or funny or weird, I think they can be very entertaining if they really happen. If it was staged to screw with my head, then it's not funny. It's just irritating. But I'm, I'm finding a surprising number of people 
that think that uh, this stuff is okay. So. I don't get enough topic here. All right. Uh, if you are going to look for the next show, you should go to the next episode, that is. If you want to look for the next episode, you need to go to twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert. Twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert is where we always have our updates for the next episode. And I really hope I can't do another episode until July 3rd. Because that will mean I made two day twos. Hopefully I made two day twos and at least cashed. And hopefully I made some day threes. I don't feel like I was much at the World Series. I know it's weird because I was there for like two weeks. I was there from May 29th to to June 10th. And I played several events. And I played a satellite and I played a lot of cash in the Rio at 75-150-08 with a, with a small kill. I did all that and I left and I felt like I wasn't there in a way because I was out of the event so fast. I, I didn't, I wasn't really competitive at any of the events except for the Big 50. And that one always felt like so far away from like the real money because it's such a huge field event. So I I kind of came home unsatisfied that I didn't even get the experience out of running deep in events or seeing, you know, will I cash, won't I cash? I didn't even get to that point in all but one event. And then I left and I'm so removed from it now, being away from it, and it just, okay, I'm going to come back and start fresh and it's probably better I have the two weeks off after getting clobbered in all those events in a row I can come back it was just one of those things where I just couldn't make hands it was just everything was falling wrong everything was missing whenever I'd make a little progress and win something I'd lose it right back you know what it's like in tournaments just couldn't get anything going and in Two of them, I just got smacked out really hard, like among the first out. Better than bubbling, I guess, but still frustrating when it happens a number of times. I do have the no cash monkey off my back. I, once in a, once again, I've cashed at least once in every World Series, but uh, and again, this wasn't by a cheap top 15% cash. It was a top 2% cash. But I'm looking forward to the events. Looking forward to the Limit Hold'em ones. I haven't played any Limit Hold'em tournaments uh, since last year in July. So I'm looking forward to taking my shot at those. Looking forward to not chunking off a big stack in the 10k event. Hopefully I'll get another biggest stack. But three years in a row, I've been the first or second ship leader during the mid to late day one, kind of around level seven of the 10K limit hold'em, only to not come close to cashing in all three years. How do you do that? Three years in a row, 
be first or second ship leader at that point and not even come close to cashing all three. I mean, that's pretty shocking. Last year, I'm like, okay, I did that twice in a row. I guess this year it probably won't happen. No, it happened again. <laughs> when I ran it up in level seven last year, I'm like, okay, well, this time it's not going to happen. It's happened two years in a row, but this time I'm not going to lose it back. And I lost it back. This this year, though, I can't say I'm not going to lose it back. I guess the cards to some degree. But uh, all right. Uh, I guess that's it. You won't hear from me again until I've played some events. It's possible if I come on here next on July 3rd, by then I will have played everything but the main event in the 3K Limit Hold'em. And hopefully I won't be coming on here to tell you guys I've bricked everything. Remember, if you are going to be in Vegas between June 25th and the end of the World Series, please let me know. There's a good chance that I'll be there when you're there. And I'll be glad to meet you, even if I've met you before. If I can't make it, don't be pissed. Don't think I'm just blowing you off. I might be blowing you off, but you won't know because I also may be busy. There's a lot of things I could do there. I play play cash. I uh, play the World Series events, of course. I sometimes do other casino stuff. I meet up with others that I've known for a while or other friends I have in Vegas. So as far as meeting listeners of the show, I, I try to make time for that, too. So contact me if you're there. And if you're a dealer by any chance, you're dealing to me, feel free to say something that uh, you listen to the show. And if you see me running around in the hallway, it probably means I'm trying to get to the bathroom quickly and get back without missing any hands. So I apologize in advance if I can't stand to talk to you then. You'll be able to tell. You'll see if I, if I look like I'm moving fast on purpose then you're going to know I'm on the way somewhere. If, if I look like I'm leisurely walking, then you can probably stop me, and I'll probably talk to you for a while. Uh, we should have a more regular schedule once the World Series is over. The summer is always kind of chaotic with a schedule. We should have a show every week, I think, in July. Let's see here. Yeah, we're going to have a show probably every week in July. Probably five shows in July. So, you can look forward to that if you like this show. Well, hopefully I'll talk to you next on July 3rd and have a lot of good news about the World Series of Poker. Otherwise, I'll talk to you on the 26th or the 28th. Check twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert. Good night, and shalom. Shalom.